Life's an adventure, and it's waiting. Hi, this is Merrill Hodge. At ST Bank, they know life's for the living. That's why ST Bank offers solutions to help you get the most out of it. Whether you're investing in your home, planning for the future, or just making the most of every day, ST Bank is here to help. Learn how ST Bank can help you live the life you want at stbank.com. Member FDIC. ST Bank was ranked number one in customer satisfaction with retail banking in Pennsylvania by JD Power. For JD Power 2022 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. With classes in crisis communication, influence, and data presentation, Gonzaga University's online Master's in Communication and Leadership equips you with the tools you need to communicate clearly and encourage creativity in any industry. Concentrations in digital media, strategic communication, and global leadership allow you to customize your degree. Visit gonzaga.edu slash communication and learn why a master's degree from Gonzaga can help you take your career to the next level. That's gonzaga.edu slash communication. Welcome to My Friends, My Friends, the Eddie Money Podcast with Dave and Dave, where we do nothing but shake with the money man. Well, Dave, we finally did it. We took the plunge and the Eddie Money Podcast is officially launched. Been a long time coming. We're ready to go. That's right. People have been asking for it and Dave figured... Why don't we start it this month, so let's go right ahead with the Eddie Money Podcast. My friends, my friends. So listen, just to start off, where we last talked about Mr. Money, Dave has been searching for the unplugged in full version of the concert, which is Eddie Money's 1992 tour, where he did an unplugged tour for the entire tour. And Eddie released an EP called Unplug It In, and Dave has always been frustrated that he couldn't get the full show. He only got the EP. So he's been searching for years for a bootleg or, or some sort of radio show that will obviously complete that whole tour. And our friend Midwest, fucking Ron, came through, and Wolfgangs, of all names, they have Wolfgangs, W-O-L-F-G-A-N-G-S.com. They have all kinds of live shows. I've never heard of this site. Have you heard of this site? Oh, yeah. Well, it's better known as Wolfgang's Vault. Mm-hmm. I had a membership there years ago. Really? And then I let it, yeah. Well, they changed the deal, and I let it drop. Okay. And then Ron sent this link, and I was like, son of a gun. Right. And I'm like, I got to get my membership back. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, if you're on YouTube, you'll be familiar with them because they have lots of shows, lots of video shows. Right. Up on YouTube. But it's all of, what's his name? The promoter, Bill, anybody's old manager. Oh, oh, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Bill Graham. Bill Graham. Right, it's right. Bill Graham's collection. Oh, Somehow wow. they bought... Bill Graham's collection. Wow. I mean, tons of stuff. Dave, you would just have a field day and get lost. And actually, now that we're locked in our houses, this is actually the perfect time to renew my subscription. Yeah, absolutely. But I am super psyched that Ron found the show for us. Uh Uh-huh. 
My only complaint yep. is, unfortunately, it still doesn't have my friends, my friends. Uh, no, I, it was the first thing I looked for. It's from the Rhythm Cafe in San Diego, California. December 31st, 1992 was New Year's Eve. And the first thing I saw was the full set with the exception of my friends, my friends. Which makes me wonder, Dave, we saw him in Philly in 92. Did he just do that on that show? I'm going to have to start researching that now. Yeah, or maybe, I mean, that was a New Year's Eve show that's on Wolfgang's Vault. Maybe right. Eddie didn't do it that night, right. or maybe it wasn't recorded that night. I mean, who the heck knows? Something happened uh, there. You know, but but it's definitely an acoustic show, because I listened to the clips. Right, right, absolutely. So, so I'm super psyched that Ron comes through again and found us a complete show, at least more complete than what the EP was. Absolutely. Uh, but the search for My Friends, My Friends... Uh, it continues. It continues. Continues. So close, yet so far away. Continues on. But thank you, Ron. You you totally made my day. Of course. Of course. So now, of course, we have to start from the beginning. He was born Edward Joseph Mahoney, March 21st, 1949, in Brooklyn. And he released his debut album, December 1977, self-titled Eddie Money. It's a double platinum. And his two biggest hits, or I should say, it's probably not his biggest, but his most well-known, I guess, or Baby Hold On, which reached... What do you think it reached, Dave? Take a guess. How how high Baby Hold On reached? It didn't go that high, right? Did, wasn't it only like in the 20s or something like that? No, I think you're flipping it. So this is what happened. The big hits are Baby Hold On and Two Tickets to Paradise. Surprisingly, I mean, everybody sort of knows Eddie for Two Tickets to Paradise. It's sort of like his Piano Man. It's his signature song. But that one only made it to like... 22, whereas Baby Hold On made it to 11. Almost cracked the top 10, but not quite. That's sort of interesting. And I'll tell you the thing about Two Tickets to Paradise is if you heard it as a single back in the day and you hear it on the radio now, it sounds different because the single mix was pretty different than the album. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the one you hear all the time. And, you know, the other thing I wanted to mention, Dave, is, you know, Eddie died, unfortunately, in 2019. He was 70 years old. He had 30 years of marriage. Unfortunately, he died too young, and that's really unfortunate. Whoa, 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 whoa. What are you guys doing? Hey, uh, did you guys have authorization for this? Marconi. Well, look who's back. Oh, look who's back. Hey, listen, I, I heard you guys are doing a podcast about me, and, uh, you know, I figured I might as well step up here, you know what I'm saying? Well, hey, we would love to celebrate your memory and your music, Eddie, so thank you for joining us. Oh, yeah, that's all well and good there, but let me tell you something. Uh, there's got to be a little cha-ching coming my way, you know what I'm saying? You know, Eddie, the more time you spend in heaven, the more time you sound more like Archie Bunker and less like Eddie Money. Hey, hey, who says I'm in heaven, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> April Fool's! <laughs> of course, we're going to have our regular podcast. We were just joking around. This is the dream podcast that we will one day have of anybody. Anyway, back to our regularly scheduled program.
never speak to me like that again. Better be wearing a cup. Welcome to Dave and Dave Unchained, a Van Halen podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Dave. And we are at episode 52, Dave. We made it to 52, and do you know what this episode is? No, I don't. Oh, Jesus. Every motherfucking year. Dude, it's our fourth anniversary. <laughs> I never remember. <laughs> You're unreal. I never remember. You're Unbelievable. Probably explains why I'm single. Yeah. Oh okay. yeah, I know exactly. It's unbelievable. I I continue to be your battered spouse. So <laughs> so yes, believe it or not, Dave, it was four years ago that we took this journey. And if you remember the first episode, do you even remember what that was? What we did for our first episode? Yes. Was did we do a review of a different kind of truth? Oh. My God, you some look, dude. You you got Corona on the brain. Something's going on with you, dude. <laughs> no, no. Okay, it's like, all right. I'm let me let's, I forget all right, all right, let's let's go back. You're an accountant, okay? Let's do it by numbers. <laughs> if we go back four years, what year would that be? For, uh, that was 2016. Okay. And what was the significance of this time of year in 2016? I don't know. Boy, wow, you are sad. It was the 30th anniversary of 5150. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. All right. All right. So <laughs> Dave, Dave, I'm like a musical artist. If you ask me, like, what song is on what album, yeah. or, like, if you ask me what we did on which, you know, episode 27 of our podcast, I, I have well, no idea. Well, listen, I'll give, no you, idea. I'll give you episode 27. Because I, I, I don't know what episode 27 was unless I look it up. But I do remember the first episode. For example, Dave, let's go back to another one of your firsts. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll skip that. Now. We'll, skip, to sweat. We'll, start, we'll skip that. We'll let that go. And we will head right into Van Halen News. Van Halen News. Well, what can I say? It's incredible that during this corona quarantine, Van Halen continues to churn out some news. So what happened? We have Eddie Trunk to thank for this. So Eddie Trunk, while broadcasting from his basement in his house in Jersey, managed to score an interview with Sammy Hagar and Michael Anthony. And he had both of them on the line at the same time, which is not common. Usually he does one at a time. But he had both of them on there. And, boy, it was a nice interview. It really was. Eddie had some really good questions. And he got some really interesting stuff out of Sam and Mike. So what were Sam and Mike up to? So at the time, I should say, Sam and Mike, pre-corona or just before the whole corona explosion, were about to go to South America. For their circle tour, they were very excited about it, and unfortunately, that got shut down hard, and they were told 
if they left the country, they'd have a hard time getting back in. So that's for sure. That shut that whole thing down. It was interesting. They they talked about that and why they had to cancel. They felt bad about it. They promised they will go back because they really want to. Sammy's never been. Mike hasn't been since 1982, I believe, when he was there, or 83, I think the tour was, right? Was it 83 or 82 when they were in... 83 when they were in South America. 83 when they were in South America, right, which is the famous 83 South American tour that Dave always wants a live album from. For example, this was what Eddie liked to call a hang. So they weren't promoting anything. This was sort of a hang interview, which is nice because he could ask questions that, you know, kind of always wanted to get answers for, which... Which is nice, and Mike and, and Sam were very open. I thought uh, Eddie did a good job. Did you, what did you feel, Dave? Did you feel Eddie did a good job? It was a good solid hour with those guys, and it was definitely a worthwhile interview to listen to. Yeah, definitely. So a couple of things we'll talk about that came out of this. One of the things was we always talk about, especially the Van Hagar era, why these guys really didn't tour Europe. And why in the balance tour, they were opening for Bon Jovi, for Christ's sake. So that's a great question. Eddie brought that up. And Sammy Hagar said, the reason is basically laziness. He said, we used to do three to four nights in every American city. And by the time we got through the year, we were doing 140 shows. And when they asked us if we wanted to go to Europe, we were like, no, I don't think so. So they were sort of burnt out by the time they got through the American tour. And they really didn't push it, doing some European dates. But he also addressed, believe it or not, opening for Bon Jovi. Sam said it's probably what broke us up, which is not true, but he's just joking around. But he said it was a weird vibe because they'd play like outdoor stadiums, right? And it was like, I don't know, like forty to 50,000 people. But when they go on, they played to like a solid 10,000 that were in the front and really raring to go for Van Halen. And then he said the other 30,000 or so, well, I really didn't care about them. And then the funny thing was, he says that the 10,000 would leave after Van Halen was done, and then the 30,000 would go bananas for Bon Jovi, which I thought was kind of funny, right, Dave? Yeah, that was pretty, <laughs> that was pretty, uh, pretty unbelievable, uh, being a Van Halen fan. But the thing is, I mean, Bon Jovi worked hard. Yeah, yeah. Internationally. Which is why, even today, they have quite the international following. Oh, yeah, sure. So, like, every time I'm like, okay, you know, I hear people, and I'm not ranking on you or anything like that, mm -hmm. but every time I hear people like, oh, I can't believe, you know, Van Halen opened up for Bon Jovi, hey, they worked it, and they kept it up. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's, and that's why Van Halen was opening for them, because they did not consistently tour internationally. I mean, they, it's almost like they barely toured. Right. Internationally. Right. So now the interesting thing here was uh, Sammy gave uh, John Bon Jovi and the rest of the gang a lot of credit. He said they worked the world. He said, if you really want to be an international band, you got to put the time in. you got to put the effort in. And the band, Bon Jovi, really did do that. And I give credit to John and also Doc McGee. He told them, I'm going to make you global. And he really did that. And to this day, they're still playing large venues throughout the world. He also said that it's a little different today because you say, like, well, how could the circle play South America if they've never been there? Who the hell knows the circle? Well, the Internet. People can see the band via the Internet. There's a lot more exposure. And Sam said they had a demand 
for the circle to go to South America or else they wouldn't go. I mean, they were obviously demanded there and they were excited about them coming and Sam was excited to come. Now, the other thing he mentioned is, you know, like every other band in America, they're in a pickle because now not only did their South American tour get canceled, their U.S. tour for the summer is in jeopardy right now on multiple levels. Let's start with the first level. Number one, Whitesnake dropped out, Dave. David Coverdale is undergoing surgery for a bilateral inguinal hernia, if I'm saying that correctly. But he's having surgery. He's got a hernia. He got a fucking hernia. That's right. So he's out. White Snake is out. That is huge. That leaves a massive hole in that tour. And Sammy's going to need a middle headliner there. So the funny thing was is Eddie was a bit of a wise guy. Eddie was very good in this interview. And he said, tell you what. Why don't you call Roth? <laughs> Which I thought was a good idea because David Lee Roth, number one, is out there. Okay, but I think he's actually double booked. We'll get into that later because he added some extra dates with Kiss. Who knows if any of these goddamn tours are going to happen? Most likely not. They're all going to be pushed to next year. But the tour is supposed to go from July through September. And Sam at this time was saying, hey, listen, we'll have to take the first part and move it to the end and i don't know we'll go august september october if we can and he's he's talking about possibly jostling things around if they can rebook the first third of the tour they don't have someone to replace white snake right now when he heard eddie's suggestion of dave sammy suggested to eddie goes why don't you give him a call and eddie's like i don't even know the guy <laughs> and then mike said come on eddie we'll give you a piece of the action which i thought was funny so now this is where it got really funny they mentioned something about like, oh, I hear, uh, I hear you're already part of that tour, Michael Anthony, and and and, uh, and Sammy was like, yeah, I heard the background vocals were the best part of Dave's show, which is, ooh, that's a little shot and jab to the side. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. And, and Michael Anthony <laughs> said, I knew that, that kind of sounded familiar to me. <laughs> so so true. So, so yeah, true. It's true. And then Sammy said, hey, at least he's out there trying to get something going. And he said, hey, maybe he's the guy. And it's, I think it's so funny that Sammy calls him Diamond. I love that. He's like, it reminds me of... When Apollo Creed used to call Rocky Stallion, I thought that was kind of funny. He has that sort of like, you know, that boxer mentality. You know, Sammy likes to box, but he kind of talks trash and this and that. I thought that's kind of funny. But then he got into the Sam and Dave tour a little bit. He says, let me tell you something about the Sam and Dave tour from 2002. He says, that was a very successful tour financially. He says, it just got ugly and, and Dave wasn't really user friendly. And then, you know, obviously... Eddie said, hey, listen to Michael Anthony, have you heard anything from the Van Halen camp? What's going on? He said, it's crickets over there, Eddie. They're in their own bubble. He asked him if he heard any of the Wolfie clips on the Internet that from Wolfie's solo album that he's been teasing. And, and Sammy said, you know what? I heard his stuff on the Internet, and it sounds fucking good. He goes, it could really be a good record. You know, then he got back to Van Halen, and he said to Michael Anthony, he says, I, you know, what's going on? Like, I don't understand. What is with the secrecy with the brothers? And he says, they never wanted to do anything the, with the fans. He says, they always wanted to be a mysterious band like Led Zeppelin. Everything they do, they would ask, what would Zeppelin do? And they never wanted to document anything like a live album or a live tour. But he said, and this is a quote from Michael Anthony, the tapes are out there, somebody has it. Like he's saying that people have 
the tapes, the reels, the recordings, soundboard of the makings of a Van Halen live album. And, you know, it's all a matter of red tape of getting it out there. Now, the funny thing is, Sammy came in and he was talking about the Van Halen bootlegs. He goes, you know what? I dig the old quality of the bootlegs. He said it's very rock and roll. And they started talking about bootlegs. And that was kind of an interesting exchange, but the most interesting exchange. And boy, this actually fit perfectly in with this episode. So we talked about the Ted Templeman book, which is Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life and Music by Greg Renoff and Ted Templeman. That is the focus of our episode here. We're you know going to be doing a whole episode here focused on that book where we interview Greg and Dave and I do a deep dive on the whole book. All the Van Halen parts, of course. He spoke to Ted about the book. Sammy spoke to Ted about the book. And Ted said, I should have proofread it more. Now it's done and I cringe a little bit. Now that's nothing against Greg. He's not talking about Greg's writing. Greg actually is a very good writer. He did a great job. But I think he's a little concerned about like what he said in the book. When asked about Ted, Sammy Hagar said he's more private than Ed and Al put together. He says that's a recluse right there. What did you make of that comment, Dave? I was surprised because there really wasn't any dirt in Ted's book. I don't think there's dirt in Ted's book. Dirt is like real grungy shit. But what Ted did do was be very honest about the situation. Everything in Ted's book about Van Halen is about the recordings. So obviously Ted is the producer. He's not going to talk about crazy shit on the road and, you know, little in-between things with Ed and Dave. He's talking about what happened in relation to the recording. Now, there is a lot of meat on that bone. I'll tell you that much. If you're interested in that stuff, and as we are, we have plenty to talk about because this episode is packed full of that stuff. Our discussion is lengthy. Our interview with Greg is lengthy. And there's a lot of enriched stuff. So there is, I wouldn't call that stuff dirt. It's just straightforward what was going on behind the scenes, though. And that's definitely revealing, no? Yeah, it is. But I don't know, maybe because Ted's such a private guy, even when he did tell, he's like, oh, I don't know if I should have spoken about that. Yeah, exactly. You know? But Sammy's like... Sammy's the wrong guy to have that conversation oh, with. Oh, for because, sure. Because, like, Sam let it all hang out. Oh, and, boy, yeah. Uh, but anyway, it's an interesting conversation they had. Then Eddie brought up about Sammy being talked about as Dave's replacement back in 77 in the book. And we'll get all into this later on in the episode where Ted talks about Dave as, I don't know if this guy's going to cut it on vocals, and he's thinking about Sam because he had just worked with him in Montrose, and Sammy was out of Montrose at that time. Sammy says, that is so crazy. And Michael Anthony says, I remember him talking to Ed and Al and me about it. And the interesting thing is, in the book, he doesn't really say he talked to the band. He said he talked to Don Landy, right, Dave? Yeah, I was surprised to hear Mike say that yeah. because I thought he had pretty much kept it to himself and he never told anybody about it. And he was glad he didn't because it would have been a huge mistake if he had dropped out Dave. And he certainly never told Sam. Sam had no idea about that until years later. Absolutely. That's funny. This is another interesting point that came up in Eddie's conversation. We, they were talking about how Sam fell into Van Halen and we go into deep discussions about this. 
So Sammy said, I had just finished my VOA record, and I came home from the tour, and I was writing for the next record. Now, we're like about three or four months into 1985 at this point. Dave has already released Crazy from the Heat. It's already a hit. He's got singles, California Girls, just a gigolo around, maybe even later, like into the summer, early summer, late spring of 1985, and he says here, I finished the VOA record, came home from the tour, and was writing for the next record. This is a quote from Sam. We're talking every day, meaning him and Ted. I was looking to take my time and take a big break, and Ted calls me and says, Dave left the band. And I looked at my wife, and I said, they're going to call me. When he says his wife, he means Betsy, his first wife. And he says, I told Ted that, and within two days, Ed called me. The whole time I worked with Ted, he never said that to me about joining the band, meaning back in 77. So when he's saying he worked with Ted all through the VOA album, he never even mentioned, hey, by the way, you know, I was considering you for replacing Roth and Van Halen. So that was always a shock to him. And that's interesting because I seem to remember that when he tells the story about when he met Ed at the auto place. He didn't meet him there. He didn't meet him there. What happened oh, was... Oh, no, you're right. I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. I apologize. Number. Yeah. Right. But he had spoken to the guy. Mm-hmm. And the, the guy had told him that he had spoken to Ed. Right. So he knew he knew his name had gotten thrown around. And then he had told his wife... Right. They're going to call uh, him. Those guys are going to call yeah, him. Yeah, right. So, right. so my question to Sam is, so you said that to your wife twice? Right. Or you're not quite sure... When you heard it, did right. Ted Templeman tell you? No, he said. Oh, wait or a did, second. Or did or did Claudio, the auto guy? Well, that's tell th- this you. is this is my whole point, and this and we get into this in our discussion, and we get into it with Greg. This is where I think there's some funny, funny memories going on because Sammy says straight out that Ted told him. Now, Ted didn't tell him, oh, by the way, uh, David Lee Roth, Van Halen, you might want to give Ed a call. Uh, he didn't say that. He said it in passing. And Greg, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it later, but Greg, you know, backs that up. It wasn't like, you know, he was, oh, here's an opportunity. But at the same time, you know, I mean, Sam is pretty sharp. And I get into this whole thing. I don't really believe the whole Claudio story anymore. I think that's all made up. And I think it's a PR cover-up. That's we'll get into that later. But anyway, so also part of this interview, <laughs> I know. Also part of this interview, also part of this interview, what they were talking about because Eddie had read the Ted Templeman book, so this was important to talk about. He was talking about when Eddie Van Halen opened up Fifty One Fifty back in. I guess, 83, his own studio. And Michael Anthony said, Ed built his sanctuary, but he goes, we wouldn't see Don and Ed for weeks at a time. Who knows what was going on? And then he said, well, we kind of know what was going on. What did you make of that, Dave? I don't know. Maybe he means he saw the writing on the wall. I don't know. Like, he knew, like, I think... You know, some people were smart enough to see right. what was going on. Right, That yeah. this was Ed making a power play. Yeah, oh, totally, yeah. 
Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's that's pretty much what he was saying. Right. And then he kind of went into Sammy went into the whole 1984 thing. Now he says, when I heard Jump on the radio, these guys had a real pop hit, and they were not a pop band. It was so rare for a rowdy rock band like Van Halen to have a pop hit like that. He says we all wanted a pop hit without copping out, and Jump was brilliant. Now. I would imagine when I heard this quote, I said, Dave's blood is going to boil over this. <laughs> and I was like, because Sammy was always against Jump. And if you actually technically look at it, Sammy didn't embrace singing Jump until the third tour. Now, granted, he played Jump at a few shows on the 5150 tour in 1986, but he used to bring a guy on stage to sing with him. We'll get into that later in the news where he talks about that, but now he's praising Jump as being brilliant. And he didn't embrace it until the 1991, 92 uh, for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge Tour where they used to play it back-to-back with Top of the World, which was always a great pairing because the intro riff to Top of the World is the outro riff to Jump, so I thought that was brilliant. But what did you make of this comment, Dave? Oh, please, Sam is rewriting history. He's like, oh, yeah, it was a great pop song, and that's why I would sing it. And it was like, Sam, like, you you totally resisted singing it. Like, you resisted most of the Dave era catalog. I know, I know. He would always drag somebody up on stage to sing it with him, which so much so ticked off the rest of the band that they told him either stop doing that or don't sing it. So he chose not to sing it. Right. So they stopped doing it on the 5150 tour. They didn't do it on the OU812 tour. No, no. I mean, so he's kind of like, oh, yeah, it was a great pop song, so I sang it. No, you didn't, Sam. Not for years. I know. So, again, it's Sam's half-ass memory rewriting thing. Always. Better suit him. He should work for the White House, this guy. That'd be perfect. So now the funny thing is, Eddie got into Jump. Now, Eddie has a big problem with Jump. He didn't like Jump. He feels like it killed the band, this whole thing, whatever. So Michael, yeah, he really does not oh, like that he, song. he goes hard. I mean, Eddie goes hard. He talks about Eddie's perspective, and he's entitled to it, whatever. He says the first four Van Halen albums, Van Halen 1, 2, Women and Children First, and Fair Warning, are perfect. He says they're perfect. Then he says things started to break down with Diver Down and then fully broke down in 1984. I do not know how anybody who is a Van Halen fan could say that. I really, really don't. I mean, the sales between Diver Down and 1984 combined is something over 16 million. Co- I mean, you got to be kidding me with that. I, I don't want to hear that shit. That's absolute bullshit. But whatever. That's his perspective. He's entitled to his opinion, but yeah, I'm always surprised right. when he treats like 1984. Right. The like end this, of the world. Yeah, it was the, okay. Yeah, the end I of mean, the world. Let's go back to 1984, because Dave and I were there, okay? Jump, it's not like it was so shocking. It was 1984. Yes, was it poppy? Absolutely. But everything was sort of meshed together. We've talked about this before. The... Charts were a mix of like Bruce Springsteen with Cindy Lauper with Michael Jackson with Huey Lewis with Van Halen. Like everything was sort of like all together. Whereas today's world, you got rock over here, you got heavy metal over there, you got 
rap over there, you got pop over there. I mean, it's, it's, it wasn't as much of a salad as it was back in 84, where everything was sort of in the pop lexicon. Now, let's be honest, okay? I don't know how Jump didn't stand out. At, I mean, it's an anthem. It was a number one hit, five weeks at number one. It is 35 years later, okay? That song, actually, it's more than 35 years later, 36 years later, that song is still played constantly every day at every stadium at every sporting event it's look it's an anthem anyway eddie trunk goes on this whole jump rant and he asked michael anthony what did you think of jump michael anthony says i loved it i thought it was fresh i thought it was different then they asked sammy he says well jump had to be done meaning in concert in the set list because it was such a hit but lyrically it was silly it was a fun happy pop song and then he says i'll wait i didn't like that song which I think, actually, Sammy would sound incredible on All Way with his vocals. I don't know why he yeah, never... True. I don't know why he never tried to do that one. He could have killed that song. Then he starts getting into a tirade. And this is what kind of made pressure around the world news. And by the way, I want to say, before Eddie Trunk got his hands on this, my interview with Sammy addresses this in 2018. If you go back to October... 2018, my interview with Sam on this podcast, okay, addresses this fully. And they act like this is brand new news out of, out of uh, Sammy Hagar. Go check it out, folks. I'll even tell you what episode it was. I have to look it up, but it's back in... Yeah, could you, t- could you tell me, please? Because I don't listen to my own work. <laughs> the size cock that you are cannot be expressed. So anyway, <laughs> so anyway, so listen to me. He says, this is Sammy Hagar. Everybody blames me for the keyboard era of Van Halen. I didn't do any of that. That's what Eddie did. He liked playing keyboards. And he was good at it. And then Michael Anthony stepped in and said, once Ed got into that keyboard thing, he rarely picked up his guitar for a while. He said he would be playing keyboards all the time. That's from Michael Anthony. Then Sammy Hagar said, I sang to what he gave me. And I could sing to any damn thing, which is a cocky comment, but also true. He says he'd play a keyboard tune and Valerie would come down and validate it, like when he wrote When It's Love. And then he said, listen, it was not me whatsoever. I just went along with what we had. I'm a guitar player. And he says, like something like, finish what you started, I think he used as an example. He said, that's like something that, that's right up my alley, you know. I went along with what we had. And then he talked about Eddie's left hand, and he says he's got a left hand that has a funky quality to it like Bootsy Collins on the bass. Now, one thing that Sam has never done is criticize or crush Eddie Van Halen's musicality. He will stand the test of time and say that man is a musical fucking genius, and he is. And just recently, Dave, on Eddie Trunk's top five guitarists of all time. Okay, he did a top five guitarist of all time. Not definitive, but like, who's your top five guitarist of all time? And Eddie Van Halen was on the top of like almost everybody's list. It was unbelievable. Like undeniable, more than Hendrix, more than anybody. Just personally, can you guess my top five, Dave? Take a, See if you can, you don't have to put them in order. Take a guess my top five. I sent it into uh, Eddie. Of guitarists? Mm-hmm. Well, Eddie Van mm-hmm. Halen. Sure. Joe Satriani. Absolutely. Steve Vai. Absolutely. This is when it gets a little tricky. Of all time. 
of all time. My favorites. Keith Richards. No. No. Love the Stones, but I'm talking about guitarists. Okay. Jimmy Page. Absolutely. And you got one more. You know what it is. Come on now. Think, Dave. He's a guy we both absolutely love. Oh, man. I we can't went, handle the... Pr- we went together to go see a monumental show together to see this guy. I can't handle the pressure. Oh, um, wow, you are fucking old. <laughs> <laughs> it is as obvious as my bald head. Go ahead. Come on. Oh, I feel... Oh, man. The silence is deafening. <laughs> Oh, I, I'm trying, Clapton. Now, now, now I'm like, Clapton. I'm trying to think, who, who have I seen you with? That, I've not seen Clapton with, oh, with Cream. We went right. to see yeah. Cream together. Cream. Come on. Okay. All right. Okay. Cre- okay. Clapton. That was hands down just phenomenal. So that was my top five. Do you have a top five? What would your be t- your top five? Top five guitarists of all time? Yeah. Mm, let's see. Well, Eddie Van Halen, of course. Mm-hmm. Eric Clapton is there if you stop at about 1970. The years don't matter. We're talking about of all time. Okay. You're in, uh, it's, and it's your personal favorites. It's not like who is the definitive best. It is who your favorites are. So I have to put Chris Isaac's guitarist on there. Jimmy Wilsey. James Calvin Wilsey. Okay. He's one of my favorites of all time. Right. Who else? Say Mike Nesmith and you lose a nut. Life's an adventure, and it's waiting. Hi, this is Merrill Hodge. At ST Bank, they know life's for the living. That's why ST Bank offers solutions to help you get the most out of it. Whether you're investing in your home, planning for the future, or just making the most of every day, ST Bank is here to help. Learn how ST Bank can help you live the life you want at stbank.com. Member FDIC. ST Bank was ranked number one in customer satisfaction with retail banking in Pennsylvania by JD Power. For JD Power 2022 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. This Pride, everyone's coming through for the Trevor Project on YouTube Shorts. Join us! Create a short showing how you're stepping out for Pride using the hashtag YouTube Pride Challenge. Come through for Pride on YouTube Shorts. Visit youtube.com backslash pride. No, he's not as a guitarist. Not as a guitarist. As a performer and a songwriter, there you go. yes. Okay. But not as a guitarist. Jimmy Page would be on that list. Okay, there you go. Man, there's, there's got to be... Um... Clapton doesn't make the list? No, I said Clapton. Oh, you did? List, okay. It, so you have Page, yeah, you have Clapton, Clap- you have Eddie Van Halen like me. So that's three. You got the Chris Isaac guy. And then who's the fifth? Uh, who is the fifth? Wow, that's a good question. Wow. I'm surprised uh... you didn't throw one of your blues guys in there like... You know, I'm trying to think of like Beck? one of the blues... I I, uh, I I love Jeff Beck with the Yardbirds. Yeah, yeah. Well, that we counts. can throw so that there in there. All right, there Jeff you go. Beck with the Yardbirds. Jeff Beck with the Yardbirds. Okay, good. In continuing with this interview with Eddie Trunk, he talked about season five coming up for the Rock and Roll Road Trip. We'll get to that later on in the news. His Vegas residency he addressed, and oh, God knows when this is going to happen, you know, and he did say it'll happen, we'll have to see when it happens. Prior, as we said in our last Van Halen news, it was supposed to be as a warm-up for this circle tour. It doesn't look like that's going to happen because it was supposed to happen in June. But the Vegas residency is supposed to be sort of a weekend event, and this sounds really interesting. Michael Anthony says, well, Sam, tell him what it's going to be like. This is not a show. It's a day-long event. They want it to be a full thing. And Sammy says, 
We're going to create an environment that you walk into and be transported to. He says they want to make it a full long weekend thing. He says doing the birthday bashes at Cabo changed my life and I want to bring the same vibe down to Vegas. That was really exciting to hear. And he said that they'll have all kinds of guests. It'll be different every time. And who's ever in town is going to be welcome to come on stage and perform with Sammy. And Michael Anthony was very excited about that. And then Michael Anthony also talked about doing something with a restaurant with his hot sauce, that which is sort of interesting. Says that's coming along somehow in the future. There's going to be some sort of tie-in with Mad Anthony's hot sauce. So what did you make of that thing? I don't know. His timing may be off now. <laughs> he may be. Yeah, I know. I know. Rethinking that decision. Absolutely. But I'd be very curious to see if he actually goes the restaurant route. That's a tough business. Yeah. You really got to know what you're doing. I right. mean, if he sold the hot sauce to restaurants and focused on that, yeah. I could see him doing that. You know, what he should but do I, is they should have Man Anthony's hot sauce at every Cabo Wabo. How about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, <laughs> totally. that's totally the way to go. But absolutely. yeah, if he's thinking about restaurants, I mean, that's interesting, but man, that's that's a tough business. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if, if we don't hear about that in the future because of what's happening now. Ah, of course, of course. So now Sammy Hagar dominating the Van Halen news this time out. Of course, we talked about earlier Sammy's tour, okay? We said Whitesnake is out, David Coverdale's getting operation for a hernia. Now, my question to you, Dave, is who do you think could fill that spot? Now, it's most likely not going to be David Lee Roth. That would be great, but because of his commitments, uh, this and that, who knows? But I was thinking... What about Joe Satriani? He's got a brand new album out. Why not put him in on that tour? What do you think of that? Or what about this, Dave? Doing a chicken foot set in the middle of that tour. That would be incredible. I was going to say Joe would only work if they did the chicken foot set. But honestly. Well, he could do a solo a, set. Yeah, No, no, no. I Like Joe does a solo set. Yeah. Sam does a solo set. Right. And, and wait, then, wait, 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 Dave. Wait, Dave. Joe is touring with Kenny Arnoff on drums, who played and filled in for Chad Smith on the second Chickenfoot tour. Right. Well, so then there you go. Yeah. So, I mean, that would work. But I, I mean, but, but let me put, let me be honest and put it to you this way: Does that have the muscle power of White Snake? I don't oh, know. I, I don't know. I, you know, listen. If you put Joe Satriani in there, and you know what, you finish his set. With like a three-song chicken foot thing, that would be cool. That would be, but that would be the only way it would work. Yeah, well, that would be the only way it would work. But look, I'm not overselling chicken foot either because I mean we like them, but it's not like there's tons of people out there. No, I know, and they've been gone. They've been gone a while. They have, and I mean not that there's tons of people going. Ooh, White Snake, but I mean, White Snake is definitely a bigger draw. Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that that would be the only way it would work is if they did Chicken Foot at the end. If not, and they're trying to get the same draw that they have with White Snake, I don't know that Joe is the guy. Yeah, well, we'll have to see about that. What about Extreme? They got a new album possibly coming out soon. Man, that's oh, that's even. I think that's even less of a draw. Oh, boy. Than All right. It, I'm not saying they're not a talented band. They're, they're a very talented band. But in terms of draw, I, I, I don't think so. Well, fantastic uh, I mean, live band, that's for sure. It's, it's, extreme live is fantastic. And what about what about this day? What about Wolfie? Oh, well, A, that's not going to happen. <laughs> 
and that's even less of a draw. Unless, so the only way this works is if he gets Dave and Extreme and Wolf. Right. Now, I don't know how you're going to get everybody to play six songs, but, <laughs> I mean, you know, that that's the everybody in Van Halen yeah. except for Ed and Al <laughs> tour. That's right, the Sands Halen tour part two. Right, but, you know, they really need to do something like that because once touring starts up again, yeah, it's not like people are going to be like, oh, let's go back because a lot of people aren't working. Right, So right. The, the concert industry is really going to suffer. So you're going to start seeing again a lot of these double and triple bills. Absolutely. So Sam really needs to find somebody. I mean, don't forget, I think, I mean, they had, was it Night Ranger? Yes, Night Ranger is shows. already on the bill. So that's not bad. That's decent. But they really need somebody else to slot it in. Of, um, speaking with, of White Snakes. Speaking of White Snakes. <laughs> speaking of White Snakes, slot it in. Well, listen, you know what? Here's my question. Why the fuck can't the circle go out with just Night Ranger? The two of them are phenomenal live bands. I saw a Night Ranger circle tour just last year. That was phenomenal. They both can play great sets. Sammy's got enough material. He can play for hours. I mean, like, why not just do that? They can, but they're not going to fill the venue size that they've committed to with the White Snake Tour. Yeah. That's why they need somebody else. I guess so. Move it into a smaller venue or something like that. Anyway, speaking of Sammy, he continues to dominate the news where he, Sammy and the Circle released a new song, sort of. They did a song on Instagram where they all perform in their homes on video, whatever, Zoom, Skype, whatever the fuck you call it, with a song called Funky Feng Shui. And here's a clip right here. I love the groove of this song. I thought this was fun. This is new. This song apparently came from a sound check jam that they used to do during, you know, sound check when they were on, on the last tour. And what do you think of this song, Dave? I thought it was cool. It was yeah. just a nice little, nice little jam, like right down to the basics, nothing fancy, right up Sam's alley. I thought Mike's bass on it was real oh I mean my he, God. I mean uh, you don't hear him play that funky too often. Never so I thought so good. he was really good. And I I mean this was like the perfect way to do that song. This song like totally lent itself to just four guys screwing around and just throwing it together. So for what it was, it was great. Absolutely. Absolutely. They also did a second version where they did Won't Get Fooled Again. Now, the, the Funky Feng Shui was only like a minute and 19 seconds. Then they did a second one where they also were all in their homes via Skype or Zoom or whatever doing Won't Get Fooled Again, which was a little longer. It was two minutes and 16 seconds. And boy, did you get some nice, thick Michael Anthony bass and his background vocals. Holy cow. I love this. <laughs>
you something. These two Instagram things just goes to prove how tight this band is and how very powerful and underrated they are. And Vic is a monster on guitar. Wow, they really are unbelievable. Sammy's vocals were spot on. Michael Anthony's backgrounds were so good and strong with Sam's. What did you think? It won't get fooled again. Loved it. I mean, it just jamming the heck out of it. I mean, it's just fun. I, I like what they're doing. It's just a lot of fun. Absolutely. And Sam recorded the vocal in his bathroom. I thought that was pretty funny. Oh, God. Incredible. And, and look, let me tell you something. It is incredible how Sammy can just sound amazing raw. He reminds me of Don Henley. Don Henley, when he sings, like, have you ever heard him just sing right out, like, without uh, without the studio and effects in it? Unbelievable. Guy sounds like the fucking record. Unbelievable. Sammy is very much like that. He's very, very rawly talented and actually mentioned in the Ted Templeman book. Wow. Ted really goes out of his way to say, I think one of the quotes that he said about Sammy was, you could wake up Sammy from bed and put a microphone in front of his face and he'll sound amazing. That's a gift. It's a talent for sure, but it's also a gift. It's really just incredible the way he sings. It's just unbelievable. He's really talented. Now, also, Sammy did another video. Now, this one was a little different. He wasn't with the circles by himself playing acoustic. When Bill Withers died, the artist who played Ain't No Sunshine, known for that song, Ain't No Sunshine, when she's gone, Sammy sang this on guitar playing a blues acoustic guitar, which I thought sounded amazing. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. It's not warm when she's away Ain't no sunshine when she's gone In this house ain't no home Anytime she goes away Sang it beautifully and really showed his raw talent. This guy really has some pipes on him. And, oh my God, it's 72 years old. Wow, right, Dave? I mean, he really can just rip Sammy. Also, in the video, showed that he shaved his beard. And it's so funny. When he interviewed with Eddie Trunk, he says, I shaved my beard. He goes, I fucked up. I haven't shaved my beard in 20 years. And it's all white underneath, brother. He goes, <laughs> he says, I'm looking rough. I'm hiding out. Which I thought was kind of funny. What did you think of that, Dave? I love the version of the Bill Withers song. Yeah. I thought that was really a really nice tribute. Very right. well done. Absolutely. Sammy is also doing season five of Rock and Roll Road Trip on Access TV, the channel that no one can get unless you're on the fucking moon or if you're uh, Midwest Run and figure out a way to get it. So unbelievable. He has a season five lineup of Def Leppard, Rob Thomas of Matchbox 20, Ted Nugent, Big and Rich, Brian May from Queen, Joe Walsh of the Eagles, Tanya Tucker, and Gary Sharon, Dave, which I'm really excited about. He also has Shaquille O'Neal on there, the basketball player. I don't know why he's there, but Gary Sharon, boy, would I love to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. And yeah, you thing, know they're going to be comparing notes to those two guys. Oh, my God. And one thing I always found interesting that Sammy said, I mean, he, he actually is very nice to Gary. They got along well. If I remember, oh, in 2001, they joined each other on stage. I think it was in New York. When Gary jumped on stage with Sam, and what did they sing, Dave? They sang a couple Van Halen songs together or something? This was on the uh, the Sans Halen tour? No, 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 no. This is like before the Sans Halen tour. 
This was like some sort of like 9-11 benefit. I think it was at Irving Plaza in Manhattan. And Sammy was doing something for the firefighters or something. And Gary jumped on stage. It was something like that. I have to that look. was, yeah. I think that was the last sh- No, you know what that was? That was... They- they were supposed to do a Sam and Dave tour in New York. Okay. They didn't. Right. So Sam said, to be a well, Jones Beach. Uh, right. And so Sam said, well, I'm just going to do a show in New York and, you know, do it as a tribute to 9-11, the firefighters and the first responders and the police and all that. And Gary did come out for that show. Oh, that's what uh, it was. Yeah. And like he had come out in Boston at the... Sam and Dave tour, I think it was, you know, like a few nights before that. Okay, right. Uh, so, right. He, so he came back again yeah. and, and did that again, if my memory is serving me correctly and on how I, that went down. If I remember correctly, Dave and Sam were supposed to play Jones Beach, and they were fighting over who was going to headline, right? And then they ended up canceling the fucking gig over it. It was ridiculous. Right, because they, because it was supposed to be like every, every other show was the quote-unquote opening act. Right, it was the they were supposed uh, to flip back then and I forth. Think, yeah. Right, and then I I forget who it was, but you know whoever it was in New York did not want to be the opening act, even though it was their turn. So like we, children, they just didn't do the show. At if all. I remember correctly, it was Dave. <laughs> I I think you're right, but I can't swear to it on a statue. That's right. I mean, this is the whole ridiculousness of that tour. Oh yeah. But anyway, yeah. Yes. So that's what happens, which was usually unusual for him because he does not like to play New York because yeah. he doesn't really sell out a lot in New York. But he, you know, he did it. He did it for you know the firefighters and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. And it was it was a nice little show at, at Irving Plaza. Absolutely fantastic. Interesting enough, the season five of Rock and Roll Road Trip will also have some conversation with some jam sessions. Now, I always found it interesting that Sammy Hagar would always say that Van Halen 3 was compiled of the rejects from Balance. Do you remember that quote, Dave? Kind of, sort of, but I think, I don't know if that's like Sam talking smack or not. I don't know, but that's what, I remember when he said, when he was addressing Van Halen 3, he says, I heard all those songs, they were the rejects from Balance. Well, if he's saying that Ed was recycling old riffs, that right. doesn't surprise well, me at all. Well, that's normal, but right. he also said that it was stuff that I guess he poo-pooed or passed on. I don't know if that's so correct, but, you know, that's what he said. I mean, you know, whatever. I'm sure there were at least a couple of songs like that. Right. I don't doubt that for a second. Right, right. So now also, Sam again, doing more news here. He talked about the 5150 tour to Ultimate Classic Rock with this guy, Matt Wardlaw. Now, the interesting thing is I bring this up because they had put this up on the site, and I wanted to address this because we never really talked about this, and I thought this was interesting because it kind of coincides with our conversation about the song Jump. So now the 5150 tour, which started in March, and they started the tour literally like days before the album came out. I mean, we've talked about the 5150 tour, like I just said earlier in this podcast, that was the first episode we talked about the 5150 album. It was the 30th anniversary. But it was really interesting because Jump is their biggest song. They're coming off 1984. It's 1986, and they're doing it in concert in a weird way. Sammy said, this is a quote, I was going to bring a guy on stage and up to sing. I wasn't going to sing it myself. He kind of refused to sing Jump. 
But then he says, looking back now at the man of 72 that he is, right? He looks back and he says, it was stupid, even though it worked and we were extremely successful. But it was stupid that we rebelled against our past. But you know, when you're rich and famous rock stars and young and really in the middle of it, you make some stupid mistakes and ironically, you get away with it half the time, which makes you even stupider. And I'm talking about myself now because it worked. And he said that he was actually kind of freaked a little bit because they had planned to go out and play the entire 5150 album with the exception of Inside. Okay, so that's eight brand new songs, which is unheard of. Even in today's world, unheard of. I mean, this band, which has an entire reputation and catalog, is basically going to ignore it with the exception of two songs and go out and play eight songs from the new album. That was almost suicide. Now, Sammy Hagar says this. These people, meaning the audience, are expecting some old Van Halen and some old Sammy Hagar because that's who sold it out, meaning that's how they sold out the tickets. But it worked. And I just remember opening with You Really Got Me and it was a freaking barricade that came down and it was like, okay, the nerves are gone. But I was a wreck, man. I was really a wreck. I thought, man... This could bomb. Now, I thought that was very adult of him and interesting that he looked back with that perspective because one thing I thought that was incredible, I started looking back in time, David. The police never played solo sing songs. Black Sabbath never played solo Ozzy songs or solo Dio songs. Motley Crue never played solo Vince Neil songs. And Van Halen never played solo David Lee Roth songs. So what makes Sammy Hagar think that he could come into Van Halen and play solo Sammy Hagar songs? I thought that was kind of ballsy at the time. You know, it was really the Sammy Hagar show. I mean, he's bringing in solo oh, songs. Totally. He's not doing the old catalog. No. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, 30, 40 years later, he finally acknowledges that I and realizes credit. that you know, how lucky the guy was that they actually got away with oh, what totally. they did during the 5150 tour. I mean, and they played well, too. Don't get me wrong. Oh, no. I mean, they're playing oh, phenomenal. as a yeah. band was was phenomenal. But, I mean, they didn't do a lot of songs. Yeah, like the abandonment of the catalog is, well, something we complain about frequently. Yeah. But it's just amazing, amazing how they got away with it back then. But you know what? Kudos to Sam. Better late than never. Oh, yeah. I'll give him full credit on this. He was a man. He stepped up to the plate. And he answered the questions. So that's just for sure. Moving on, Wolfie. My God, Dave, this guy is continuing to tease this album. But I tell you, the tease is good. So Wolfie teased his album again, and here's a new clip. <laughs> Dude, let me tell you something. This stuff sounds killer. I love the vibe. I think the record's going to be great. My only concern is the singing. Does he have the chops to sing? We know he has the musical chops, but we don't know what kind of vocalist he's going to be. Should he have gotten a vocalist? Should he have done an instrumental album? I don't know. What do you think? Patience, my friend. Patience. <laughs> okay. Don't... I mean, I love, I like the musical clips, but we'll see what happens. Right. I, I don't know. I'm... I hope we hear something by the end of the year. That would be lovely. 
Well, let me ask you this. I have a question for you. Will yeah. we see the David Lee Roth solo album that's in the can or the Wolfie album first? Wow. <laughs> My gut tells me it's going to be the David Lee Roth album. Really? Because we keep waiting on the Wolf album. But the thing is, Wolf at least has a record label. Yeah. No, that's... So he's, that, yeah. he's, got, he's got that more in, in his corner. Man, you know what? I'm going to go all in on Dave. Okay. Which means Wolf will come out first. Right, right. I never, I never gamble on the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, I happen to think it's going to be Wolf because he has a record label to answer to. So let's be honest. You know more than anybody, Dave. You sign a contract – you owe people. You know what I'm saying? He's got uh, somebody to answer to now. He's not just making an album and doing what he wants. You've already signed a contract with a label. Label's going to expect. So they got to have some sort of plan. David Lee Ross is not on a label. Whatever he's going to do with that, I have no idea. But we'll have to see. Plus, I, uh, I'm something tells me. Dave wants to change things around. I don't know, like, if John 5 is going to be on the album now. Like, I don't know. It's, like, a little weird. All of a sudden, I'm sensing there's a distancing between Dave and John 5. I don't know that for a fact, but I'm just getting, picking up the vibes from some of the comments that have been said in the interviews. We'll have to see. But We shall see. We shall, we shall see. see. Also, I have a feeling this coronavirus thing is going to push Wolfie's thing into 2021. I, I really have a bad feeling about that. But that, I mean, that's so long away. I mean, it's ridiculous. Well, I think if the wind blows the wrong way, it's going to push Wolf's album. <laughs> that's into true. That's true. Speaking of Wolf, oh boy, Dave, he stepped in it here. So Wolf on the 21st of March said, so it turns out I've already been social distancing my whole life. And he said sort of a quippy little funny little comment on twitter well this guy d miller and let's hope this is not dennis miller the comedian but he says your dad certainly has his output is just sad which is wrong to say i mean and my god eddie van halen really made his mark in the industry he's put out incredible amounts of guitar wizardry and albums and even if he retired right now no one should complain about that but and wolf took the bait, Dave. He took the bait. And he said, right? What a horrible person my dad is. He brought joy to no one. 40 plus years in the business just isn't enough. He must only exist to give me things. How dare he have a life of his own? He deserves no breaks and constant hatred. Who's with me? And then he has a clown emoji. Now, someone has to tell Wolf that he should not be answering internet trolls. What do you think, Dave? I think he should listen to his dad on that one. You know, when you're stuck at home all day with nothing to do, you, <laughs> you gotta exactly. find some, you gotta find some way to entertain yourself. I hear what that guy is saying. I mean, I wish Eddie would release more, but you know, I mean, look, what, what are you gonna do? It's Ed's life. He can do whatever the heck he wants. And I mean, certainly right now, he's just hanging loose and, you know, enjoying life. I mean, you know, apparently he's got some health issues. So, you know, let the guy, yeah, let the guy do what he wants. I mean, it's like, like it's, it's, some people have said, and I've read this, it's like, you know what? He doesn't owe us anything. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Yeah. And look, and look, if he needs, look, Ed needs to do what he's got to do. I mean, we all want more because we're greedy fucks. 
But if he needs time to heal himself, that's fine. If he wants to retire, it's fine. If he doesn't want to even announce that he's retired, it's, what are you going to do? I mean, he is what he is. He's the guitar legend. There's legends that have done one-fourth of what he's done and have such decorated pasts and reputations. But no one's going to wipe Ed away. And it's obviously clear when Eddie Trunk goes out and reaches out and and says, who's your top guitarist of all time? And Eddie hasn't released a, an album in many, many years, and everybody is putting him to the top of the list that says something. I mean, obviously he's a legend. So we just want him to be healthy and happy, and as long as he's okay, we're good. Now, interesting enough, despite the coronavirus, Dave, David Lee Roth has added more dates to his time with Kiss. He's supposed to. We don't know if this is going to happen. But he's supposed to do some European dates where he's going to go to Sweden and Finland and Spain and Italy with Kiss from June 25th to July 13th. And then, of course, he's going to do the leg with them in the United States from August 28th in Burgestown, PA, to October 2nd in Fort Worth, Texas. But we shall see what's going to happen with that. We're also going to see what happens with his Vegas residency. Dave and I saw his last show there. He's supposed to go back in March. Obviously, that got rescheduled. But what do you think, Dave? you think we'll ever see him return to the stage in 2020? I'm trying to think if I'm going to see anybody back on the stage I know, in 2020. I know. He'll resume with Kiss one way or the other, I think. So yeah. the Vegas, I mean, he'll, he'll squeeze some shows in there, I'm sure. He'll be back. I mean, he listen, he got good reviews. He was on a roll. He's got the itch. So, you know, keep on going while you can. Absolutely. And Steve Vai, Dave, during the corona quarantine, has been on Facebook Live twice a week. He's going on there over an hour each time answering questions. So do yourself a favor and log on to his Facebook and check him out. He was also in Guitar World in a interview for an article and he said that the guitar always felt magic to me it was a gateway to my imagination that was a takeaway quote from that when asking about his time with Roth and Whitesnake he says I wouldn't trade those experiences for anything but as I was going through it all I saw how easy it was to get wrapped up in creating an identity for yourself from it I'm a rock star I'm playing arenas I'm winning the polls. I'm making so much money. It is who I am. And I'm going to hold on to this forever. That always seemed like insane thinking to me. Now, did I enjoy it? Sure. But I also knew it wasn't what I was going to do all my life because the music I had in me had to come out. Otherwise, my career would be an epic fail. What do you make of that comment? Not sure what to say about that. <laughs> yes, uh, I mean epic fail. I mean, uh, you know, that's <laughs> that's uh, interesting. Heavy words, heavy words. And wrapping up Van Halen news, a Alex Van Halen interview from 1981 was released from the Tapes Archive, and that is thetapesarchive.com. It is an interview with Mark Allen. And it's like 32 minutes long. You can check it out at thetapesarchive.com. It's also on the Van Halen News Desk. You know, in there, Alex jokes around about all kinds of stuff. He talks about the brown M&Ms, and there's a quick little quippy thing. He says, the brown ones taste different. They contain more chocolate. The green ones and the yellow ones are much more refreshing. He's being a wise-ass there, obviously. What do you make of Alex and his little quips, Dave? He was just say, towing the corporate line, but 
you know, like he wouldn't give a straight answer about the M&Ms. And he was like, yeah, you know, we just do what we want and, and yada, yada, yada. And it was just like all the, like the, like the cool rock star answers, you know. Hindsight's always twenty twenty. So in retrospect, you knew where he was coming from and what he was saying. But I, I, I wasn't all that impressed in the interview, maybe because, you know, I know what I know now and I'm sitting there going, yeah, whatever, you're, you're full of garbage. <laughs> so <laughs> That's true. I, I think, I think knowing what I know now kind of taints me towards the interview. I mean, it was interesting to hear Al because you really don't hear him give a lot of interviews. Right. But it was just perpetuating the Van Halen myth. Of course, of course. Well, that wraps up Van Halen News. And that's the way it is. Good night. And we are on to our incredible full-length episode of Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life and music, the new book by Greg Renoff and Ted Templeman. Dave and I do a deep dive discussion on this incredible tomb. We focus on the Van Halen parts. God knows Ted Templeman has a big career, but his career is so big, the book is 400 and some odd pages long, but we focus on the Van Halen stuff. We discuss that in depth. We also do a very detailed interview with Greg Renoff where we comb over every little hair regarding Van Halen. But before we do that, we got some mailbag to get through. And that's all coming up next. Take a listen. I gotta, I gotta go, man. I gotta, you know, gotta be active, gotta accomplish something. I don't know. You know, gotta be a shining example. I'm not sure of what, you know, <laughs> but we gotta go. And, uh, things were just starting to slow down with the band, you know. It was just, Take time, you know, take more time. We're going to go in the studio for a year. The studio for a year? I don't I can't stand the inside of the studio anyways from the beginning, you know. Mess up my tan. <laughs> if you need a dose of VH, get a taste of the closest thing. Romeo Delight, the ultimate Van Halen tribute band. Playing all the hits from the David Lee Roth era. First classic six albums plus deep cuts. Some of which have never been played live before by the band. They even throw in popular tracks from the Sammy Hagar era and solo hits. The most viewed Van Halen tribute band on YouTube. Romeo Delight. Doing customized recreations of staging instruments and costumes from the classic Van Halen era. They even perform entire Van Halen albums in sequence. Romeo Delight plays theaters, casinos, summer indoor and outdoor festivals, and special events. They're also available for private parties. To contact them, call Bud Blanche at 215-704-5144. That's 215-704-5144. Or via email at sonicparade1 at yahoo.com. Romeo Delight, the ultimate Van Halen tribute band. This is Mrs. Money, and you're listening to Dave and Dave Unchained. Cheers, Marconi. Need a laugh? Check out the Funny How Comedy Podcast, which focuses on upbeat conversations with legendary comedians. It's free on Spreaker and iTunes. Check us out on Facebook at Funny How Comedy Podcast, on Twitter at Funny How Podcast, on Instagram at Funny How Comedy Podcast, or email us at Funny How Comedy Podcast at gmail.com. Everybody was starting to get married, and everybody was starting to get their girlfriends, you know, and everybody was starting like this. We would come off the road, you know, from the band. 
you know, I'm always traveling, you know, I'm always either on the road or I'm off in the jungle somewhere, or, you know, or in the city, you know, I like, I'm always moving around. And I saw everybody doing it, so I didn't have a girlfriend, I thought, I'd give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> so I did the MTV commercials for the last weekend, you know. And there were two girls sitting there, you know, when we did the commercial, I looked over, and I'm right-handed, you know, and I looked over, and I said, you're it? <laughs> All right, Dave, you know what time it is. Life's an adventure, and it's waiting. Hi, this is Merrill Hodge. At S&T Bank, they know life's for the living. That's why S&T Bank offers solutions to help you get the most out of it. Whether you're investing in your home, planning for the future, or just making the most of every day, S&T Bank is here to help. Learn how S&T Bank can help you live the life you want at stbank.com. Member FDIC. S&T Bank was ranked number one in customer satisfaction with retail banking in Pennsylvania by J.D. Power. For J.D. Power 2022 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. This Pride, everyone's coming through for the Trevor Project on YouTube Shorts. Join us! Create a short showing how you're stepping up for Pride using the hashtag YouTube Pride Challenge. Come through for Pride on YouTube Shorts. Visit youtube.com backslash pride. It's time not to disappoint you with an apt introduction to the mailbag. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Welcome, my fans and friends. Welcome to another episode of Dave and Dave Unchained the mailbag portion of the segment. Life's an adventure, and it's waiting. Hi, this is Merrill Hodge. At S&T Bank, they know life's for the living. That's why S&T Bank offers solutions to help you get the most out of it. Whether you're investing in your home, planning for the future, or just making the most of every day, S&T Bank is here to help. Learn how S&T Bank can help you live the life you want at stbank.com. Member FDIC. S&T Bank was ranked number one in customer satisfaction with retail banking in Pennsylvania by J.D. Power. For J.D. Power 2022 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. This Pride, everyone's coming through for the Trevor Project on YouTube Shorts. Join us! Create a short showing how you're stepping up for Pride using the hashtag YouTube Pride Challenge. Come through for Pride on YouTube Shorts. Visit youtube.com backslash pride. We thank you for writing in, and we hope you are entertained with Dave's ever-so-quest as he continues to try and pronounce your names. And perhaps in another 52 episodes... He will attain that goal. But for now, we can only hope and pray. Your favorite band's about to play a sold-out show. You got in. Over here. With a friend and found a spot close enough to see the set list. They're definitely playing your song. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. You made it. Checked out of office to check into the sweet views of... This place where the kids aren't asking for the Wi-Fi. Mom, can we go to the pool? And when you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. That he at least gets through this podcast successfully. Wow, you really worked on this one. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to sing, so here I go. All right. Well, that's right. Well, I'm impressed. And it is mailbag time again. 
And okay, well, we got a nice mailbag here, and we're going to start off with Liddell Wallace, who is from the Van Halen mailing list, Dave. It was the old days of the Van Halen fans, the Van Halen old mailing school, list. Old school, baby. Wow. Old school VH. And he says, I enjoyed the balance anniversary episode, 5150. It was a nice break from all the virus talk on the other pods. And I must respectfully disagree about Strung Out and Not Enough. I think Strung Out is the perfect lead into Not Enough, and I like that song. I even enjoyed the Letterman performance. I bought the CD the day it came out, and as for crossing over, just as soon as the album started fading on me, I got the Japanese version, and crossing over renewed it for a bit. Balance is my favorite Sammy album, and it also is my first time meeting the band on that tour in Birmingham. I remember Scotty Ross's speech. No autographs, Ed wears rings on both hands, so don't shake his hand too hard, or else we're all out of a job, and don't hug Alex around the neck. Also in my meet and greet picture is a Warner Brothers guy that goes back to the beginning with Van Halen, Danny Davenport. Thanks for all you do, fellas. Liddell Wallace. Well, I tell you, Liddell, you really took me back with that Scotty Ross speech. Dave, do you remember that? Oh, my God. He totally nailed it. That was Scotty Ross's speech verbatim. Verbatim. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. I remember, I explicitly remember Scotty saying, or I'm out of a job. Exactly. I, he told the same thing to us. That's so It's funny. incredible. The guy had it down to his science. Well, in regards to ballots, hey, man, listen. Liddell, if you like Strung Out and Not Enough, more power to you. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. That's not a problem. My whole thing is, if you do like Strung Out, I would just like someone who likes it to explain to me what you like about it. Because it's not very musical, and it's sort of the opposite of musical, because it's destroying an instrument. Not Enough is a great song. I'm just feeling like it's just so light for Van Halen. And the Letterman performance, I felt like, didn't have a lot of energy, and Van Halen without energy is sort of not Van Halen, so it was a little weird for me. I also felt like, I guess, Can't Stop Loving You and Not Enough just sort of misrepresented the Balance album. I mean, the Balance album has a lot of cool shit on there. And I think one of the big takeaways from that episode that we had last month was that Go revisit the Balance album. There's more stuff there. The whole Balance album was written off with I Can't Stop Loving You, Not Enough, Light Poppy Songs, and Wham Bam uh, Amsterdam. It was all written off with that, but way beyond those two, three things, okay? There's a lot of great work there. There's a lot of great stuff there. What do you think, Dave? There are a lot of great deep cuts yeah. on that album. Yep. Uh, but not enough is just too generic for me yeah, it's very to be a generic. fan of. Yeah. And and strung out, I've had yeah. more than enough. It strings me out. <laughs> it strings me out, Dave. Yeah, no, just, I, I mean, hey, more power to you. If you like it, that's right. great, but I'm not one of those people. Absolutely. On to letter number two. Hi again, Dave and Dave. It's your college student listener writing in again. I hope you are both doing well. Quick question for you guys. I recently purchased the signed Eddie Van Halen 8x10 photo. It is my favorite piece of Van Halen memorabilia that I own right alongside my Van Halen vinyl albums. I was curious what are both of your favorite Van Halen items or memorabilia 
that are in your personal collections. And I'm sure you guys have some cool pieces. Thank you for all you do, and I look forward to your podcast each month and really appreciate the quality content. Happy trails, Ryan Clark. Well, Ryan, thank you for being our millennial representative as we are all middle-aged men here. And we appreciate you coming on and also recognizing the incredible Van Halen legacy. Yeah, well, in regards to this, I probably would say my bootleg collection along with my t-shirt collection. I have a lot of Van Halen t-shirts. And I also have a lot of bootlegs. Dave and I, I would say, like stuff that we can use. We like stuff we can read, we can watch, we can listen to, we can wear. We're not exactly ones to collect stuff for collecting purposes. I don't have any room to display anything. You know, my wife's not really into that. So what do you say from your end, Dave? Yeah, I really don't have a lot of memorabilia per se. Right. I have a lot of bootlegs. Sure. Which I love listening to. And I should really, now that I'm home, I should really take advantage of that fact and start totally, cranking totally, out totally. more more of those bootlegs. But yeah, as far as collectibles, I I barely have anything. Yeah. I'm not I'm not a tchotchke guy, as we say here mm-hmm. in the Northeast. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I have like a couple of pictures with the band. Right. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that I have, but that's really about it. I don't even think I have. Do I even have? I don't think I have vinyl anymore. Yeah. Yeah, just bootlegs. That's that's about it yeah, for me. Yeah, me too, me too. It's mainly I have books, I have videos, I have DVDs, I have T-shirts, I have hats, and I have bootlegs and albums and CDs, of course. But, you know, that's I have vinyl bootlegs and I have CD bootlegs and I have cassette bootlegs of all things. But anyway, on to letter number three, and that is coming from Southeast Nice Guy, Kurt. Lancios, and he says, Dave and Dave, greetings and salutations from Hotlanta once again. Love the Balance 25th anniversary episode, and thanks for giving us quality content. Question for you, have you ever considered getting an interview with keyboardist Jesse Harms? He probably has a lot of great stories since he was in Sammy's band for a couple albums. Additionally, he played on some tracks from David Lee Ross Edeman's Smile album. Those two items on his resume are definitely enough to give him a spot within the Van Halen family of artists. Just a thought. Stay safe and healthy. Until next time, Southeast. Nice guy, Kurt Lancios. Well, Kurt, that is for sure. I would love to have Jesse Harms on. I have reached out to him. I have not heard back. Absolutely would love to have him on. And I have been trying for a while to get him. I have an idea for an episode that would include him. And I'm hoping that comes through. But he has to say yes. What do you think about having Jesse Harms on, Dave. Oh, yeah. Like Kurt said, I mean, both sides of the fence for that guy. Right. So I'd love to talk to him. But like you say, and like Eddie Trunk always says, they have to say yes first before we can get him on the show. Absolutely. And letter number four comes from Ignacio Mogani. And he says, hi, Dave and Dave. I am a first-time emailer, and forgive me if this email is a tad long. Well, get out the blankets and the hot soup, Dave. So here we go. I gotta be, <laughs> I gotta be honest with you. I've had so many bands I grew up with that it's hard to find the absolute best, but Van Halen surely is up there. However, if I had to pick a frontman, David Lee Roth is definitely the best. Absolutely no contest. And when he's not being a frontman, he's amazing to listen to. If David Lee Roth were a character from a video game, they'd have to test the shit out of it because his dialogue trees are incredibly complex and he hardly ever states the same thing from one interview to the next. And since I'm a pretty young cub at 31 years old, 
I wasn't always around to see them when they came to South America back in 1983. And when I heard David Lee Roth was touring with Kiss, a misleading article led me to think he was on the rest of the tour and not just the American leg, which bummed me out. But still, I hope to see Dave, and I think Van Halen has sailed away and will just die off, which is something I hate. And I'm glad he's carrying on the torch for the rest of them out there. And when I was a little kid, I was only wanting to play the drums, and all that changed from the first time I heard Eruption when it came into my life, because his experience, not a song. That sealed the deal for me, and now I wanted to play drums and guitar, and I thought Eddie Van Halen was the guitar god. The first album I ever bought were Diver Down in 1984, preceded by in America by the Blues Brothers, which was my very first. Not bad for my first threesome. And I gotta delve deeper into the Sammy slash Gary era, but the stuff I've listened to is pretty cool. Anyhow, I wanted to discuss a bit about your show. I was listening to the Top 50 Worst and Best episode and you mentioned Eddie passing on getting paid for Beat It, and I wanted to give some info. I'm not sure how much he would have been paid, but I do know that Vincent Price got $20,000, which would amount to a very decent sum of in 2020. For his thriller rap, which is absolutely awesome and only took two takes, according to Quincy Jones. He was offered a percentage of the album's profits, but he declined. Boy, is that a mess. I believe this also had to do with the interest in MJ's singles before the album was released, since they did reasonably well, but weren't gargantuan. That had yet to be seen with the magic of videos. Toto deserved far more recognition for their work on such a gem of an album. Here's another Van Halen MJ connection. Ted Templeman suggested Steve Stevens to play on Michael Jackson's Dirty Diana since he had a solo deal with Warner Brothers. I don't think Steve gave his paycheck away like Eddie did, and it'd be cool to find how much he got for the track. Same thing with Slash were given to me. Anyway, your podcast is awesome, if not the best podcast I listen to. It's a joy to listen to the two of you discuss Van Halen with such passion, and your stern but fair reviews were fantastic. You make my work days much more enjoyable. Again, thank you for the long email and thanks for taking the time to read it. Stay safe. Fuck the coronavirus. Ignacio Mogni. Thank you very much, Ignacio. Yeah, Eddie left a small fortune on the table with Beat It. I cannot believe that he got away with that, meaning Michael Jackson not paying Eddie Van Halen. Now, it is known, not only did Eddie do the solo for Beat It, but apparently he rearranged the song for Michael in a way that it came out. It's really sad to hear that. Now, to be honest with you, I've said this before and I'll say it again, that Eddie Van Halen being on Beat It really opened up Michael Jackson to a whole new audience, which is the rock audience. A lot of rock guys bought that album and were interested in it because Eddie was on there. Eddie was hot as a pistol at that time, and Eddie was the perfect guitarist to go in and do that solo, and it was really an incredible coming together. What do you make of that whole thing, Dave? Well, first of all, thank you for the kind words. It was a very nice letter. And, yeah, I mean, it seems like Michael Jackson, he didn't have to pay Eddie. Vincent Price didn't get any points. Yeah, I know. I mean, all this Got away with murder. I mean, Michael made a lot of money to begin with, but he really made a lot of money, or the record company made a lot of money, because nobody was, nobody wanted any points from this album. It was crazy. Interesting. Yeah. Unbelievable. Interesting time. Absolutely. And we are on to letter number five, and this comes from Tom Jones from Gilbert, Arizona. And he says, Big Bad Dave's. 
I'll make this short and sweet. Best two consecutive songs on an album for Dave and for Sammy. Here are my choices. Dave, hear about it later in Unchained. Sammy, AFU and Cabo Wabo. Read this on the podcast this month, mofos. I can't be disrespected two months in a row. Midwest, fucking Ron can kiss my ass. Whoa! Whoa, oh. fighting words! Yeah, listen, Tom, we we love Midwest Ron, all right? Let's 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 not anger the bull, all right? You know what I'm saying? So he's... A, <laughs> we don't want to get Midwest Ron on a tear. So there's nothing wrong with Midwest Ron. And by the way, Tom Jones, you were in last month, so I don't know what you're complaining about. And I even have two of your letters in this month. You're the next letter as well. So, Dave, what do you say? What are your two consecutive songs on the Dave albums or Sammy albums? Which are your favorite two consecutive songs? She's a Lady and Delilah. I'm sorry, those are Tom Jones. Oh, you son of a bitch. Sorry, because I I know Tom has never heard that joke Mm. before. Okay, so my... It's not unusual, Dave. Oh, well played, sir. Well played. (laughs) So my favorite consecutive Van Halen songs, I actually had to think about this, and I actually had to look at the song orders. Of course. For the albums, because I noticed it was a little harder for me for the David Lee Roth era. Really? Because while I like individual songs, finding two in a row that like were really, really classic and then stood out was a little more challenging for okay. me than I okay. thought. But at the end of the day, it took me all the way to get to 1984, mm-hmm. where I picked Girl Gone Bad and House of Pain. Oh, interesting. Okay. Am I, I dug really deep for that one. You dug deep? I did dig deep. And then for Sammy... I picked Pound Cake and Judgment Day. Okay, well, we paired up on Sammy. That's exactly the pair I picked. Pound oh, cake. wow, really? Yeah, Pound Cake <laughs> and Judgment funny, but... Day. Without a doubt, that opens up the album. Fantastic choice. There was David Lee Roth, though, I was just before you in 1984, but I went with Drop Dead Legs and Hot for Teacher. So I'm a big fan of those two pairings. And yours was actually following my pair, so that's kind of interesting. And Tom Jones, he went out of his way on this one, Dave. Holy cow. So Tom Jones made this whole Excel spreadsheet. And Dave was grumpy about this, Tom, because you made him do work. And Dave doesn't like doing extra work. Now I know why my children don't go for extra credit. Yeah, there you go. So there was this huge (laughs) grid, okay, where he had it set up almost like a tennis tournament. Imagine an entire graph where you have like a tournament schedule and you have two songs against two songs and they all pair up in a tournament kind of like March Madness or something like that so for example he had like Running with the Devil versus You and Your Blues Women in Love versus Hang em High Drop Dead Legs versus Romeo Delight and then the winners of each one would go on into the bracket and go on to round of 32 or round of 64 to the round of 32 to the round of 16 to the round of 8 and goes all down to the championship and there was two sides of this thing and then the winners of both sides go against each other and, and the winner. What did you come up with, Dave? What was your final winner? The final winner? Yeah. Unchained. Oh, that was my final winner, too. And what what was, a surprise! Yeah, what a surprise. <laughs> Dave and I's favorite song. We all could have told you that a long time ago. So what was your one that Unchained was paired against? Romeo Delight. Oh, interesting. So this is where some of the pairings, like I said, it was like Running with the Devil against... So here are some of the hot pairings I I noted here, Dave, was Drop Dead Legs versus Romeo Delight. Okay, for me, that was Drop Dead Legs. Yeah, that was killer. That was a killer. Killer, that one. Another killer one was Atomic Punk versus Feel Your Love Tonight. That was another killer. Another killer was Somebody Get Me a Doctor versus Bottoms Up. 
That was another killer. And then on the other side of the chart, a couple of killers were In a Simple Rhyme versus Sinner Swing and On Fire versus Out of Love Again. Those were really hard. But then there are other ones which were easy, you know, like the cross between Ain't Talk About Love and Bullethead. Obviously, Ain't Talk About Love won. Or Panama versus Girl Gone Bad. Panama won for me. But we all came up with Unchained. Why is that such a big surprise? It's not because Dave and I have always said from the beginning... That Unchained is the perfect Van Halen song. It best represents the band. It's got the band's sound in terms of the background harmonies mixed with a really crunchy riff, mixed with the kind of boogie swing, mixed with the humor, which with the David Lee Roth attitude. The whole thing is in one package. If you're going to play one Van Halen song to somebody who's never heard the band that characterizes the whole vibe and spirit of the band, it's going to be Unchained. So we've said that. Dave, what were your final four songs? Oh, my final four? Okay, yeah. hang on. I gotta pull that out and just put it away. <laughs> okay, so Unchained and Ain't Talking About Love on one side, and on the other side was Drop Dead Legs and Jamie's Crying. Wow. So yeah. I had Unchained, uh-huh. Girl Gone Bad, uh-huh. Dead or Alive, right. and Romeo Delight. Oh, interesting, interesting, interesting. interesting. I love all those songs. So out of all, yeah, so Dave, out of all your selections, mm. pick one that you think would surprise a lot of people. In other words, you picked one song over another. Yeah. And you think oh. a lot of people would not have done that. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's see here. While you're looking, I'll go and I'll give you a shocker. You ready for this? Okay. I chose Bullethead over Ain't Talking About Love. Oh. <laughs> that is fucking crazy. I what know. are you nuts? I know. That's, I know. That's, yes, that's yes shocking. I was. Okay. I um, let's see. Shocking <laughs> for me. Shocking for me. I don't know. Would Drop Dead Legs over Little Guitars be shocking? That's a tough one, actually. So, not for me, though, because I love Drop Dead Legs. Here's one. Between Bottoms Up and Dance the Night Away, I went with Bottoms Up. Oh, I did, too, actually. Okay. So. Between You Really Got Me and DOA, I went with DOA. Yep, me, too. Okay. Let's see if there's any shocking ones here. Hang on. Between Beautiful Girls and Light Up the Sky, I went with Light Up the Sky. Actually, I did, too. I think you and I really went a lot more for the rocking song. Yeah. Oh, well, I'll tell you what about yeah. this one. I'll give you one. Between Secrets and As Is, I went with As Is. Oh, you're breaking my heart. I broke your heart right there. Look at that. I stomped on it. Actually, Secrets actually made it into the top eight for me, but I did pick Girl Gone Bad over Secrets. Interesting, interesting. Okay, well, yeah, there were some really tough choices there, but he did there a good were, job. There were, there were, yeah. That's definitely a good job. Letter number seven comes from Gary Ashley from Evansville, Indiana. And he says, thank you guys for reviewing Balance last month. I had forgotten what a great album that was. By 1995, I had checked out of music for the most part. I checked my music library, and I was missing Balance. Needless to say, I jumped on iTunes, and I bought it immediately. And I have to agree with you. It is criminal that Crossing Over was left off the United States release. I had never heard of that song until the podcast, and I listened to it a hundred times on YouTube since the last three weeks. Love the show. Stay safe. Gary Ashley from Evansville, Indiana. Well, Gary, I am so thrilled to hear this. 
Thank you for really embracing crossing over and rediscovering balance. That is exactly what we want to do. Let's be honest, folks. I don't know if we're going to get any more Van Halen. So we got to appreciate what we have. So it might make sense to go back and listen to stuff that maybe you need to give a little closer ear to. And Balance is definitely one of those albums. There's gold in them nar hills, Dave, as they say. So there's some really cool stuff on there. There's a lot of meat on that bone. It's way more than Wham Bam Amsterdam. It's way more than Not Enough. It's way more than Can't Stop Loving You. So go dig your teeth into Balance. I know a lot of people were frustrated at that point, but let me tell you something. It wasn't given the fair shake. I felt like balance was overlooked. What do you think, Dave? I'm really glad he had such a positive experience to crossing over. Yeah. It was very similar to the first time I heard it, and I was like, wow, this is a B-side? This is like one of the best songs from the sessions. Unbelievable. I, I said it last time, and I'll say it again. I mean, not only is it a great song, from that album, even though it wasn't on the album, but mm-hmm. from those sessions. Right. Not only is it a great Sammy-era song, but it's also a great Van Halen song, period. Cannot stress enough how good that song is. So if you haven't heard it lately, after us raving about it, I highly recommend you listen to it. Absolutely. All the talk we had earlier about Van Halen being a keyboard band during the Sammy era, this song will dispel any notions that Van Halen had trouble rocking with Sam. Absolutely. And letter number eight comes from Heath McCoy, and he says, Solid episode, guys. I almost skipped it, as Balance is my least favorite Van Hagar album. I pretty much checked out when it was released. Your episode brought me a new appreciation for it, and I have to go back and give a listen to some of those deep tracks. Heath McCoy. Heath, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Dig in, because we got nothing else coming. Please check out some of those tracks. Seventh Seal, Dave, right? What a fantastic song that is. Feeling, great song there. Lots of good songs. Deja Vu is a nice track. Lots of cool stuff. Aftershock. Great, great tunes on there. There's some really solid stuff. Big Fat Money, the guitar playing on there. Oh, my God. There's so much good stuff on there. Dig it. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. What an overlooked single. And as I said on the last podcast, poorly released. Bad video. Released between Christmas and New Year's. It got lost in the wash. Come on. Folks, go back. Balance is not only a good album, it's got some great stuff on there. Wow, the sound is so good, and it's so well produced. Do yourself a favor. Like I said in the last pod, listen on earphones. Please get yourself a good set of headphones and put those on. You'll hear the real essence of Balance. Definitely want to check that out. Letter number nine comes from 5150 Kurt, and this is a quick, To the point letter, David says, Hey, Ray, what you say is true. I heard he was referring to Ray Daniels. Oh, I don't know about that, Kurt. Nah, that's news to me. That's, I'm no. pretty sure it was Ray Charles. I don't think Sammy would shout out Ray Daniels. He is the last guy Sammy would be shouting out for sure. He was not a big fan of Ray Daniels, so I don't think that's true. Plus, the correlation with the song Can't Stop Loving You by Ray Charles is a big hit for him. Obviously, that makes sense. So... We'll put that one to bed. Letter number 10 comes from Willie Williams. He says, one disagreement. To me, I Can't Stop Loving You was so completely awful, I never liked Van Hagar as much as I did before after it. A band killer. Wow, that's a big statement from Willie Williams. Well, listen, 
in my opinion, I wouldn't call it a band killer. There's nothing wrong with the song. It's a beautifully crafted pop song. I just felt it was a little too poppy and a little too hallmark to represent that album. There was some really good stuff on that album, some really good guitar and gritty songs, everything. That song was so sunshiny, and it is a good song. It's well-crafted, well-made, perfect for radio, but... I felt like I misrepresented the album. What do you think, Dave? Yeah, that's true. I mean, but they did that song that way on purpose. No, I, mean, I know. Did want, oh, you know, absolutely. Right, a sunshiny album. Yeah. Well, and by the way, yeah. Willie Williams, best name ever. <laughs> that's right. Willie Williams, that's right. So now letter number 11 comes from John Conklin of the Bronx, the Boogie Down Bronx. Dave, so letter number 11, you guys were also talking about Al's use of Simmons drums. The actual only difference between 1984 drums and 5150 drums is that he used real snare, cymbals, and hi-hats. Simmons kicks and floor toms and roto toms on 1984 and he swapped the roto toms out for the simmons toms on 5150 those simmons toms changed everything though lol 5150 sound is dated whereas 1984 drums still sound iconic here is a pick from the early 1985 5150 the setup looks as if it's still in the 1984 setup you can make out the roto toms behind the synthesizer he also said hey guys you were commenting that take me back sounded like a sammy hagar solo song but ironically the intro to take me back was written back in the club days it was a song called No More Waiting. Here's a link to the YouTube audio bootleg of the band performing it. So here's a clip of Take Me Back. Here's a clip for No More Waiting. You can tell there's a similarity there, and that's from... Yeah, John. oh man, you know what? Good yeah. call. Yeah. I totally forgot about that. Absolutely. And that's Good call. John Conklin of the Boogie Down Bronx. Thank you, John, for clearing that up. Perhaps it was the swap of the Roto Toms for the Simmons Toms, and that put it over the top. Take me back, although that, you know, that intro was old, and very much like Mean Streets was an old intro that Eddie tacked on. The song, the meat of the song, sounded like a Sammy Hagar song, a solo Sammy Hagar song, I thought. And letter number 11, Dave. You know we can't do a mailbag without him, so here he is. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! It's Midwest fucking Ron! That's right, Midwest fucking Ron. You know you love him. Dave can't live without him. Letter number 12 come Midwest fucking Ron. He says, Dave's. And he goes light on us this time, Dave. He goes light. He actually goes straight and just has a question, which is a little bit of a mooge-boosh here, okay? So he says, have you... A what? A mooge-boosh. Look it up. All right, I'll it's, bite. What well, is, a mooge-boosh yeah. is like a palate cleanser, a little palate cleanser. So he says here, have you ever heard the keyboard solo version of Right Now? What do you think of it versus the released guitar solo version? So now, what does he mean here? This is the version of Right Now, the guitar solo. <laughs> Oh, 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 
This is the version of right now with the keyboard solo replacing the guitar solo. <laughs> is a nice question, Ron. I want to give you a props for that, for pointing this out. I absolutely hate the keyboard solo version, and here's why. I think it takes the balls off the tune. Ed's guitar coming in in that song is my favorite part of the song. It is the most musical portion, and now to me it sounds like a fucking church organ in that section, and it's not even properly mic'd. As you can tell, it's sort of too far in the mix, and it really drops the ball in the middle of this brilliant tune. Why does this exist? I have no idea, but apparently according to Midwest Ron, because what I did, Dave, was after I got that letter from Ron, I asked him to follow up and clarify. Because I said, you know, like, there's two versions of right now. We all know the guitar version of right now. What is with this other version? Wasn't it released to radio? He says it was a promo disc that wasn't for sale that I assume was only meant for radio airplay. A friend of mine remembers hearing it in the car and thinking how different it was when you're expecting that guitar solo. So apparently... It was an alternate radio version on a promo disc. But I tell you, it's not even close to the original version. What did you think? I do prefer the guitar version. I like right. my Eddie Van Halen playing guitar. But I do remember that version when it came out, because I do remember hearing it on the radio occasionally. Right. When they were doing that song. and I was So it's interesting to hear it with the keyboard solo. Oh, yeah. You usually don't hear too many alternate mixes yeah. of Van Halen songs. Yeah, that's true. But let me, Dave, let me ask but, you something. Didn't you yeah. find the miking off? I found it so low in the mix. It, it wasn't like that guitar is prominent. It comes out. Like, even if you're going to do a, a keyboard solo, as a, opposed to the guitar solo, why is it so far down in the mix? I think they just slapped it on at the last minute, released it to radio. I don't know, maybe for some of those stations who were like, oh, no, the lead guitar is too rocking for us, so... The keyboard solo made it a little more mellow, and maybe they could get some more airplay oh, yeah. on it. Which is interesting, because it didn't really help that much in terms of the charts. Because I think right now, I mean, I don't even think it was a top 40 song, technically, right? Yeah, you know what's funny about right now, Dave? What's funny about right now is, it is literally one of the most quintessential Van Hagar-era songs, right? I mean, that's, right, right. I, I mean, let's be honest. I'm going to go out on a limb and say... If, so, if you were the, to walk up to someone the, yeah. and say, name a Sammy Hagar-era Van Halen song, I think that would be the one people say right away. Yeah, I think that one had the the most legs. Yeah. I, I agree with you. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, it's played at, like, sporting events and right. things like it, that. It's, you so, know, it's, right, yeah. it's funny. You, you talk about movies, for example. Like, there's a movie that might have won five Oscars, right? But if it doesn't have the legacy... Like, for example, Dances with Wolves won a whole bunch of Oscars, and it was very popular at the time. But it was against Goodfellas. 
in the Oscars. And Goodfellas didn't win the Oscars, but Dances with Wolves did. Goodfellas won one Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, but that's besides the point. But Goodfellas has such a legacy, you know, it, it's like as time goes on, it got bigger with time as time goes on as opposed to, like, the time when it came out. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Yeah, no, same thing with right now. Yeah, that's the other thing with right now is is very interesting. I'm, I was looking it up here and see how far it got I up. I think it only tried to like number 56 or something like that. Did it really go that low? I don't think, well, I could be wrong. You know what? It was kind of like Hot for Teacher. Both of those right. songs right. had really good iconic videos. Oh, totally. But in terms of how high they yeah, started yeah. on the pop charts, right. they did not go that high. No, but you know them. what? It, you know what it was though. Like Hot for Teacher, much like right now, has a much longer legacy. Like for example, people know that song. It's a it's an earmark song. It, it sort of like has lived on as you know, a bigger song than it wasn't in its time. But yeah, but even at that time, it, it, it surprised me how high it did in chart. Right. It, I don't know. It just, it just seemed like I heard it on the radio, you know, certainly on MTV rotation. But I don't know. Maybe it was just on the radio stations I was listening to. But either way, whether it charted or not, it certainly made its mark for the Sammy era of the band. That's for sure. That's for sure. And that wraps up the mailbag segment. And we are on to our epic discussion on Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life and music by Greg Renoff and Ted Templeman. It is his autobiography as told to Greg Renoff. Dave and I go into a deep dive discussion on everything Van Halen. So we're talking about Van Halen 1 to 1984 to the VOA album with Sammy to Eat Him and Smile with Dave, Crazy from the Heat with Dave. There's a lot in there. Even before Unlawful Carnal Knowledge album, there's all kinds of stuff that Ted was involved in. He produced all those albums we just mentioned. So we have a deep dive discussion on the book. And then we go into a very detailed interview with Greg Renoff, where we ask him all kinds of questions, everything Van Halen related. Now, the book is not just Van Halen, but... Out of like 460 pages, I think like 160 of them are Van Halen. There's a lot of Van Halen in there. So there's plenty of Van Halen to sink your teeth into. And that is all coming up next. Take a listen. I kind of expected people were going to dance to this one. I kind of, I kind of figured that this is going to hit a chord in people because it's rocking. But it's not rock and roll. It makes you feel like in movement, but it's not really rock and roll. Got away with it, you know. Got to make that left turn. People say... I'm just going to go make rock and roll, man. It's going to sound like rock without Eddie. <laughs> you know? And it's not going to be as good. It won't have the personality and going like that. So I had to say, you know, I'm going to make a quick move. And it's Rob across the finish line again. Author Greg Renoff is back with a new book, Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life and Music. The new biography of the record producer Ted Templeman, who went on to produce Van Halen, the Doobie Brothers, Van Morrison, Aerosmith, Sammy Hagar, and more. The book, which runs 1995, is being released on April 21st, 2020. And it's currently available for pre-orders at Amazon.com. From the man who brought you Van Halen Rising comes Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life and music. Written by Templeman, as told to Greg Renoff. Available for only 19.95 for pre-order at Amazon.com. 
Order it today. Hi, this is Mike Fraser. I'm the mixer of the Van Halen record Balance, and you're listening to Dave and Dave Unchained. If you would like to send us a letter asking a question or making a statement or whatever you'd like to say, you can send it to ddunchainedpodcast at gmail.com. You know, up until you know, six, eight months ago, Van Halen was entirely my life. All the things that were involved there, all these ancillary things, you know, the video world, the whatever, the wardrobe, you know, the... You name it, the staging, the live, the advertising, you know, that would that, that'd be my life, you know. And then, uh, you know, change the system, you know, you're going to start changing the way we're going to go about our business, you know. And uh, I stopped having fun. Well, folks, the time has finally come. We have talked about this book, well, Dave, it might be years at this point. So <laughs> It might be. It's, it might it's be. the truth, but at least someone's releasing something with the name Van Halen attached to it, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so our friend Greg Renoff, who is the author for Van Halen Rising, he has been on multiple times. I don't even know when he came on here to announce his next project. I think it was the summer of... I don't know, Dave. When was it? Like this? Was it last was it summer? 20? No, summer no, before that. I want to say no. I think it was like I don't think it was any time after 2018. Oh yeah, 20, yeah, you're right? right. It was probably 2018 where he came on the podcast and he announced his next project. And I actually guessed it if you could remember. So he has done a biography of Ted Templeman, who is the producer of Van Halen for Van Halen 1, 2, Women and Children First, and Fair Warning, and Diver Down in 1984, and he also co-produced for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge in 1991, along with David Lee Ross' solo EP, Crazy from the Heat. He also produced Eat Him and Smile, Dave's first solo album. He also produced Sammy's VOA album in 1984, and he even produced Montrose's first album. So there's so many Van Halen ties to uh, producer Ted Templeman that this makes this book very relevant for this podcast. Now, of course, Ted didn't just produce Van Halen. He produced the Doobie Brothers, and he produced Nicolette Larson and Little Feet and Aerosmith at one point. A whole bunch of other bands. And this is all in this book. And this book is a nice size. I believe it's 460 pages, right, Dave? It's a nice, hefty yeah. book. Yeah, it's a, it's, right. a, it's a good read. It's yes. a tomb. It's a tomb. And, and right now, as we all are sheltering in place, as they say, okay, <laughs> this is actually a perfect time to read a book like this. And it's very well written because Greg writes very well. Now, keep in mind, I know we're all Van Halen greedy here. We all want Van Halen, Van Halen, Van Halen. So... But what Greg has done here is he has interwoven Van Halen throughout the book. So what does that mean? Well, it goes according to Ted's life, project to project. Ted was not only a producer, he was also a Warner Brothers executive, which is very key when reading this book because it made him very powerful in Van Halen's record company, which helped him out tremendously. And we're going to get into all that. So now, of course... We're only going to focus on the Van Halen, David Lee Roth, Sammy Hagar era portion of the book. And that's no slight to Greg because the rest of the book is great. We suggest that you read the whole book. Uh, oh, however, for sure. Yeah, for sure. However, because of time constraints and obviously the subject matter of this podcast, we, we have focused specifically on the Van Halen-oriented portion of the book. Dave, just overall impressions, what was your initial impression of the book? Well, like you said, it is very well written. It flows nicely. And I thought he did a really good job of touching on 
all aspects. I mean, with Ted, right. of course, they did a good job of really focusing on all aspects of Ted's career. And what I really liked about this, I mean, this may sound obvious because Ted Templeman's a producer, but they really focused a lot on the music. Yes. I mean, there was a lot of discussion right. about what's happening in the studio, right? which I was really hungry for right. and I really wanted to know. And like you said, Ted does talk about the politics of the record yes. company to an extent as he was an executive, but that is not an overbearing part of the book. If you're looking for information on Van Halen, it's a very nice supplement to other things that are out there. Obviously, there's Sam's autobiography. There's Dave's autobiography. Right. They tell you their own things. Both of them really don't spend a lot of time in the studio or the creation of the music. I mean, they talk about it, but right. not nearly as in-depth in this book. And then, of course, there was our buddy Van Halen's former manager, Noel Monk. You know, Noel told a lot of great stuff behind the scenes. Yes. But he was not in the studio. No. You know, he self-admittedly said, you know, that was not his thing, and he was no. just not there. Right. His so stuff was more on the road, yeah. Right. Right, on the road or behind the scenes. Right, right. This really gets you in the door of the studios and what was going. And exactly. It, and it covers it nicely. Now, admittedly, I was greedy and wanted to read even more. Right, but, right. But, I mean, you really can't complain because the book's over 400 pages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you can't just talk about Van Halen because there's a lot more to Ted's career than that. Right. But I will say that if, if you're hungry for some Van Halen information, things you didn't know before, or things you want to confirm that you had heard over the years, this book will do that for sure. That's for sure. Now, keep in mind, Okay, just what Dave just said, very important. No Monk's book was all about them being on the road and what happened behind the scenes. That is a totally different world than what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with here the more musical, professional side of things. It's actually a beautiful mirror because it gives you the other side that, that Noel's book doesn't have. It's a nice companion, in a way, for a Van Halen fan, from the perspective of a Van Halen fan. So if you read Greg's first book, Van Halen Rising, you get the whole beginnings of the band, how Van Halen was formed and how they came up to their first album. If you read No Monk's book, it gives you the whole background on Van Halen on the road and with the groupies and all the background crazy stuff. You read this book, it takes you through album by album and the politics that went on with the album, but everything is related to the album. I mean, he does get into some personal stuff, but not like... Like Noel's book, this is more like everything is about what's happening in and about the album. And it's very, very interesting that way. So I broke this down a little bit here. This is Gary. Like, for example, just to start off with a little taste, he talks about Montrose, page 162 to 167. That's in chapter 6. Then we move on to chapter 8. Van Halen starts coming into play on page 216 to 243. He goes very heavily on the first album and on 1984, just to give you guys a rough estimate as to, like, what's going on there. Okay. Then we get into chapter 11. We come back to Van Halen at page 297 to 317. Chapter 12, we get in back into Van Halen, 318 to 358. Then we get to chapter 13, which is 359 to 414, okay? And we get right into uh, all of that. 
to 414. Now, that is all about the split, him going with Dave, and all this different 5150, the behind the scenes of making that out, that whole thing. Then by the time we get to, to chapter 14 and page 415 to 431, we talk about him returning to the Van Halen fold in 1991 for the Fuck album. And that basically is where it ends in terms of Van Halen portions. But there's lots and lots of juicy stuff there, so we want to get into it. From the beginning, he talked about Sammy Hagar in the Montrose years. He said he had like a Robert Plant feel. He really was very impressed. He puts it right up front. He likes Sam very much as a person, loves his voice. He was absolutely shocked that Montrose's first album wasn't a hit. And as I am as well, that album is so well produced. It's a fantastic record. I couldn't suggest more for anybody to get that album. Right, Dave? That is an incredible debut album. I mean, absolutely. That album just rocks from top to bottom. I mean, a couple of songs. I mean, they definitely sound of the era right. of the early 70s. Right. But you can really hear... Your favorite band's about to play a sold-out show. You got in. Over here. With a friend. And found a spot close enough to see the set list. They're definitely playing your song. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. Get 30% shorter average wait time when you buy and book online at DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire. Let's get you taken care of. What Ted and John Landy were trying to do... The first time they got their hands yep. on a rock band, not that the Doobies weren't rock. No, the no, Doobies were definitely like a hard rock, rock band, but but like a really a hard yeah, rock yeah, band. Yeah, and and what they learned from that. Yes, when they went to Van Halen five years later. Yes, because the thing was like when you say I can't believe you know the first Montrose album wasn't a hit. Right. I mean that's absolutely true. I yeah. mean it barely scraped the the top 200. Right. Although, I mean, it was a slow-burning album because it eventually went flat. Right, right. But the thing you learned and that Ted learned mm -hmm. was that Montrose, as great as the album was, it didn't have a song that was a natural fit for AM radio. There was right. no big hit. Right. And Ted remembered that mm -hmm. when he was doing the Van Halen album yep. later yep. and said, hey, let's do that cover you guys do of You Really Got Me. Right. And that's going to be the lead single. Right. Because Ronnie Montrose was trying to make heavy metal that was both commercial and fun. That was Ronnie's goal. He definitely achieved it when you think of the early Van Halen albums. Maybe not Fair Warning so much, but the other ones, I mean, those albums are fun. Right. I mean, the first album is just fun. Oh, yeah. And... Certainly, Ted had his ear on the commerciality, if that's a word. Right. I mean, David Lee Roth did, too, for that matter. But that's really the takeaway from the first Montrose album. And I think Ted actually produced the second Montrose album, too. He did, Paper which Money, is, yeah. Which is also very good. Not as good as the first one. Right. But that is also a very commercial and fun album. Yep. Although, uh, Ronnie Montrose was very mercurial, and he was always changing things from album to album. Mm-hmm. You know, he never had the same lineup two albums in a row, no matter what band he was right, in. Right, right. Yeah. But but he really learned a lot with Montrose, and he did not let those lessons go to waste, because when he had the opportunity to do it again with Van Halen five years later, he definitely took that and learned from it. That's part of the reason that 
Van Halen did so well. I'm certainly not taking anything away from Ed or Dave or Sam or Mike and their talent in anything they created for the album. Right. But Ted was not an idiot. He knew what he needed to do to get the album to sound good and to get out there and sell. Right, absolutely. And he says... The quote from it was, it was a big wake-up call for me. That's what he said in the book. And it was obvious that he learned a lot of lessons that he would bring toward Van Halen. So the interesting thing is, and Greg sets it up nice here, he talks about how Van Halen came into his view. Okay, how did Ted even come into contact with Van Halen? So Ted was a high executive up at Warner Brothers, and you know he doesn't really scout local bands and that's what van halen was so they talk about that gentleman who tipped him off dave i forgot his name. i thought it was marshall burl right? right marshall burl tipped him off and marshall was down at the sunset strip right and he was running one of the clubs there and he had tipped him off about it and he basically said you know this is not something a high level executive goes out and does in scouting local bands but he figured, let me go check it out. First thing he said was, the singer did not impress me. And that was his initial reaction to David Lee Roth. However, when he saw Ed, he said it was like falling head over heels in love with a girl on a first date. I was so dazzled. One of the best guitarists I've ever seen live. And he compared him to Charlie Parker, meaning seeing like a genius perform live. And it really struck him. But the interesting thing is, he left the club that night and didn't even approach the band. He called up Mo Austin from Warner Brothers, who's a high-level executive, and then told him he had to get down there. So now, in terms of Roth, he talks about Roth very rough in the beginning. He says, as a performer and a vocalist, he underwhelmed me. His stage presence was awkward and his singing wasn't great. One of the most interesting parts of this whole book is his evolution with Dave. And boy, is it a journey from the very beginning when he first meets Dave and sees Dave on stage to the end. The beginning is rough. The end is rough. The middle is wild. It is really crazy, right, Dave? The ride that goes along with Roth is he loves Ed all through the beginning he always loves Ed he gets a little annoyed with him at one point but you know what I'm saying it was an interesting ride I thought the up and down with Dave it really was because he was not enamored with Dave not at all at all nope. in the beginning nope. and like you said he was in love right. with Ed right I mean he basically thought Ed was carrying the band yeah and he was seriously thinking, like, what am I going to do with Dave? And he confirmed that he had, at one point, he was thinking, do I get Sammy in the band? Right, exactly. I mean, he was really thinking about that yeah. because he really had his doubts about Dave. But he does admit, thank goodness I did not act on any of that and kept Dave in the band. Yep. Because uh, as you keep going chapter by chapter, mm -hmm. he certainly does appreciate Yep what Dave brought to oh, the yeah. band yeah. in terms of, you know, being the front man, being a songwriter, yeah. being a strong lyricist, because he says elsewhere in the book, like a lot of people say who are familiar with both Dave and Sam, Sam was not the greatest lyricist in the world. Right. And Dave just, he, he brought something to that. So, yeah, I mean, it's quite the evolution because by the time, the band is breaking up in 1985. Yeah. Ted can't even get himself 
to produce the band anymore yeah, because yeah. it's just not the same right band. right we'll get to that we'll get to that but let me i'm going to bring out this quote this is an unbelievable quote it'll knock you on your ass so this is what it says direct quote from ted now remember the book is by ted as told to greg renoff obviously greg's writing while ted's talking it's ted's words and greg's you know writing it so this is what he says here listen to this i love sammy as a person and as a singer, but if I tried to put him in Van Halen in 1977, I'd have made the biggest mistake in rock history because Van Halen never would have made it without Dave fronting the band. That is one of the most powerful statements I've ever heard about Van Halen. What do you think? There you go. That yep. says it all. Right? He knew, even though Dave wasn't the world's greatest singer, he saw what Dave brought to the table. Right. And yeah. we've spoken about that before yeah, in so terms of, of course. you know, if it wasn't for Dave, the band would still be playing backyard parties at Pasadena. Right. right. I mean, he was the exactly. guy who had the drive right. to make the band be something. He did. Now, he, now what he was saying was, they got to remember, Dave is a kid. He's not used to being in recording studios and performing for producers. So now this is what he said. He says, Dave croaked along. That was a quote from the book. And the other guys did amazing shit. But he said, Dave had an engaging personality. He looked great on stage, but he really couldn't sing. He was weighing the two. Sammy, his lyrical ability really wasn't stellar. And then it wasn't until he got into Dave's dad's basement which I believe is the house Dave lives in now, that he kind of really saw the band in their element. He really kind of opened his eyes to what Dave had, you know. He said he had astounding intellect. He was clever and on point, and he even called him a genius and dead-on comic timing. He was impressed by his lyrics. He said all of this stuff overcame his vocal shortcomings, and he said he'd figure out a way to make Dave work in Van Halen. So that it was acceptable and he'd maximize his strengths and minimize his weaknesses. This is how good of a producer he was. He was going to make it all work because of what Ed's genius was. I mean, obviously, we all know about Ed's genius and his incredible abilities. He also said that the Van Halen equation was to be heavy and dark, but with pop sensibilities. And harmonies were their secret weapon. And he said that Mike and Ed vocal blending in the background sounded youthful. And he said it, he wanted to make a heavy album, but have a pop, sun-kissed, Southern California vibe. And he said Roth had the smart-ass talk show host with great comic timing on top of that. And it all kind of added into the mix. So the dark, heavy guitar mixed with the, the kind of pop sensibilities with the great harmonies with Dave's wit and pizzazz on top of it. This is what made up Van Halen. Now, Ted was so entrenched in the band. This isn't some guy who's just thrown on it to make him sound good. Like, he was involved. He was in the tank with this band. Now, the other thing I want to note is he says here in multiple portions of the book how strong and sharp and good Michael Anthony is. And the reason why I think he does this is because of a lot of the recent comments that Ed has been making about Michael. This is what he says. Mike Bass was an important part of... Van Halen sound. Forget the vocals. The root of the chord was always so solid with Mike. You never had to think about anything else when working with Van Halen. He knew almost intuitively how to stay a simple chorus when recording with Ed's guitar parts so they could shine. 
I didn't need to work all that much with Mike on the first album because I knew he was right on top of things. He had a lot of great things to say about Mike, his bass playing, his attitude, his background vocals. Right, Dave? It, I mean, he really drove the point home about Mike. He did. He definitely said his bass playing was an important part of the band's sound. I mean, totally gives full props for the background vocals yep. as well. Interestingly... Ted reveals that he was also an uncredited background vocalist <laughs> yeah. uh, for some of the recordings, and that was part of the secret sauce. Right, right. That we didn't real, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't quite realize at the time. But that was what Ted was supposed to do. Like you said, you know, these guys were really young. Yeah. When they came into the studio, I mean, they were like, I don't know if they were teenagers, but they were certainly like in their early twenties. Yeah, maybe like, well, all right, let's say, let's say like early twenties. Like they were like, right. yeah, they were really I mean, young. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, they were not the Jackson Five. No, <laughs> no. Like let's, say, let's say like seventy-seven is how many years ago? Forty-three years ago. That Eddie is uh, sixty-five years old. So was he twenty-two? He's twenty-two. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So yeah, these guys are you know definitely in their early twenties. Right. And, and right. Ted sees the raw talent that's there, and you know his job as a producer is to bring that out and make them sound as good as they can be, which right. he absolutely did. Although the one thing. He did not talk about mm. really too much in the book that I was really curious about was why he panned Ed's guitar all the way to one channel for a lot of the early albums. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, that that was like a, I mean, that was like a hard. There was literally a hard left right. of, of of Ed's guitar, and I mean, I know Eddie used to joke like he wasn't crazy about it because he, at the time he had. He had a car where one of the speakers was out, and he couldn't hear himself right. because that was the speaker his guitar was playing. That's true. So I was always curious about that. But you, you can't deny that that sonically, I mean, the album is is really good, and he, he definitely captured the band's magic of them playing live. That's for sure. And he talks about how hard they worked on achieving that sound on Van Halen 1. He really wanted to nail it. And I think a lot of it was you know, what happened with Montrose. He really wanted to get this right. And he knew also the genius of Ed, and he knew he had to really nail it. So now one thing he did talk about, was he spent a lot of extra time with Dave, that the band was pretty tight. Mike and Al and Ed, like, they would nail their parts, and he'd actually let them go. And he'd spend a lot of time in the studio with Dave. And they'd do multiple takes, and he would piecemeal best parts of each take to make the song. I thought that was very interesting in the book. He also said that Ain't Talking About Love, he thinks is a perfect rock song. It's his favorite song that he ever produced by Van Halen and went on to obviously praise Mike saying, everyone who's a Van Halen fan needs to ask themselves, where would they have been without his voice? There's no one better when it comes to doing background parts. Again, more praise from Mike. He was talking about how Dave would write lyrics on the spot and he'd come up with fantastic stuff. And even when something didn't work, he'd turn around and bring out something new. And he also talked about Eruption and how Don Landy, the engineer that he worked with, was rolling tape when Eddie was doing the warm-up on Eruption. And throughout the years, Eddie would always say, I could have done it better. Every time he talks about Eruption, even though Eruption is such a legendary track 
on Van Halen 1, but Eddie would always say to Don, many, many years later, I could have done it better had you given me like a second take. But Ted Templeman pays credit to Don Landy for really capturing that moment because it was Eddie kind of working it out in the studio. But the interesting part was you get a lot of inside from the record company executive perspective in this book too. He says the record company wasn't really high on their music. He said no one was enthused about the band. Ted was 100% sold and he said he thought their talent was limitless. But a lot of the people on the record company said it seemed too niche and it was too out of step with the times. Now, remember, late 70s, high disco era, huge disco era. Rock was kind of falling out. You know, like I said, you know, like Sabbath was ending, Led Zeppelin was ending, like all the big rock of the 70s was sort of coming to a close. But Ted Templeman was behind the scenes from a record executive standpoint pushing this band and trying to get them budgets to get albums to DJs, and there's all kinds of inner workings behind the scenes to get DJs to play songs and all kinds of stuff, get them on big tours like with Journey or with Black Sabbath, getting the you know, promo dollars and money for the road. It's incredible. And one thing he does point out is that he pushed the band to make sure they keep their publishing. He told them not to split the money four ways, but they, they said, oh, we're a brotherhood, we're splitting the songwriting four ways. And then years later, it ended up becoming a point of resentment between Ed and Michael Anthony. Which they, oh, he doesn't write. Somehow Alex skates it all. Not that Alex is writing in any of these songs, but he seems to get a freebie on there. And so if you look at the writing credits, it says David Lee Roth, Eddie Van Halen, and Alex Van Halen. Mike's cut out of the deal. Alex is not cut out of the deal because he's Ed's brother, but it's basically Ed and Dave writing the songs, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind about that. And like you said, Ted was really behind the scenes promoting the heck out of the band. That's how much he believed in them. He really wanted to make sure that they were being promoted as much as they could. Right. I mean, right. he really, really believed in the band. Yeah, now you get to Van Halen 2, and he sort of talks about it like, ah, they're kind of leftovers from Van Halen 1. Somebody get me a doctor was like iffy. <laughs> Somebody get me a doctor is iffy. It was really weird. But he loved their version of You're No Good, which is he was so high on. And, and he said it was Dave's idea, and he kind of pushed for it, and he loves the screams that he got out of Dave on that. Now, he also claims... He helped write the chorus, apparently. That's what Ted says. But he didn't take any money or credit for it. He says, one thing I wouldn't do when I did that was ask for writing credit or publishing. I didn't take any credit. But he did say that he wrote part of Dance the Night Away, which is sort of interesting. He thinks Dance the Night Away is Dave's best vocals of his career. He talks about Spanish Fly and how he was at a New Year's Eve party and he saw Ed pick up an acoustic instrument and, and play it. And he was so taken by that, that, you know, he, oh, we have to record that. You know what I mean? He also said that he loved Alex's drums on Everybody Wants Some. He basically said that he was channeling the song Stranded in the Jungle by the Cadets. 
They originally, they had a whole different intro with that Ed had a corded intro that they scrapped and went more with the drums. He doesn't talk a lot about Alex in this book, which is kind of interesting. He praises Dave, he praises Ed, he praises Mike. He doesn't go praising Al. He says two things about Al that kind of stood out. Number one, that his drums were incredible and everybody wants some. And number two, that he was the conduit to speak to Ed in the sense that he had a way that he would communicate with Ed. Kind of give the impression that Ed was sort of nervous around Ted a little bit, and they all were trying to please Ted. He was sort of like a father figure. I guess it was sort of like the first four or five albums that everybody was just like doing everything to please Ted, whatever you want, Ted, no problem, Ted, whatever you you know want, Ted, that kind of thing. He said that the, the vibe was always great in the band and that he also noted in a simple rhyme as an overlooked classic, he compared it to the Who's Won't Get Fooled Again. Then he started getting into the whole situation when they got to Fair Warning, right? And now you're on the fourth album there. You could see that Ed was getting upset and sort of like, agitated about what was going on with the band, but he said he cared about Ed deeply and said, if you want to walk out, I'll walk out with you type of thing. And I don't know, it was sort of really weird. I don't know, it was sort of an interesting moment, but he did note that he said Unchained, and this I thought really verified our argument, Davis, Unchained being the best Van Halen song. He says, Unchained remind me of how prolific and special the songwriting partnership was between Dave and Ed. Ed came up with this incredible riff, and Dave paired it with those fantastic lyrics. None of them could match Van Halen's songcraft or humor when he talks about other bands. Like, everybody was trying to be Van Halen. Now, he talked about, in the song, when Dave does the whole rap, Hey, man, look at you. You're going to get some leg tonight for sure. You know, that kind of thing. What happened was, was Ted had come into the studio that day wearing a, a sharp white suit. It was interesting that Dave started just sort of like, you know, bantering back and forth and... and Ted wanted to capture that on the record, and the one who said, come on, Dave, give me a break, that's actually Ted saying that, which is kind of funny. But it starts getting into some of the little background politics, like, for example, during Fair Warning, Ed had married Valerie, and she was a TV sweetheart on One Day at a Time, and that... This agitated Dave, and Dave refused to be an usher at Ed's wedding, and he didn't even show up to the party at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and that was kind of interesting. Dave, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's one of those quirky Dave things where he does what he wants, and as much as he knows how to be in a a, a ringleader in a in a crowd full of thousands of people, yeah, like he doesn't sh- he doesn't show up at a social event, you know, at the after wedding party. Which Ted said was basically a power play, right. which I can totally see Dave doing. It was nice to hear Ted confirm how the talking part in Unchained was done. Yep. And that he was coming in wearing, was it a white suit? I thought he just said he was coming in wearing a suit. It was I, a I white suit. Yeah, white suit. Oh, was it? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. But I just thought, you know, that wasn't spontaneous. It was definitely rehearsed. And, no, and no, no. It was in, but it was inspired by Dave's comments. Like, for example... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah. Absolutely. So, there is lots of great background information on these albums. I mean, they they happen pretty quick. I mean, they were happening every year, going all the way back to Van Halen 1. On Van Halen 2, 
I was surprised how much time he spent on You're No Good compared oh my God, he went to on the and rest on. of the album. Because I'm sitting there and I'm like, I, like, I'm not in love with that song. Right. I mean, Ted thinks it's the best version of the song ever. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going, I got to tell you, I know this is sacrilegious, yeah. but I think Linda Ronstadt's version is much better. And, well, it's, and Linda's yeah. is a cover... It's not the first version of the song either. Yeah. I, and I was yeah. just like amazed. He spent quite a few pages on that. Yeah. And the rest of the album, you know, was boiled down to like a couple of paragraphs. Yeah, that, that was a little weird. You know what I think he loves about that song, Dave? I think he loves the sonic capturings on there. Like he got some crazy yelps from Roth and also a great performance from Ed. So I think... The way that came together, I think, wowed him somehow. But I tell you, it's very interesting, and it's telling for the rest of the book, the certain things that really impress Ted and the things that don't. It's actually very surprising. That's sort of a theme that goes throughout the book, especially in the Van Halen parts, at least, is that you're like, wow, he, he was really wowed with that. But this he wasn't impressed by. It's a little interesting how he gets so wrapped up in certain things and other things he he blows past. Okay, so the next thing, we get to Diver Down. Okay, so this is where the beginning of the breakdown starts. If you could just, Diver Down I call the cracks. You could just, all of a sudden, you start seeing the cracks. So this is where I got very confused. And this is where it started to remind me a little bit of the Ace Freely book, Ace Freely's No Regrets uh, biography, where I think memory gets a little clouded or confused. I mean, this is just my impression. I mean, this is Ted's perspective, okay? But some of this doesn't add up, and this is what I don't understand. So he talked about in the book saying, like, it was like Ed's idea to do Pretty Woman as a standalone single or something like that, and they were all into doing this video for MTV, and I don't quite understand, like, why Warner Brothers would be all into putting out a single and a video with no album to back it. Then the single gets released, and it's a hit, so they run into the studio to rush out an album, which is Diver Down. And the time frame doesn't make any sense, because the single gets released in February 1982... And then they start saying it starts to do well, and they're kind of rushing the album to catch on the heat of the single, and the album comes out April of 82. So it doesn't make any sense to me. How is, I mean, like, they had no plans for an album, and they rushed that through? He says, I never wanted them to do that song, referring to Pretty Woman. I didn't even like it when Roy Orbison did it. He said it's vocally wrong for Dave, and he was vehemently against this. But what I didn't understand was, like, why he was so supportive of it. Like, it didn't make any – just none of that made sense. What do you think of that whole thing? Yeah, what, well, it was weird. I think what they wanted to do at that time was, after basically doing four albums in a row, right? they wanted to take some time off. Right. But they didn't want to not have a presence right. on the charts. They didn't want to go away completely. So they said, all right, look, we'll do a single – We'll put it out there, right? And then we'll take some time, right? Because I mean, the cracks were showing in Diver Down, but even before that, the cracks were also showing, yeah, around the Fair Warning, right, era, right. Which I mean, you know, also Noel Monk talks in his book, right? Uh, you know, these guys, you know, they never took a break, right? So right. they, I mean, they wanted to take a break. They had great intentions of taking a break, yeah, yeah. The only problem was, right. 
is that the single at the time was rising up the charts to be their highest charting single at the time. Right. So, of course, the record company is going to be like, oh, uh, Ted actually says, you know, the money's in the album. Right. N- not in the single. At least right. at, at, at that time. At that time, for make, sure, yeah. They, they didn't make any money on the singles. They made money on albums. Right. So here's the single rising up the chart. There's no album behind it. So that reminded Ted of his early days when he was in Harper's Bazaar. Right. And they had a single, Feeling Groovy. It started going up the charts. And then they had to do an album <laughs> to support to support it, which, of course, threw the band completely off because they thought they were going to take time off. And, yeah, you're right. The timing does seem wacky because it's like, how fast did they make that album? I mean, did they bang it out in, like, a month? Yes. And then you're telling me, like, the record company had, like, another month to to put it out, you know, do the artwork, do the promotion, yada, yada, yada. And then, boom, it was out. I mean, talk about a rush release. I mean, I'm not saying it, it's impossible. It's not. Mm-hmm. But, I, I mean, I think that was also why there were cracks, because Van Halen thought they were getting some time off. Right. They didn't. They had a rush release an album, mm-hmm. do covers, right. which, as we all know, Ed wasn't enamored with. Right. I mean, there are some great originals on that album. And then they had to go and tour again. when They didn't think they were going to tour right away. Right. Meanwhile, you know, Ed had just gotten married. Right. And, and all that jazz. And I guess they really weren't in a position to go back to the record company and say, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. We're not, we're not putting, no, we're, we're taking the time off that we said right. we were going to take off. I guess even though they had four albums in front of them that went platinum, they didn't have that kind of pull. And I mean, unfortunately for the band, that album sold Diver Down. Yeah. I mean, sold really well. Yeah. Certainly did a lot better than Fair Warning. I mean, Fair Warning had been their worst-selling album to date. Right. And here comes Diver Down, and I don't know if it was their best-selling album to date. I mean, no, no, it wasn't. But, but it was good. It was real. Look, they had It was heat. really good. They all it of a sudden good. had heat, and they had heat on right. a single. Now you got MTV coming out. They're playing the video. They it was like a it was like a wave that they had to get on the surfboard and ride it. They had no choice. You, you got a hit, great. Make an album, get back on tour, get going. Because right, they, they, well, I don't yeah. think MTV was playing the video though. Did they get banned by MTV? I don't know. Are they? Are they I mean, but that, yeah, I mean, that, but that was the whole other thing. Ted said I didn't understand yeah. why they were spending yeah. so much time right. On the video. Right, right. Because he was all about the music, and then they had to do the intruder intro because the video was too long. Right. And he just did not understand. You know, they were basically making the music for the video. Right, right. And why they were just so focused on that when they should have just been focused on the music. Right. Now, here's the, the other thing is, this is where it became a very big breakdown. Okay. So they decided to do Dancing in the Street, the single cover, and then Ed had this original piece of music that Ted wanted to use to attach to it. Now, if you remember, you listen to the Van Halen version of Dancing in the Street, which, by the way, was recently covered by the Struts. The whole intro is basically like an original piece of music that Ed attached to the song Dancing in the Street. And by the time you get to the, the chorus and the different verses, you know, they're all dancing in the street. 
it's almost like two songs in one put together. They almost took like a Van Halen song and mixed it with Dancing in the Street and came out with this song. But meanwhile, Ed got no credit for it. And it's really bothered Ed. And he says, I love Ed, but his complaints about the song are hard to stomach. Ed at the time never told me he wasn't happy with what was done with the song. And it's clear that this incident was a big reason why he'd seek more creative control going forward. Now, that was interesting. He starts getting into the building of 5150. This is also a, this is where the book gets really wild. He says, I was never against him building it, meaning 5150, the studio. I was never against him building it. Still, I saw it as a home studio because when it was first being built, we never talked about recording the next Van Halen album in 5150. I thought that was the strangest comment ever. Why the hell do you think Ed was building a studio if he wasn't planning to record the next Van Halen album there? That made no sense to me. How is it that when I was 12 years old reading this in the magazine, I knew that he was going to record the next Van Halen album there, but he didn't know that. That didn't. What did you think of that? I, I didn't think it was as strange as you did. Really? No. I mean, he wanted a studio, so okay, so he could practice in there, do demos in there, things like that. The fact that Ted thought, okay, he's going to build a home studio this way, you know, he can practice on his own. That's fine. I mean, the fact it never crossed his mind that they would record Van Halen albums there, that's not surprising because that's what you go to professional studios for. Right. Well, I guess what Ted didn't realize at the time was it was really a power play by Ed. Oh, yeah. Because he really wanted to make albums his way, and this was his way of doing that. Right. But the thing is, Ted's always had a different perspective and has not always understood members of the band's perspective even going back to when they signed the deal for the first Van Halen album. Yeah. Ted talks about, you know, these guys, you know, they said how, you know, they didn't get a good deal right away, but they forget when they were hungry and didn't have a record deal. Right, they would have signed anything. And then, right, would have signed anything, and they, and they did sign anything, and then they complain later how they got a bad deal. Right. And Ted's like, I, I don't understand that. And the thing is, you know, Van Halen has said some of the live interviews they've done, you know, Ted is Ted. Yeah. And that's that. You yeah. know, even Sammy had said in his autobiography, those guys had gotten, like, not a great deal. And that's putting it nicely. Right. When they first signed with Warner Brothers. Right. And I think the band realized that. So, sure, they got a record deal, but they felt like they weren't getting paid what they thought they should have been getting paid. Right. And so, Ted... The executive, as opposed to Ted, the record producer, right. that part of him starts coming out in those parts of the book yeah. where it's talking about when they sign their record deal right. or later on when they're doing Diver Down. I mean, not so much Ted, the record. Well, yeah, maybe Ted, the record executive, he just didn't see like the fact that Ed was so frustrated that he was definitely going to be recorded the next Van Halen album, even though the studio was still being built oh yeah they were you know they were still putting stuff together oh, and yeah. it was like literally a mess yeah. when they walked into it but ed did not care no because he wanted to make he was the album yeah. his way yeah i mean that was his way of controlling ted you know not you know when ted shows up at the door right and, 
you know, John Landy is not answering and driving away. Yeah, no, no, that, you know, we get into that. I, this is interesting. Yeah, all so, sorts of BS like that. Yeah, yeah. So he, what he said was he wasn't happy about 5150. He called it a semi-completion state with everything that was jerry-rigged. He says, whenever I was in there, I felt like I was working in a bathtub. Everything was so confined. It really felt off to me. Now, here's the other part. Don Landy was Ted's right-hand man. They were like Batman and Robin, those two. Those guys were like a duo team that really made some incredible producing albums, beyond Van Halen, too. So, But he said, Ed always wanted me to be happy with it, meaning 5150, and Don wanted it to work for all of us, too. They were all pushing for 5150. And he said, I was willing to give it a try, even though I had reservations. But he wanted the band to record at Sunset Sound, where he knew how to do everything and everything was cool. But this was a total power play move. And as we get deeper into this, especially into the 1984 album, boy, does this become a power play movie. We get to 5150. They're working on the 1984 album. And Ed was all jazzed about the keyboard riff for Jump. We all know the famous keyboard riff for Jump. He had played it for Dave and Ted, and he said, Dave and I at least hadn't liked it as much the first time we heard it, and I, I still wasn't sold on it now, meaning he had played it for them before, he played it for them again, and he said they kept looking at each other and just cringing every time they heard the keyboards. He said it sounded like something you'd hear playing in between innings at a baseball stadium. And he said it sounded very pop, and Van Halen wasn't a pop group. Jump was way too pop for my ears. He said I wanted them to stay edgy and raw. Diver Down served its purposes, but it was too pop for me. I liked the Fair Warning stuff better. I thought these guys should stay right in that pocket. And then he was saying how Ed was encouraged by Don Landy to follow his muse. But he said the song grew on Ted, and Ted had Dave write lyrics. And he said that Dave wrote... The lyrics to Jump in an hour, he said initially he was concerned that it sounded like someone was trying to commit suicide. It was too rough and a heartless perspective. But Dave started to give him the perspective on it. He, he said that Dave was a genius when it came to songwriting. And he said that if Dave hadn't come up with those words Jump, the song would have never had the same impact for sure. And he said, now I knew, well, I thought I knew it was a hit. But I thought, oh, my God, Van Halen is over, sonically at least, because the abandonment of Van Halen had just disappeared into Pop City for me. As a fan, I wanted them to stay true to their core character as a band. He started talking about how Hot for Teacher and Panama were. That was Van Halen. He loves those songs. He loves Top Jimmy. He loved Drop Dead Legs. To him, that goes, that's Van Halen. He talked about Dave and the unique perspective that he had. And he says, Dave looked around at life like everything around him like it was a huge cartoon. His words and his unique way of seeing the world were a big part of why the band was special. He also went on to continue to praise Mike. He says about Mike, the guy never missed a beat. His bass playing was always superb. He did everything right, including singing backgrounds with an unbelievable voice. You couldn't ask for a better bass player to go with Ed's guitar playing. I mean, if that isn't praise, right? I mean, Dave, he went out of the way and he was talking about Dave's lyrical contributions were an essential but underappreciated part of what made Van Halen so great. So he really lays it on the line there for Mike and Dave, right? Yeah, it gets full props 
yeah. to those guys. You know, it's not just the Ed show anymore, like he was saying in 78. So he yeah. has. He's come full circle and given Dave the props where he so deserved them. And still giving credit to Michael Anthony, deservedly so. Right. And then he started saying that Ed and Don were not taking the deadline seriously for 1984. And it was causing tension. And it was becoming like a camp between Dave and Ted and Ed and Don. And it was getting a little bit uncomfortable. But he says that Dave was never the bad guy with all the drama surrounding these sessions. He said he always did his homework. And he said if this had happened at Sunset Sound, this would have never happened on his watch. Then he got into the song I'll Wait, which he was not a fan of. And he used to break Ed's balls. About it, when he would play the keyboards for I'll Wait, Ted would kind of razz Ed by singing Origins Hold Your Head Up. And it would drive Ed crazy. It would get him upset. And he says, I just didn't love Ed's new keyboard stuff. In part because I thought it diluted what made Van Halen distinctive. Then he just talked about how Dave asked for help from Michael McDonald from, on the chorus and the melody. And apparently Michael McDonald did a lot of work on that song, more than we thought. He, uh, he worked on the song title and the lyrics and the chorus melody. And they were really trying to beat the clock here with the production on this album in 1984. Apparently when he hears the album, he, he says, it like still bothers me. He says, I'm still not crazy about Jump. He says, but Ed was on the money. So he gave Ed credit. I mean, it's a number one song, it's an anthem for the 80s, but he said, I would have never have guessed that would happen, meaning like that it would be so big. He said, that thing wouldn't have come out if I had been part of the process. And then it also talks about I'll Wait and how Michael McDonald wasn't originally credited as a songwriter on that song. And it impacted Ted's close relationship with Michael McDonald. What did you think of this whole 1984 situation? This was wild and he got into the whole story that we know you mentioned before about uh, the hiding of the tapes with you get into it Dave and you can talk more on this how Ted needed the masters and Don was hiding them and he was that was just like insane that was unbelievable to read that like the stress levels were so high yeah like I was alluding to before you know Ted would show up it's like oh you know Don's not here and then you know he's he's driving away and he's you know, effectively, like, holding the tapes hostage, and what was he threatening to do with them? Like, throw them somewhere? Uh, I forget exactly what he was going to do with them. But Ted was really at the end of his rope at that time. Right. I mean, it, you know, and, yeah, sure, because if they were at Sunset Studios or Amigo Studios or yeah. or wherever, like, this would not be an issue because the tapes would be there right. and they'd be done. And the fact that Ted has his home studio now, and now they're, like, playing these games and shenanigans. It's tainting the water, and it's it's tainting the relationship. And, by the way, I think Don Landy does the same thing again yeah. later on and uh, with, with the 5150 I out. know, I know. And, and as a reader, and, and Ted doesn't talk about that no. because, you know, he wasn't part of that, but that, right. that was elsewhere. But for me as a fan, like, whenever I read this stuff, I'm like, like, how many times is Don going to pull this? Yeah, stuff? it is really you know? Cause weird. Because after a while, the record company is going to be like, you know what? If this is how it's going to be every album, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're like, we're not, we're not going to deal with you. Which, and which is why, you know, with 5150, the record company insisted that there be an outside producer. Right. Which is I mean, because Jones, I don't, because right. like after the whole 1984 thing, right. I mean, if Eddie Van Halen comes to you and says, 
Uh, yeah, it's just going to be the band, which is really me and Don, and we're doing the album. Right. And, and you're the executives at Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. and, and you're sitting there going, okay, so Ted's not going to be a part of it. Right. What do you think about that? Yeah. Uh, no. Right. No. Right. Because we remember what happened last time. Absolutely. So, and you know so what we're I... not doing that. And the whole thing with Michael McDonald not being credited oh. as a songwriter. How is that I'm, possible? Like, exactly. <laughs> like, I feel like... Like, somebody purposely did that. I know. Which is amazing because there was a, you know, there was a whole written contract for this. I know. I mean, this stuff was up for auction for crying out loud. I know, I know. I mean, there's there's proof that this happened. And the fact you didn't get credit, I mean, first of all, uh, you know, it's illegal. It's a slap in the face. The guy does you a favor. Oh, huge favor. And and what happens? I don't think it was an oversight. I mean, that's like, come on. And I don't know who in the organization. Yeah. But somebody was just like, no, you know, we don't want that to happen. Right. Uh, we don't use outside songwriters. Right. So there'll be none of that. Honestly, I don't know who it is. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if it was somebody in the band. I don't know, you know, if it was somebody in the back office. I mean, who the heck knows? Right. But because believe me, if I were Michael McDonald, I'd be ticked off too. It was a big hit, yeah. right? Yeah. He did them a favor. Exactly. But and let's look at this now. Ted is the producer for the Doobie Brothers. He's also the producer for Van Halen. He's also the record executive for the Doobie Brothers. He's also the record executive for Van Halen. He's also good friends with Michael McDonald, who also is a huge star. So how does something like that with all of those levels get flown through the cracks. I don't understand that. Yeah, it's crazy. It doesn't make any and, sense. And and insulting. And the thing is, it was such a big hit, even though Ted thought it wasn't going to be a big hit. But by Ted's own admission elsewhere in the book, picking singles was not always his strongest suit. Right. And he totally gives Ed full props right. for pushing on that song, and they did it as a single. Yep. And now it's you know, it's just one of those 80 songs. Right. And he fully admits that Ed was right. Ed was totally right yeah, with he that. He said Ed was on the he, money. Yep, he said. Yep, yep. Now, the yep. interesting, now this is another part of the book where it gets a little murky and it's very curious. This is where it really, this is like stepping on the very thin ice here. We're talking about the crazy from the heat era. So now let's look at the facts, and I sort of have a detective's theory on this thing, and I have a whole new perspective on this breakdown of Van Halen after reading this book. You talk about Crazy from the Heat, which started in the early summer of 1984. Apparently, Crazy from the Heat was Ted's idea. He basically said he was going to do something to avoid anything that sounded like hard rock. It was going to be the antithesis of Van Halen. It was going to be tongue-in-cheek fun. He says, I figured this would help Dave get his stuff out of his system and give him a clean slate to start the next Van Halen record. He said that his motivation was to wake Ed up. I mean, it says right there in the book. He says, my motivation was to wake Ed up, meaning like he was going to shine the light on Dave and, and, and then, you know, maybe it would like agitate. Now, let's be honest. Ted was already agitated about how 1984 was made and how they missed the deadline. Originally, 1984 was going to be released at the end of 1983. So I guess around like December, like a Christmas release. And it ended up coming out after the first of the year. And they missed the deadline on that. And he blames Don and Ed for that because they kept changing the mixes and still doing work on it. And Ted was definitely hands down aggravated about Van Halen. 
and what happened with 1984, even though it was a monstrously successful album, and he probably got incredibly rich off of it, all that stuff, but he doesn't really talk about money much on there. He said that uh, he wanted Ed to take a hard look at himself and find the strength to straighten up, almost like that Crazy from the Heat was going to buy some time for Van Halen to straighten out. He says, I believe that Dave didn't have any interest in leaving the band when we worked on Crazy from the Heat. He says, if I had gotten even the slightest sense that he saw this as a step one of David Lee Roth's post Van Halen solo career, I wouldn't have done the record. I never, ever wanted to do anything to threaten the future of Van Halen. I can't emphasize that enough. Now, he says those words, which I believe that he believes, but at the same time, he says over here that he wanted to wake Ed up by, you know, doing a solo EP with Dave. Now, we all know how Dave's ego is gargantuan. So you're going to give Dave a solo spotlight? You're going to give budgets for these big MTV videos and make these big singles? And you're going to promote this? And, and this is not going to cause the problem in the band. I don't care if the songs weren't hard rock. It doesn't really matter. In the 80s, everything was everything. You have to remember, in the 80s, things were different. Like, whether you had a hard rock song or a pop song, it was, like, all part of, like, the mainstream radio. It's not like it is today where everything's segregated. Well, no, that's heavy metal. Well, no, that's speed metal. Well, no, that's thrash metal. Like, everything is so broken down now. Back then, Huey Lewis was on the charts with Van Halen, who was on the charts, with Cindy Lauper, who was on the charts, with Bruce Springsteen, who was on the charts, with Tina Turner. I mean, back then, everything was all one big mixtape. You don't see that as much now. You look at the charts now, you don't see rock songs. It's all the pop stuff that competes with the pop stuff, and the rock stuff is separate, you know what I mean? He says, I thought the Crazy from the Heat EP was a good move, and that it would keep Dave creative, Van Halen in the public eye, and give Ed time to get it together. And he says, Dave prepared and worked hard. But then he says, I was very surprised at the splash it made. And Dave had made himself even bigger than Jump had made him. And then he started to getting into the movie idea. Now, of course, with Dave having such success with the solo EP and especially the videos that accompanied Justin Gigolo as well as California Girls, he got the movie Crazy from the Heat Greenlit. When I read the book, I, I did get a takeaway that it was Ted's idea to do it. I think he was very supportive of it because he thought it would bring the band together, which kind of surprised me because anytime somebody starts doing a solo album, you, you got to wonder why they're doing a solo album. Right. It just breeds all sorts of questions. And apparently, as we've learned from Noel's book, like the band didn't even know it was being done at the time. Right. So that was probably another slap in the face. The thing that Ted underestimated was how well the EP did. Right. I mean, it had two huge hits on it. Yep. Like you said, made Dave's ego even bigger. Oh, huge. And, right, and so that was the beginning of the end. And then Dave said, hey, let's do a movie. And, you know, he, Ted's not a video guy, right? Like, no. he didn't understand no. why they were doing the video for Pretty Woman. And so when Dave's like, I want to make a movie, yep. Ted was like, I'm paraphrasing here, but Ted was basically like, I don't understand why you're spending so much time on this movie. It's, right. you know, you know, you're the singer in a band. Yeah. You should be working on the next album. Right. 
not the movie. So then he says here, this is where it gets wild. Ted says, I didn't see it coming, but looking back, it's clear now that particularly for Al, the EP was one of the deal breakers when it came to putting up with Dave. Because the EP so angered those guys in retrospect, I wish I had avoided doing it. I wasn't hell-bent on producing the next Van Halen record. My attitude was that 1984 had taken a lot out of all of us, and if Don and Ed wanted to do another record themselves, so be it. Dave and I never had a conversation about him quitting Van Halen. I never wanted Dave to leave that band, ever. And he keeps really reinforcing that. Once that movie thing really got going in early 1985, his head blew up, and he wanted to be a movie star. Once he started with the whole movie thing, that's when he and I didn't collaborate as much. That became his dream. So now, this is what's really interesting, because then Ted goes on to produce Eatman's Smile. Again, this is all well written by Greg. Greg did a great job here, and he's just working what Ted gave him, but or criticism is not of Greg, but of Ted. He says here, I really don't remember who told me about the Van Halen split. Okay, wait a second. Hold on. You are Van Halen's producer from day one. You are the high-level record executive at Warner Brothers Records, and you don't know how you found out that Van Halen split? I don't understand that. And then this is where it really gets murky. Now, he had produced Sammy's album from 1984, VOA, and he was doing pre-production on Sam's album in June of 1985. And then he said, Sam said he heard about Dave leaving Van Halen from him, Ted. He said, and this is a quote from Ted, I don't remember saying it to Sammy, but if I did, I only mentioned it in passing because it had nothing to do with why I called him. I can say that with certainty because here's the absolute unvarnished truth. I never... Your favorite band's about to play a sold-out show. You got in... Over here! ...with a friend and found a spot close enough to see the set list. They're definitely playing your song. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. There's something scary hiding in the back of your closet. Your bathing suits and summer clothes thing you're pretty sure don't fit anymore. What if there was a way to get into summer shape in one visit? Here's Dr. Brian Strand for Sonobello to explain. It really is quite remarkable. Sonobello doctors use a technology called microlaser fat removal, and the results are amazing. We customize your procedure to accomplish your goals. Just share with us the problem areas where you'd like the fat in inches removed. And in one visit, they're gone, permanently. I can't tell you how often I hear clients say how many years they've been trying to diet and exercise those inches away. And we did it in one comfortable visit. It's time to get your summer on. Visit any of our Sonobello locations across the U.S. And right now you can save $250. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. That's sonobello.com slash save. Ever would have wanted Sammy or any other singer to join Van Halen in 1985. I wanted Dave in that band, period. And I wanted Sammy on his own, because he had built some solid momentum on his last record, and I was looking forward to helping him take it to the next big step forward in his career. This is where it gets really weird. And Ted starts saying he wanted Sammy to do 60s-style R&B songs. Now, Sammy just came off VOA with the big single, I Can't Drive 55, 
and he wants him to go back and do 60s R&B songs, and he wanted to hire the Tower of Power horns to back him, and he says, my gut feeling was that they'd all come to their senses soon, and that Dave and Ed would patch things up, but I was wrong. Sammy was joining Van Halen, and I was not happy. Then he said what was also wild. Now, you got to remember that Sammy was on Geffen Records. So he was a Geffen Records artist. You have to realize, Sammy can't just go over to 5150, join Van Halen, and then go off his merry way. He signed to a contract as a solo artist for Geffen. Van Halen signed to Warner Brothers. So there had to be some serious negotiations going on between David Geffen at Geffen and Mo Austin at Warner Brothers. And he said for some weeks it wasn't clear whether Sammy was going to be able to join Van Halen because they had to work out a deal. And he says, I, but he says he can't blame Sammy for wanting to join Van Halen. But he said this very interesting comment here about Sam. He said, what Sammy did isn't much different than the guy who puts the moves on a wife who has recently separated from her husband. That kind of outside influence, when feelings are raw and unsettled, just kills the chances for any reconciliation. I thought that was a very powerful statement. And he said, if Ed hadn't connected with Sammy through Claudio, which is the Lamborghini or Ferrari dealer, Dave would have returned to the fold and Van Halen would have eventually repaired itself. But now with Sammy in the picture, both sides dug their heels in. Now, I really don't believe this whole fairy tale about Ed getting Sammy's number from Claudio, his car guy, and then he calls Oh, here him. we go. I don't believe it. Here we go. I don't believe it. I don't I believe it. I think you need to make a new bumper for the show. It's conspiracy time. <laughs> and we're on to a new episode of conspiracy time. Welcome to another episode of Van Halen Conspiracy. <laughs> I'm your host, David Griblet. Um, so, <laughs> You know, I tell you, though, it really doesn't ring well to me because it sounds like someone made it up for a press release. I really believe that Sammy found out about Dave vacating Van Halen when Ted called him up talking about pre-production on the album. I think Ted was totally, you know, uh, calling Sam, but I think Sam activated on that. I really, really do. I think because Sam came in there and he came in all of a sudden, Sam moves into the band. His manager takes over Van Halen. Van Halen goes out on tour and they're playing Sammy Hagar songs and hardly any Van Halen songs. I mean, somehow there's some shystering going on there. I'm sorry. Yeah, but let me but let me tell you. I mean, the thing is, what did Ted think Van Halen was going to do? Like, were they going to sit around and wait for Dave? I mean, that's what Ted wanted. I know. Well, but they'll all come around. Yeah, I know. And, I know, I know. and Ed has always said, listen. I just want to play. I just want to play in the band, right? They were figuring out what to do. You know, at one point, a bunch of lead singers, you know, singing one song each on the album was up for grabs. And so here comes Sammy. They meet. They get along. And so Ed's like, you know what? I just want someone who wants to be in a band. And yeah. Sam, we like Sam. He wants to be in the band. Right. Dave does not want to be in the band, or at least Ed perceives right. that Dave doesn't want to be in the band. Right. Dave might tell you a different story. Uh-huh. But Ed, at that point in his life, ironically, Ed was not waiting around right. for things to happen. Right. Right. So to Ted's point, did Sam swoop in there? Of course he did. Right. Now, now I'm not going to get into 
Did he find out from talking to Claudio, or did he find out from talking to Ted? I don't know, nor do I really care. We have said this before on the show. Sam is not an idiot. No. Sam is a very smart guy. He's a cookie. He saw what was going on. Yeah. This, yeah I know you love those cookies. He is a smart cookie. <laughs> very smart cookie. That's right. Sam saw what was going on. Yeah. I'm not saying he took advantage of the situation, but look, this is his ticket to the big time. Right. He's not going to mess it up. Right. He goes, there's magic, there's chemistry. Right. Yeah, the record company's got to work it out. But this is Sam's big chance. Right. He's not going to blow it. Dave's out. Somebody's got to be in. Yeah. Why not Sam? Right. Bam. Right. Absolutely. So now this is the interesting part. I had no idea about this. And this is, in my opinion, the big reveal in the book. He says, Sammy came to Ted, along with Ed Leffler, who was his manager and now Van Halen's manager, asking him to produce the Van Halen record. Ted Templeton said, no, I don't want to do it. And Sam and Ed Leffler were shocked. He said, I have a deep attachment to the band that I had signed. Without Dave, the band wasn't going to feel right to me with a different singer. Van Halen's sound and feel was going to change. I always wanted that original Van Halen vibe. It wasn't so much a question of whether or not I wanted Sammy to join Van Halen because I didn't want any other singer in that band. When Sam pushed Ted on that issue, Ted apparently, according to Ted, said to his face, look, I just can't do it. It's not personal. But without Dave, it's not Van Halen to me. And Ed Leffler lost it. And he said, this is my big chance. And he got really mad. And Ted Templeman said, I am not going to do it, period. And now also, which is interesting, I thought that you figure Warner Brothers as a company would want Ted to helm this changeover here because Ted knows the band. Ted's had monstrous, successful past with the band. He's the guy to oversee this smooth transition. But... Apparently that meeting left in a half. It was in a Mexican restaurant, he said. And Ed Leffler said that Ted Templeman broke Sammy's heart when he told him about the R&B singer idea and that he was insulted. He says, I also told Leffler and Sammy that I just couldn't get past the fact that they'd be calling themselves Van Halen without Dave in the band. Ed said, it's my name and my brother's name. And Sammy Hagar, apparently, even after that horrible meeting, he continued to pursue Ted. And then Ted came back with a little uh, chip there, and he says, I tell you what, I'll do it if they change the band name. Then I could live with it. I was thinking that maybe with Sammy in the mix, the vibe at 5150 wouldn't be so dark. Because he loved working with Sammy. He says he has full of energy and optimism and incredible vocal expertise. And his final offer was, change the name of the band and I'm on board. I wasn't trying to be difficult, he said, but it's how I felt. He wanted him to call it Van Hagar. But Ed was indignant and he said, hey, it's my name. And it wasn't Van Halen. He said, the original Van Halen to me represented something singular and unique. He says, Van Halen isn't Van Halen to me without Ed and Dave. In my mind, they were like Led Zeppelin or the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, whereas John and Paul, Keith and Meg, Plant and Page. So then this caused him to go work on Eat Him and Smile, and then it looked like that Ted had chosen Dave over Van Halen. He says a lot of people have that perspective, 
but that was not true. He kept going over that in the book over and over. This is not true. That David Lee Roth was nowhere near a recording studio at that time. He says, I can only imagine how those guys must have felt, meaning Van Halen. First, Dave quits. Then I turn them down. I suspect Ed in particular felt betrayed and abandoned. He said he was focusing on a solo career for Dave. And he said, what drives me crazy is that Ed seems to have lost sight of the fact that Dave and I did the EP because we just wanted to work. And on multiple occasions, we go up to 5150 and we get nothing done. I still don't think Ed has the faintest inkling that our frustration during the making of 1984 were a big part of why Dave and I did the EP. There's proof right there. And he said before that he was trying to wake Ed up. He obviously caused the breakup, in my opinion. In my opinion, that caused the breakup. He says it's kind of crazy to think of at this point that the Van Halen breakup saga as a misunderstanding of our motivations, but that's what happened. Now, he said he had resentment coming from Ed and Al, and that Ted Templeman was talking about putting together a band for Dave, and he had pitched him Steve Stevens from Billy Idol's band, who apparently had signed a record deal with Warner Brothers for the Atomic Playboys album. I remember that. And then uh, Billy Sheen was the first to join Dave's band, and he had suggested Steve Vai. And they were, at the time, working on a soundtrack to the movie Crazy from the Heat, and which I always thought was kind of strange. Is what the hell are they going to call the second album, Crazy from the Heat? Uh, it's kind of weird. But he said, uh, <laughs> right? That would have been weird. So, but he had put the band together. And then they got Greg Bissonette in there without even Ted being involved with that. But he knew that he, since he worked for Maiden Ferguson, that he would be good. And he said the band was killer. And he was blown away by the musicianship. And he said, with Edaman's smile, and I thought this was a perfect description of Edaman's smile. He says, my perspective was to do Diver Down meets Fair Warning. I thought that was the best description of Edom and Smile. What do you think? Hmm. I never thought of it that way. Yeah, it's got, if you think about it real closely, that's exactly what Edom and Smile is. It's like Fair Warning mixed with Diver I, Down. Well, I don't know. I certainly can see the comparison. You want me to break it down for you? No, 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 I don't. Save it for another podcast. Um... <laughs> I see the Diver Down comparison because there's some cover songs there. Right. I mean, but the thing about Diver Down is there are some hard-rocking songs on Diver Down. Yes, there are. You know, and I don't see, like, I really don't see Edom's smile as this serious matter, you know, almost depressing. No, but there's some dark uh, songs on there. Elephant well, Gun, the music might be dark. I don't know that I see. Well, lyrically, maybe. I don't know. I, Shy Boy. I would say, here's what I would say. I would say it's Diver Down-like with a side of Fair Warning. That's what I would say. I mean, we've talked about this album before. I mean, love the album. There's hard-rocking songs. are certainly truer to the Van Halen spirit than uh, 5150 was. Mm-hmm. I-, I think my opinion, some other people might disagree, and they can make a case for that. You're right. It's a very interesting time, and it's interesting to me that Ted was so surprised that, like, for instance, Sammy was so put off about his suggestion for uh-huh. going in an R&B direction. Yeah. I'm not saying Sam couldn't have pulled it off he probably could have and it would have been interesting but sam was certainly on a good trajectory at geffen they were his best-selling albums of his career yeah at that time so yeah i mean why mess with a winning formula right i'm not saying sam's albums were, were the best right 
his meat and potatoes were hard rocking songs. Right. So he probably should have stayed in that direction. It was very interesting that they practically begged Ted to produce that album. Yeah. I mean, that's not a surprise. The thing about Ed, though, Ed probably, I don't know if he cared as much that Ted didn't produce the album because he was such at odds with him during 19. That's what I didn't understand. He had Don in his corner. Yeah. He probably felt, I got Don, that's all I need. I really don't need Ted anymore. Yeah, I know, but it's interesting why they would even ask Ted to do it. I thought that was strange. Keep in mind, the deal that Warner Brothers had to make with Geffen in regards to getting Sam was Geffen got part of the profits for 5150. They also got another solo album from Sam, which was I Never Said Goodbye. They also got Sam to agree to do their greatest hits with a couple new songs. Like, there was a lot of dealings to get Sam into that band. It was a big ordeal, that's for sure. Yes, yeah, no, it was. I mean, well, Sam will tell you he was one of the biggest sellers on the label. He'll tell you that all the time. But to give him credit, he was coming off of VOA, his biggest album. Right. He had a big hit. He was one of the bigger sellers on Geffen, absolutely. Yeah. So why would David Geffen just be like, okay, yeah, goodbye, give that away? Doesn't make any sense. David Geffen wasn't an idiot, so he negotiated his his terms of release. Absolutely. So now also in regards to Eat Him and Smile, now Ted started getting into the band. Once they've built the band up with Billy Sheehan and Steve I and Greg Bissonette, he says the album we'd make could never match a Van Halen album by the original four guys, but I wanted to try to get as close as we could. And the album was loud and leering and fun and ferocious, and it was more than the synth-heavy stuff Ed was doing. He explains why there's such incredible high energy on that album. And he talks about Shy Boy, which he decided was a standout on the album. It was the closest to Van Halen. And he says, I heard later that when Eddie first listened to Shy Boy, especially that insane ending Billy and Steve put together, he got upset because it was so over-the-top technically brilliant that he interpreted it as a personal challenge to him. I thought that was really interesting to hear. What do you think? That song, and, and definitely that ending, is, is one of the high points of the album. Oh, totally. I mean, it really just accentuates the kind of bass playing that Billy Sheehan brought to the table that, quite frankly, wasn't on a Van Halen album right. before. Right. So it's no wonder that Ed felt threatened. And, you know, the thing was is that, you know, after Crazy from the Heat, I know maybe everybody thought Dave was going to be like, you know, oh, let's make another Bozy Bozy Bop, right. Kitty Bop right. album. And Dave did not do that. I mean, they had worked on a bunch of songs for the movie. Yeah. And then the movie didn't pan out. Right. And then they went back into the studio and said, all right, well, let's do a few more songs. Right. And I have enough songs for the album. And like you said, I mean, there's a lot of songs on that album that rock hard. And Dave recognized that. And Ted, when he came in there, I mean, he made sure that, you know, he was following old school Van Halen practices by, you know, making it sound as live as he could. And, you know, Steve Vai would have loved to, you know, overdub stuff and redo it again and again. Yeah, yeah. And much to Steve's frustration, Ted was having none of that. Right. But, I mean, the proof is in the pudding. Is I mean, it's 
it's still a rocking album to the, to this day. Absolutely. It's, he talked about like that's life. He said he didn't think it was the greatest performance for Dave, but he said it was full of bravado, enthusiasm, and personality. And he said Ladies' Night in Buffalo was one of the highlights of his career. He thought that Dave really nailed it on that song, which is fantastic. And he said the whole album possessed a real Van Halen spirit. And then in the midst of all this, while making everything, Ed had called on Ted Templeman to sequence 5150 album. And he met with Don and Ed, and I didn't quite understand why he went to Ted to do that. Didn't you find that an odd moment in the book? Why do you find that odd? Why would he need Ted to sequence the album? That that doesn't make any sense. Well, I think they were still trying to get Ted to be involved with the album somewhat. <laughs> and I guess they had never done that themselves oh, before. What does it take? And, you know, that was always Ted's thing. And, and Ted admits earlier in the book that he would go to the bitter end to sequence an album. I mean, I think he says, you know, for some of the earlier Van Halen albums, if you look at the back cover of, of the vinyl albums, like the sequence on the back is not really the sequence on the album because they had approved the artwork already, but Ted was still fussing around with it till the very end. Yeah. I forget which, which albums it was. Oh, you know what it was? It was Fair Warning and it was Diver Down. I mean, these days you can do any sequence you want, so it, it you know, to yeah. the people today, yeah. they're probably like, well, what's the big deal? Who cares? But back then, it, it was what it was. Right. But I guess they, you know, they liked the way that Ted did it. But, yeah, they just couldn't let it go. I mean, the funny part was they had a producer. They had Mick Jones. Yeah. They were not involving him. No. You know? It's like a shake-your-head kind of moment. That's for sure. So now here's the other funny thing is he says that Eat Him and Smile is sonically better than 5150. He says 5150, though he doesn't really talk about the album much, he just says it wasn't to my taste. But then he also said that David Lee Roth had success but didn't deliver the commercial benefit to Warner Brothers. But he was incredibly surprised by plugging Sammy into Van Halen and the band still remains huge and a big selling act without Dave. Dave was committed to hard, heavy rock and that was more in the Van Halen style. But he kept hoping for a reconciliation to try to get Van Halen back together, which I thought was Nuts. I can't believe that he really thought, even after 5150 and the success they had with Sam, that Dave was still going to come back to the band. Didn't you find that strange? Yeah. I mean, especially because Van Halen, they didn't do any videos. They started the tour. The album hadn't come out yet. They have a new manager. They've got a new producer. I mean, they've got everything stacked against them. And they, they come out with a number one album, and they knock it out of the park. And all the press they're doing is, hey, we're buddy-buddy with Sam. We love Sam. And you think, like, after that, that the band is going to be like, eh, you know, we're we're done now. We're going to go back to Dave. I mean, I guess Ted had really underestimated oh. how well the album was going to do, how well they were going to get along with Sam. Whether you need to restock the fridge or just have a sudden, intense craving for cheese puffs, Kroger Delivery will get you just what you need in as little as 30 minutes. From groceries to household items, Kroger delivers right to your door. So don't let one major craving have you reaching for your car keys. 
Open the Kroger app and start your cart, whatever the cart. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Delivery times not guaranteed. Restrictions may apply. See site for details. Why should you visit Kings Island? Do it because less time planning means more time for this. Do it to take a one-day family vacation. Do it to catch a serious case of the giggles together. And of course, do it to eat a funnel cake the size of your face. Because here at Kings Island, doing something just for the fun of it is all the reason you need. Right now, everyone pays kids price. Kings Island tickets just $45 online. And that it was just going to be this big love fest for the next decade. Yeah, oh, totally. He kept saying here, so now this is another weird turn to the book. He talked about he produced Done With Mirrors for Aerosmith, and he was about to do the next Aerosmith album, which ended up being Permanent Vacation, which was done by Bruce Fairburn, producer of the Balance album, which we celebrated last month for the 25th anniversary. The interesting thing was he was going to do the next Aerosmith album, but Dave said he was ready to do his next solo album. So he said, all right, so you're going to be ready to go in the studio? He says, yes. So he kind of gave up the job of producing the next Aerosmith album so he could work on Dave's second solo album, or third if you count the EP, I don't know, whatever, the second one, the one following Eat Him and Smile. But Dave ends up firing Ted, and he goes into the detail about how Dave hosts a meeting, and he goes to Dave's office, and Dave sits behind a desk and fires him, and he said it was like getting his pocket picked of a million dollars, and he says, I was so pissed at Dave for firing me, but more than anything else, the way he did it pissed me off. Here he is behind a desk, terminating me like I was a guy who had done a bad job painting his house. He was a prick about it, and he was mad that he lost the Aerosmith job, but he says that Dave did that as a competitive move so that he wouldn't be producing Aerosmith and he could knock that out of the way. But he says Dave wasn't even thankful for all he had done for his career, but he was more mad about losing the Aerosmith job. Then they go into the whole thing about, you know, he goes back to 5150 in 1991. This is strange. Ed calls him up and says, Ted, can you come in and crack the whip? Now, what the hell was going on? They had already had a success at 5150. They had already had a success with OU812. They're on their third album with Sammy for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge. It was being produced by Andy Johns, who produced Led Zeppelin and the Stones. And then they're having problems, and Ed calls up Ted and says, Ted, can you come in and crack the whip? Well, Ted Templeman said, Ed's a brilliant creative guy, but he was never very organized or focused on deadlines. And when Ed ran into a jam, he'd call me because he knew he could count on me. And there's even a part of the book, and this was also another dark turn, where Ed gets into a physical altercation with Valerie's father, I believe it is, and... Ed ends up getting his face punched in and having to go to the hospital, and Valerie calls Ted to take care of the situation, right, Dave? Wasn't that weird? Yeah, I don't, like, what? <laughs> that is weird that she's, she's calling up Ted. It was I, just I guess, bizarre. You know, I, guess no, I guess nobody else was home. I mean, I don't know. What, I don't know, man. I, 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 I don't know what happened. But, yeah, I mean, Andy John, oh. I mean, brilliant producer, would never take away anything from him in terms of the sound he, he was getting right. for the band. But, uh, you know, apparently, which is shocking because he's like a major producer. Totally. So, like, what is happening? Yeah. What is happening at 5150? Right, exactly. That they're so far behind that they, they can't get an album. To, I mean, admittedly, yeah. like, if it 
I mean, my impression has always been if it was up to Ed, right. he would just be, you know, noodling all day, right. la, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. and okay, you need somebody yeah. to get things done. Totally. But that's, Ed, but that's Andy's job. Right. So why can't he do it? So, And I know that Ted joined when the album was already much of the way through, right. but I really don't think it's a coincidence that Van Halen's most rocking album with Sam is also one that Ted is involved with. Absolutely, and it was also involved with. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think that's a coincidence at all. And also, what was revealed in the book was that when things really broke down with Andy Johns, is apparently he completely erased one of Sammy's great vocal tracks, and Sammy lost his shit. Oh and, yeah, and I think that's yeah, yeah, that's when they start. Yeah, I because right not, yeah. now. You're right, because I think Sam was like, that's it, I'm done, right. I'm not working with you yeah, anymore. Yeah, he's like, oh, fuck this. Right, yeah, and I think that's know. when Ed called Ted. Yeah, yeah. Because at least Sam had worked with Ted before, and Eddie knew he would work with him, and that's how they right. Got, right. <laughs> that's how, how they got the album and done. Absolutely, and there's a line here from Ted that says, you could drag Sammy out of bed, put a mic in front of his face, and he'd give you killer stuff. That's how talented he is. He's saying that, that you could literally do that with Sammy. But Sammy was mad. Then Andy Johns was pissed that they brought Ted in. Now, Ted's not only a high-level producer. He's a high-level executive at the label that's putting out the album. And Andy Johns starts abusing Ted. He was unhinged, apparently, and he spat at him. Ted described him as a giant grizzly bear who was confrontational and gruff. And he thought Ed loved him and Al just wanted those sounds of the John Bonham drums. But Andy was insulted that they brought in Ted, and that Sammy was mad that Andy erased his vocals, and it was all getting crazy. He ended up giving Andy money, $25,000, to help him with his bills, and I don't know, man. This was crazy. And then he did talk about how he loved... Spanked, the song Spanked. This is why I keep saying how strange it is. Certain songs he just falls in love with that you, you don't expect. But he talked about how Spanked and how much he loved it. And he loves Sammy's upbeat lyrics on top of the world. But I do think you have a point there why that album sounds so rocking. I, I will also say Balance is rocking too. There's some really good stuff on Balance. And like I said in our last cast, you know, that's an album definitely worth revisiting because there's some good stuff there. There's some big reason why that album is so good. I mean, Andy Johns, too. I mean, Andy Johns is an incredible producer, but apparently he had some substance abuse problems mixed with Ed's substance abuse problems mixed with Ed's not great time organizing skills. You know, Sammy getting pissed off and then it becomes a whole big mess. And who had to come in but Uncle Ted come in there and clean everything up. But it really just showed you the father figure role he had on Van Halen from the very beginning when he took them under his wing when they were young men and also all the way up until 1991. I mean, he's overseeing them. Funny enough, though, doesn't talk about Skyscraper, what he thought of it, the direction of that band, this and that. Doesn't get into that. Doesn't really criticize anything about OU812 and all that stuff. No one mentions what the hell happened to Don Landy after OU812. I mean, what happened to Don Landy? He just disappeared off the face of the earth after, or after OU812. He was on every Van Halen album, and then he's gone. 
what the hell happened there? No one knows the answer to that question. No, and it was really interesting because in Ted's book, he said... Whether you need to restock the fridge or just have a sudden, intense craving for cheese puffs, Kroger Delivery will get you just what you need in as little as 30 minutes. From groceries to household items, Kroger delivers right to your door. So don't let one major craving have you reaching for your car keys. Open the Kroger app and start your cart, whatever the cart. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Delivery times not guaranteed. Restrictions may apply. See site for details. Hurry into Mattress Firm. For a limited time, save up to $500 when you get a king bed for the price of a queen or a queen for a twin. Plus, get a free adjustable base with qualifying Sealy purchases up to a $4.99 value. Or get up to 60% off America's top-rated brands, like Sealy Queen mattresses starting at $279.99 or Sleepies at $169.99. In stock for fast delivery, only at Mattress Firm. Restrictions apply. See store or mattressfirm.com for details. In addition to complimenting Michael Anthony all the time, he did say that Don knew how to record bass players and yeah. specifically he knew how to record hurry into mattress firm for a limited time save up to five hundred dollars when you get a king bed for the price of a queen or a queen for a twin plus get a free adjustable base with qualifying sealy purchases up to a 4.99 value or get up to 60 percent off america's top rated brands like sealy queen mattresses starting at 279.99 or sleepies at 169.99 in stock for fast delivery, only at Mattress Firm. Restrictions apply. See store or mattressfirm.com for details. Excited for a road trip? Start it off right with auto coverage from American Family Insurance. J.D. Power ranked us number one in customer satisfaction with the auto insurance shopping experience among mid-size insurers. Get a quote at amfam.com. American Family Insurance. For J.D. Power 2021 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Michael Anthony. Totally. And get the most out of them, which really makes you wonder, like, then what the heck happened on OU812 exactly. when there's no bass sound? Right. And Don's supposed to know how to record bass players. Right. So I guess, you know, that that's a piece of the puzzle. Right. And that basically wraps up the whole Van Halen portion of the book. There's obviously so much more of the book left, but it's definitely worth getting. It's definitely worth reading. Greg does a fantastic job putting it all together. I can imagine it. No wonder it took him so long. There's just so much in there. God knows what he had to cut out. But you really got a nice perspective of what was going on surrounding the album and all the psyche around the album and... You get a lot of detail on the first album, a lot of detail on 1984, a lot of detail on the crazy from the heat transitional 5150 era stuff from behind the scenes. Really interesting things. I was very satisfied with everything that was there. I, I would have expected maybe a little more on maybe some uh, VOA or maybe a little more on Eat em and Smile, but I don't know. I thought it was just an interesting turn of events. It really was. And Ted doesn't get into, like, you know, he was an executive when Van Halen was making all those albums and all that stuff. He doesn't get into all that, like, balance, and he doesn't talk about Van Halen 3 or any of that stuff. He doesn't talk about the reunion or Roth coming back or his thoughts on that or Wolfie or any of that stuff. He doesn't touch any of that. But yeah, he doesn't really get into a lot of the, 
I guess, uh, conjecture, but he does get into a lot of the relationship stuff that surrounds the album, that kind of impact Crazy from the Heat EP had, like all these different things. Anyway, so what would you say in conclusion on this, Dave? We know you can't get enough of your favorite flavors. Luckily, Kroger Free Pickup makes it easy to grab what you need without any surprise fees. Whether it's extra buns for the barbecue or those chips you just can't quit, start your cart with the Kroger app. Kroger, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply, subject to availability. And now you'll find more ways to save on your favorites. When you download digital coupons, you can use up to five times in one transaction. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Bye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? Or... For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. Get the book. It's worth reading. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, for sure. We are going to have an exclusive interview with the author, Greg Renoff, who worked with Ted Templeman on the book. And the book, like I said, is Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music. And it is out this month. Definitely go pick it up. If you're a Van Halen fan, it's required reading for sure. Anybody listening to this podcast, I mean, it's definitely right up your alley. So check that out. Greg Renoff, coming up next. Take a listen. All bands are very fragile units, you know. And and everybody always said we have four very different personalities. I never misconstrued the situation, you know. And uh, it just came to a parting of the ways. Not so much about the music, you know. It was about, you know, how we were going to go about making your life. Hi, I'm Jackie Martling. My brand new autobiography, The Joke Man, Bowder Stern, is being released. Go to JackieTheJokeMan.com. Great holiday gifts. Easy to wrap. I guarantee you are going to love this book. <laughs> hey, this is Jake Miller from Completely Unchained. You're listening to Dave and Dave Unchained. Rock on, man. Check out the new podcast, The Rock Quarry, your place to hear in-depth interviews with some of Rock's most colorful characters, with your host, entertainment journalist, David J. Criblay. The Rock Quarry is available for free on Spreaker and iTunes. You can check us out on Facebook at The Rock Quarry Podcast, on Twitter at Rock Quarry Pod, on Instagram at The Rock Quarry Podcast, or email us at Podcast at gmail.com. No, Edward says that because he wants you to be pissed at me. He wants he wants you to dislike me just as much as he does, you know. And he's going to come and he says, yeah, well, he wants to be a movie star. So you think of all you rock cats and kitties out there, you're going to turn around and go, yeah, and Dave, he's turning into Sting. He thinks he's like the Frankenstein. Nah, you know, and <laughs> come like that. Hey, man, you know. I'm going to make a movie look after seven and a half years of a blistering neon plastic at 33 and a third, you know, and go like that. Can I make a movie one? <laughs> I go, and we make a movie. And it'll take me what? How many months? And we get a beautiful new record out of it, and we'll smear the music all over the movie, and then we're going to go on tour, and we're never going to come home. Ladies and gentlemen, we have an incredible guest this evening. 
You know him. You love him. He is one of Van Halen fans' favorites. It is Van Halen Rising author and now new author of Ted Templeman, a Platinum Producer's Life and Music, Greg Runoff. Hey, Greg. Hey. How are you guys? Excellent, man. Excellent. Well, congratulations on the new book. Thank you. This has been a long time coming. You've been working on this for how long, Greg? I started working on it pretty soon after Van Halen Rising came out. So Van Halen Rising came out in 2015. Hard to believe it's been that long. Yeah. Um, it's been in process really since about early 2016. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just to start off, wanted to ask you, this is Ted Templeman's book. Ted Templeman, for those who don't know him, shame on you. He is the producer extraordinaire for Van Halen's first six albums and also co-producer of their ninth album. He is literally a large reason why we have Van Halen, and Greg really details that in the book. Greg, just to start off, how did the whole meeting of Ted Templeman come about? So at the end of the uh, research process of doing Van Halen Rising, I was able to track down Ted. Ted is a uh, pretty low profile. He doesn't have a website or anything like that. And I was able to basically find somebody who had worked with him through the Doobie Brothers, basically. There's someone who was in the Doobie Brothers camp, and I was able to reach out to Ted. And I said, I'm working on this book on Van Halen's beginnings, and I wanted to talk to him about signing Van Halen. And he emailed me back and said, sure, I'll talk to you. We had a conversation, about a 45-minute conversation. A few weeks before... Van Halen Rising came out. I had done a podcast sometime earlier before that, before the Van Halen Rising was about to come out. I'd done it maybe three months earlier. Ted had heard this podcast and said, hey, I really like what you had to say. I can't wait to read and check out the book. And that, the process of that whole thing, along those weeks leading up to the release of the book, I asked Ted to join me at the bookstore out in Pasadena, Roman's Books, and Ted agreed to do that, which was amazing. And uh, came out, signed books, talked to people, answered questions and sat with me there at the bookstore when the book first was released. And soon after that, I had talked to Ted by email and called to thank him a couple of times and those types of things. And I just pitched him the idea of doing a biography. And he was, at first, I think, a little bit hesitant to do it because he didn't want to really be someone who was going to write a book with a ghostwriter or write a book that was going to be seen as sort of, uh, you know, Ted Templeman, look how important I am. And when I talked to him about what I wanted to do with the book, I really wanted to try to pay tribute to the artist he'd worked with from Doobie Brothers to Carly Simon to Little Feet to Bette Midler and, of course, Van Halen, and really talk about the making of the records, so how Ted approached making records and Ted's musical upbringing as well and how he kind of came together as a a person who was a musician himself, but also someone who became a very skilled producer and kind of look at that process. And when uh, we talked about it, Ted was game at that point and was willing to go ahead with the understanding that, you know, it would be a book that would be focused on the music rather than sort of, you know, look at my how dramatic my life was, sort of like a lot of celebrity biographies. Ted didn't want to do one of those books. What was the process that you guys had in writing the book? Obviously, Ted's not really a writer. You're a writer and a researcher. And so how did you guys kind of exchange? So, you know, at the beginning, Ted would send me emails. So the very beginning process was me, you know, emailing him back and forth. I'm in Oklahoma and Ted was out on the West Coast and we started that way. And then eventually I came out and visited with him. I stayed out there for a few days and visited with him and sat with him over the period of three or four days and did interviews with him and hours and hours of interviews and kind of went through his career 
album by album, you know, not necessarily in a very, you know, exacting way. We didn't like march through the catalog, but sort of, you know, covering the Doobie Brothers material and then maybe jumping to Van Halen and then maybe jumping to Bullet Boys or Aerosmith. And we kind of worked our way through that. And then uh, what I did was I typed up those interviews and began to sort of to flesh it out that way using the interviews and the emails he did. And then I just tried to fill in the gaps along the way. So part of what I tried to do with the book as well is to make sure that it was really pretty carefully grounded in, in the uh, historical chronology of how he did his record. So I would kind of go, obviously go back and figure out when a certain album was released. If I found a newspaper article that was talking about Ted or a magazine interview, I'd send it to him and at my jog some memories for him. Go, Oh, I totally forgot. I'd done this song or you know, sometimes there were things that he'd actually had, had slipped his mind completely. And then we would talk about the things that I sort of brought to his attention. And so that was really how it went. And then went out there a couple more times over the course of working on the book with him. I went out there and stayed, you know, in LA and then would go and visit with him and we'd sit and I'd do more interviews. And that was really the process. And then as we got towards the end, you know, sending him drafts of chapters and him reading things and going, Oh, that's not quite exactly what I meant. Or you really got this right. This is on target. And we sort of dialed it in that way and got it done. What didn't Ted want in the book? Was there anything that was off limits? I think for Ted, it really wasn't meant to be any sort of tell-all about his life or anyone else's life. I mean, I, I think, as I said to you guys at the beginning, it was meant to be a focus on the music. I mean, I think he wanted to just be honest about how important his relationships were with the musicians he worked with and how how much affection he feels for people, everyone from Michael McDonald to David Lee Roth, I mean, down the line, even Tyler. I mean, he really deeply cares about these individuals because he knows that they, you know, they gave their heart and soul into making these records and worked with him so closely. I mean, I think one of the things I really got out of working on the book with Ted is how, you know, intensely you work with people on these, these projects that, you know, it's one of these things where for some bands, obviously it's a relationship with a producer that lasts many years. And for others, it's maybe only six months, but still in the course of over six month period, for example, you know, from the time Ted met the guys in Aerosmith, worked on demos with them, you know, you, you're with these individuals every day and you have these great memories of this fun time you've had with them. You know, I think Ted really wanted to do to do right by all these people. And so, you know, it wasn't meant to be sort of a book that was going to cast things in an unnecessarily negative light. I think Ted was honest about things that were difficult for making certain records and certain clashes he had with different people, but it wasn't meant to be something that was going to be, you know, like, here, let me tell you every bad thing about every person I ever worked with, that type of thing, you know. Sure. So now, because you're known for writing Van Halen material because of Van Halen Rising, was there a decision to be made about how much Van Halen to put in the book and and how much to leave out? I mean, obviously, he spent a lot of time working with Van Halen, and I would imagine that Van Halen is probably his most success if you add up the numbers and sales, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, like, how did you decide to put how much Van Halen in the book and what to include and what not to? Well, in part of it was driven by, you know, chronology of years. I mean, so Van Halen's work with Ted lasts from 77 through, you know, 1984, and then on the stuff with Dave that that carries up through 86, and then you have the year with Sammy. So, you know, there were a lot of years there. In terms of trying to do the book, one of the things I had to make a decision about is that you can't, in writing a book like this, you can't, cover every single album the guy made it would be a 700 page book and it would be just sort of monotonous and sort of oh right. he's jumping around to this and that so you know part of it was that process of thinking about what's going to work together in terms of trying to build a, a story that people can relate to and understand and follow right so that were, you had a, you had a big chunk in there i mean there's you know a big big chunk of the book obviously is van halen a very big but also of course the Doobie brothers is this a super oh, course, important yeah. band for 
Ted's legacy, you know, and did he, he worked with those guys over the course of a, of a decade. You know, there was never any, you know, talk between me and Ted of going, oh, you know, we don't want too much Van Halen or we want, you know, more Doobie Brothers. It was just a matter of how it sort of naturally played itself out in terms of the stories that were, we thought, important to tell the story. And also, um, as I said, sort of the, the, the focus of the, um, you know, of the years dedicated to them. So, you know, there's obviously going to be a lot more material about the Doobie Brothers than it is about Little, Little Feet, even though Ted made two albums with Little Feet. It was just, you know, they were they were not as, there just wasn't as much stuff there, in other words, in terms of what to talk about. So now, in terms of Ted's role, he's sort of a unique individual because he's a producer and also a very high-level executive which is a dual role, and it's also a very powerful role. So would you say he almost had like a George Martin type effect on Van Halen? Because Van Halen seemed like to be very, very personal for him because he was right there in the beginning and took them through all the way to the top of the mountain. So do you feel like Van Halen almost was a, a little bit of a special place in his heart because of the incredible journey? And these guys were like basically like kids when he started with them. So there were three acts that Ted just, in, in effect, just quote unquote discovered right. that he brought to big hits. That would be Doobie Brothers, Van Halen, and Nicolette Larson. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the difference with Van Halen is, and why maybe Van Halen was a little bit different for Ted, is because because Doobie Brothers, Ted started doing the first record he did with Lenny Walker. So Ted didn't have that band as his quote unquote own for the first first record. You know, I think, again, I, I, this is kind of speaking for him, and I'm not 100% sure I would, he would necessarily 100% agree with this, but, you know, I think for Van Halen, for him to see them in the night, in, in the Starwood in the nightclub, be so knocked out by Eddie Van Halen, sign them, do the demos with them, and sort of, take, as you mentioned, you know, bring them from out of total obscurity, from nowhere in Los Angeles, uh, all the way to the actual pinnacle of superstardom. Right. I think that's that really is one of the reasons why. So with Nicolette Larson, there was a couple of albums Ted did with her, but, you know, she didn't have that sort of long-sustained career. I know Ted is extremely proud and extremely, you know, grateful to the guys in the Doobie Brothers. So I don't think it's, you know, matter either or, but I think I think it's possible that that's part of what the difference was, that really this was Ted's baby from the beginning, meaning that, yeah, he, he was the one who, who basically scattered those guys, signed those guys, and then produced his, the first record on their own. Of course, it was such a huge hit, and that's the difference between the Doobie Brothers and Van Halen, too, is that the Doobie Brothers, their first record, co-produced by Lenny and Ted, wasn't a hit. In fact, it was a flop. The second record that Ted did, almost solely on his own, there was a couple of tracks that were produced by another gentleman, but it was that was basically a Ted Templeburn production. That one was a hit. So I think that's part of it, too, is this sort of out of the gate. Those guys had such a huge, huge success, too. I think the third thing I would say is that you know, Ted was just knocked out by the the working relationship between Ed and David Lee Roth. Just talking about constantly talking about how special it was, and that it was something that was unique. And once it had ended, it was something that was really not replaceable in his mind by anything any other combination of guys that you could put around either Dave or Ed or anyone else. It was just something magical about that working partnership and the way those guys rode together and that type of stuff. Greg, let's talk about that for a second because. In the beginning, Ted was not a David Lee Roth fan. He was very critical of his vocals, ready to replace him with Sammy Hagar. But by the time the band had broken up, he was no longer willing to produce the band because Dave wasn't in the band anymore. So well, I don't. I'm going to stop you there. Let me stop you there. I don't know. I don't know if I would agree with that that formulation. I think what I would say is that I'm not sure, based on my understanding of what happened, is that. Ed wanted to work with Ted anymore, more than anything else. So 
say, the end of the 1984 tour and the beginning of 1985 when there was trouble, Ted was sort of, at least the way he recounted it to me, had sort of resigned himself to the fact in any ways that, hey, look, probably not going to be producing the next Van Halen record. If Ed and Don want to do it by themselves, it's for the best because it had gotten difficult. And Ted had come to the realization that Ed Van Halen had grown to the place where he wanted to have more control over his own music. I mean, I think Ted was resigned to that fact. What Ted didn't want was the band to break up. Right. And that's where I think Ted had gone to pains in the book to explain to me and really wants everyone to know that despite what people might think, that Ted went with Dave, all this other stuff, that Ted was Ted never wanted the band to break up. Right. Ted tried, you know, in the in the ways that he could, presumably because he was communicating more with Dave, to try to convince Dave, don't leave, work it out, don't leave, work it out. And right. and to try to work on that, and that did not happen. And then to continue on that with that point with you guys, I want to make sure that one of the things that Ted really emphasized in the book, too, that Ted never thought it was going to be a long-term split. Like, he just thought these guys need time apart. You know, in the same way, I don't know if Ted would have phrased it this way, but I think an analogy we'd all understand is, like, Aerosmith in the early 80s. Parody and Tyler go their separate ways for a couple of albums. There's this three- or four-year period where there's this cooling off, and suddenly those guys kind of realize, well, we can't live without each other record, hence done with mirrors. Right. It never ended up happening. You know, there's there's a lot more in the book about all that, but, you know, it was never, and Ted was really adamant about this, it was never a matter of he chose Dave over no. Ed. And, in fact, Ted emphasized as well in the book that he never wanted to do the movie. Right. You know, he didn't want Dave to do the movie. He right. thought it was a stupid idea and thought it was just, you know, why not just make records? It's just this is crazy to do right. this. But, um, you know, things went the way they went. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of jump in there to make sure that that's because I don't think that's, no, that's something that should be overlooked. That's understandable. But, but let me put it to you. But Greg, actually, your your point is well taken. Yeah. Because Ted loved the band so much, he didn't want them to break up because to him it wasn't Van Halen without Dave. Correct. That's a big change from the beginning when Ted's like, I'm in love with the guitarist. The rhythm section is decent. The lead singer, uh, I don't know. But cut to the chase like six, seven years later, and it's not a band without Dave. So what turned Ted's opinion around of Dave during that time? Well, I mean, what turned it around was even before, so in between the demo. The demo, Ted signs the band in February, and Ted sees them at the Starwood in February 1977, and they basically finalized the record deal within a month of that. Soon after that, around April or something like April or May, they go into Sunset Sound and they do the demo. And when Ted heard and watched Dave record the Warner Brothers demo, it's on, you know, from we've all heard the tracks on YouTube, the 25-song demo, Ted became concerned because especially under the Microsoft of the studio, rather than a live situation, a lot of Dave's limitations as a traditional vocalist kind of came to the fore in Ted's mind. And he was concerned. You know, and part of this was Ted would tell you that Dave, I'm not sure we detailed it in the book, but, you know, that Dave maybe had written vo- had not written vocal melodies that he could really pull off, that he was he was not, you know, like a lot of people, maybe not fully engaged with what he did super well and what he didn't do as well as he could do, and then things where he shouldn't just try to do certain things that he wasn't capable of pulling off. So that's where Ted got concerned. He's like, this could be a real problem. So in the weeks that followed, though, Ted, again, mulled over this idea of bringing Sammy Hagar into the band. You know, he didn't tell Sammy at the time, and the person he probably told or he did tell at the time was Don Landy. He mentioned Don right. about this, sort of this idea that, you know, maybe I could do this. But 
Ted went into the basement with those guys and started working on on the record, the uh, the pre-production for the record, listening to the songs, trying to think about how to improve arrangements, fix vocal harmonies, whatever he, the producer would do to, to tweak a band's catalog in preparation for their first record. You know, in doing that, that's when Ted said he really got to talk to Dave on a very, very deep level, understood how smart the guy was, how great his lyrics were, and just really that said that Dave had a certain that sort of that it factor as a, with the charisma, the sense of humor, the intelligence, the charm, all the things that Ted could see were really, you know, things that were big pluses for him, understanding that his, his singing may not always be to Ted's liking. And so Ted said, hell, I'm going to make this work. We're going to figure out how to make this work. And Ted said it was at times it was challenging with Dave to get things right, but it was you know, Ted's 180-degree turn to be like, you know what, I'm going to go full, I'm going to go forward. This is we're going to make it work from going, I don't know if this will work. That happened before they recorded the record. So that period of just working with those guys in the basement, the legendary Roth basement in Pasadena, right. uh, hour after hour, looking at the chalkboard with all the song titles, thinking about which ones they were going to record, and just really trying to get the uh, the material fully prepared for that recording that first album. But the weird thing is, Greg, is that Dave is Dave is Dave. He's always been Dave. He's always been smart. He's always been funny. He's always been charismatic. He's he's sort of that guy now. He was that guy in the 90s. He was that guy in the 80s. He was that guy in the 70s. So, like, what I didn't understand is why didn't he see that from the beginning? Because, you know, obviously, he first of all, Roth was a kid. I mean, obviously, he needed some honing up and cleaning with which a producer of his caliber could do and he's raw i mean he's coming in off the street but much like ozzy osbourne or mick jagger or vince neal gave us a vocal rock stylist none of those guys that i mentioned are freddie mercury you know i mean no one has a gorgeous incredible voice does sammy have a beautiful yeah sammy's amazing sammy is unbelievable vocally but there are certain things that sammy doesn't have that dave has as we all know Mm -hmm. but obviously there was a chemistry between ed and dave which is palpable even before ted came on to the scene you could hear it in the bootlegs how is it that someone of ted's caliber could not recognize that magic just from the two of them well i don't think he he thought about it as the magic of the two of them i think he thought about that i have this incredible guitar player this guy who's the best musician i've ever seen perform in a live context and i have a singer who I don't think is his equal, but even close. You know, I'm not saying that to run down Dave. I'm just saying no, I think yeah. that's where Ted was concerned that if you get a guy in the studio who can't pull it off, it's a problem. It's right. a big problem. Okay. You know, and so I think the other thing to understand is that you, you, when you guys are mentioning the sort of the brilliance of, of Dave and stuff like that, if he, they really didn't spend a lot of time in the same room kind of locked in until they went into the basement. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's sort of like, you know, you come in the studio, it was a two-day thing. It was right. basically they recorded all the songs in one day, right. they cut the vocals the next day, and then they got to listen back. And when I listened to the demos with him, or, you know, from YouTube, we listened to them, and it was just like, he'd be like, oh, that, you know, that's pretty good. Like the screams, like he talked about the amazing screams that Dave did on Voodoo Queen. You know, it's like, you know, it wasn't like he was like, this all sucks. Right. He never was like that at all. He was like, this is good, this is good, but this is like, this was a problem. This is not, you know. And again, understand that Ted wasn't coaching Dave at that point. It was right. just like, Let's just go through the songs. They just right. basically cut the songs live. And so he was like, shit, what if this guy can't, what if I can't coach this guy? Right, what right. if I can't, you know, what if he's going to be in there and it's like, okay, you know, we're trying to make this record and this guy literally can't do any better. So I think in working with Dave in the basement and talking to him, it's kind of spending time in close quarters and saying this guy's, you know, this guy's 
for lack of a better term, coachable. He wants to get better. He's going to get better. And that's where the confidence kind of came from, from spending the time in the basement with him, getting ready to record in that summertime leading up to recording the record where he was with him, you know, for, he would say that we spent hours and hours and hours and hours in that basement. They all lived in Pasadena, which is the other kind of, right. Michael may have lived in Arcadia, but they all lived right. within like 10 minutes of each other. So he said, I was over there all the time, but, you know, I just, I would come home from Sunset Sound after doing Doobie Brothers record and those guys would be rehearsing late at night. I'd go over there and I would spend, you know, stay there with them and, and listen to the songs and say, yeah, let's change this around. Let's re, rework this or this is great. These are the three songs for sure we're going to do. And, you know, I think that was the thing was just getting to know Roth better on more of a one on one level, you know, kind of right. where you would have long in depth conversations rather than sort of like talking to someone on the phone or, you know, in, in passing. And then at those time in the studio when you're not like bullshitting with with him, you know, you're just basically like, okay, next song, let's go, that's let's go, because you're trying to knock the demo out. And in terms of working with Ted on this book, did you ever ask him about what's in the archives or if there's any live recordings or extra tracks left over in in the Van Halen catalog? You know, he's not he's not somebody who's been in the in the Warner Brother archives in, in you know a really long time, and I, I never really even asked him that other than the fact that. I maybe asked him about, I, I did ask him about why they never did a live album. He was like, I don't, you know, I don't remember. I don't think we even talked about it in the book because he couldn't remember it was ever a serious thing. He didn't think it was, but you know, it's one of these things that maybe they did talk about doing a live album with Ted and that it was just sort of pushed to the side, you know, but you know, he was never um, somebody who was going to be looking back on the stuff. It wasn't his, like there was never any quote unquote, like catalog work that Ted did. Right. It was just basically the six albums and, then they just, they, those guys went on with their career and it wasn't as, as as if Ted was involved with what they did. One thing that was a little confusing, I'm trying to understand in the book. I understand what you're saying that in 1984, Ed is growing. He's got his own studio. He wants to do his own thing. He wants to produce himself. Made sense. But what I didn't understand is why the band sent Sammy to Ted to beg him to produce 5150. Well, here's what ended up happening was that Ed, and Don wanted to produce, well, I should say Ed wa- wanted he and Don to produce what became 5150. Right. What ended up happening is that the president of Warner Brothers, Lenny Warnaker, says to those guys, no, you're not going to produce the record by yourself. Basically, for whatever reason, Ed Van Halen never produced their album before. Don Landy had always been an engineer. Didn't want those guys to produce it by themselves. They needed to have a producer. So what ended up becoming the obvious choice, probably partially encouraged by Lenny Warner, the president of Warner Brothers. But also, um, certainly if you think about it, Don, Sam, Ed, Mike, Al had all worked with Ted before. Right. So, well, the record company, obviously they're going to accept Ted Templeman as the producer. Right. And so that's why Ted was approached with the idea of produce this seventh Van Halen album. Right. With Sammy Hagar as the vocalist. That's why, because... They had to get somebody because right. the record company said, Ed Van Halen, Don Landy, we're not giving the green light to you guys to produce the record by yourself. So now the weird thing is, though, is you think from Ted, who is not only a producer, but also an executive at Warner Brothers, wouldn't you kind of feel company pressure to handle it? Because, number one, Van Halen was a very 
high-level commodity for Warner Brothers at the time. This is a transitional time, the record right after their biggest album, and a new singer. Wouldn't you feel pressure as an executive and the producer in Warner Brothers to take the job on? Like, I would imagine that it would be very hard to say no, not only just to Ed, but to your boss at Warner Brothers, say, yeah, I'm not going to do it. Isn't that sort of, like, hard to do? I mean, in the sense that wouldn't he feel pressure to come through for his company? Well, I'm sure he did feel pressure to come through. You know, he never really couched it that way. I mean, it was the way it's laid out of the book is he, at first, said he didn't want to do it and then basically relented and said, I'll do it if you guys change the name. Right. And those guys would, would not, you know, and again, I think understandably, I think that I think that Ted Regret said it was, he couched it that way because he didn't mean to disrespect the Van Halen brothers by saying that. He just felt like it was a different band, not that he wasn't honoring their name as Van Halen. So I, he didn't mean any disrespect to the brothers in that way. But I think ultimately it was just was something he felt very passionate about and probably had enough juices inside Warner Brothers to be like, I'm not doing it yeah. unless they do this. And if you think about it, it's Van Halen. It wasn't as if Warner Brothers was going to be like, oh, shit, if that Templeman doesn't do it, no one's going to do it. You know, right. It like no, right. Guys right. would have, like, freaking, like, crawled over broken glass right. through right. minefields to produce a record. Right. Um, you know, but it was a definitely, you know, I think that in reading the book, people understand it was definitely an emotional issue for all those guys and the way sure. it sort of it shook out. There were things that went on with Dave's solo EP that Ted had certain expectations about what he thought he was doing right. with that and what he, how he thought it was going to be helpful, and it ended up being a very corrosive thing for Van Halen, and that was never his intention. Again, he never wanted the band to split up and was just trying to do what he thought was best for what where things were at with the band. And so I think that was just basically, you know, he was going to say, look, I, you know, I, this is how I feel about it. I don't want to do it. But, uh, you know, I think the other thing, too, I don't think it's in there because it was just Ted didn't remember it specifically. But if you um, read some interviews, anyone reads inter- interviews with uh, Ed with Guitar Waller around 1986 or so, I mean, Ted went up to 5150 and heard the music and everything at some point before he said no or whatever, you know, he was obviously was toying it over in his mind to some extent to doing it, but ultimately maybe he just felt like he couldn't come to peace with it called me Van Halen with Sammy in the band. I mean, that was just something he felt intensely about for whatever reason, that this was something he just couldn't accept it. I mean, I think that was for whatever reason, just thinking this was the band I signed was Dave and Ed together, Mike and Al. It's right. not with another singer. No offense to Sammy. And, you know, I think Ted really tried to go to great pains in the book to make that clear that he yeah. loves Sam the person. He loved working with Sammy. Right. Sammy's a friend of his. That right. That it's nothing personal against Sammy. Like, you, know, you could have brought in, didn't mean to write this book, but I mean, you could have brought in Jesus Christ to be the lead singer of Van Halen. Right. It could have been Van Halen at that. Right. Had, well, that was clear. With, that with was Sammy. clear. Yeah, that was clear. One thing that was also interesting was the whole crazy from the heat thing is so shocking to me. Like, how did Ted not think that that wasn't going to cause a major rift between a band that was not exactly on great footing as it is. You know, he'd have to speak for himself on that. I mean, I just, I think that from what he told me, he saw it that as something that was going to give breathing room to people. You know, years have gone by. Maybe some of that is Ted sort of like, you know, as, as sort of as, as memory sort of has faded a little bit. Maybe Ted has sort of lost sort of the, uh, you know, remembering how intensely some of the emotions were about things like that with Dave and Ed back then. But I, I, I will tell you that Ted really was pretty adamant to me that he, saw it as an opportunity to give those guys some breathing room, that it was meant to be, as Dave has, as Dave has talked about it, it was meant to be a completely anti-Van Halen thing. It was a fun, like right. it was never meant to compete with Van Halen. It was not like, you know, like a Joe Perry solo record out of Aerosmith. Right. that's like very hard rock in the Aerosmith thing. It's meant right. to be 
something that stuff they would never play in Van Halen, stuff that never gave no lyrics that right. were going to be taken away from Van Halen. And so that from Ted's perspective, it was like, okay, look, things have really gotten difficult for these guys. Let's let Ed and those guys kind of blow off some steam by giving them some breathing room that they don't have to come back in January, whether I produce a record or not. January and January 5 to start another record. It just didn't work out that way. And I think, you know, I think that's a fair, that's a fair point that, you know, he wasn't fully privy. He wasn't on the road with those guys. So obviously maybe he didn't realize how bad things had, had gotten with Ed and Dave in terms of the personality clash. And so, yeah, that was the way he described it to me and that it was like he was, you know, thinking that this gives them till well into the spring before they really have to kind of ramp up for another record. And if it didn't work that way at all, obviously it was, he said to me, and it's in the book. And I mean, in other words, when we talked, he, he made that clear to me that he said he, if he knew how negative brothers took it, he never would have agreed to do it. He just didn't see it that was going to happen. It would be seen as such a you know, Dave striking out on his own type of thing when it was more meant to be sort of this fun little side thing that was meant to just be like, oh, here's a little pause for the band, and then they can go back to do whatever they want. And let Dave get that crap out of, you know, stuff out of his system, basically. The stuff that, meaning crap, the stuff that would never work under the context of Van Halen. And Dave would just get that out of his system and then go back right. to Van Halen. Right. Well, but right, it, but did it kind of backfire because the EP did much better than... Certainly, Ted thought it was going. Oh through. yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any question. I mean, I think that that's something that Ted has. I don't regret the word about it, but I've seen he certainly looks back and goes, "It didn't make things better at all. It made things worse." And in fact, it's kind of funny, you know, because Ted has this huge reputation as a hitmaker, but he was like said, like he was shocked. California Girls, like a '60s Beach Boys song with Christopher Crossing with David Lee Roth is going to go to the top five. He, he said that I underestimated. Dave's fame and Dave's abilities. And he said, you know, it wasn't that he thought it wasn't going to sell records. I mean, obviously he thought it was going to do, it's David Lee Roth, it was going to do okay, but just sort of to be, I think what, what Ted would tell you is that the idea that it would make Dave even bigger than he was before, you know, for instance, Jump, it like made him a bigger star. I mean, I don't think Ted ever saw it. I mean, I don't know what the right analogy was, and Ted wouldn't use this analogy, but it's like the Steve Perry solo record that didn't make him bigger than he was in Journey, right? right. People still knew it from Journey. It was just this sort of catapulted Dave to a whole different level of fame with the videos and everything, the whole package that was never something that Ted foresaw being that, oh, he's going to outshine, he's basically going to outshine Van Halen. It was meant to be more like, oh, and the singer Van Halen has done this little fun little thing. It'll run its course in two months. Well, May, you know, the, the second single, the Gigolo, is still on the charts. Right. Well, let me ask you, he doesn't really comment on the book on the material on 5150 or OU812. Did he ever talk to you about it? Yeah, I mean, I think he was not the, the biggest fan of the keyboard turn. I mean, I think that's one of the things that he really wrestled with, was with Ed developing different musical taste as the years went on. I mean, I think Ted will tell you, you know, I love Unchained. I love A Talking About Love. Right. I love, you know, that's the stuff to me is that sort of the core of what Van Halen is. It doesn't right. mean Ted doesn't like some of the softer stuff they did. He said, you know, Van Halen is almost like a primal thing. It's like this, this right. raw energy. And he just felt it was too soft around the edges. Right. You know, that said, I think that Ted will be the first person to say that Don and Ed did this brilliant job with 5150 to make, and Mick Jones to make it such a huge smash. I mean, there was never, you know, there was never any like, you know, um, anything but uh, admiration for the, that they made the band bigger. I mean, I think that Ted will tell you that he, they actually made Van Halen bigger than it was, you know, in terms of the record sales. They sold more records than they did with 1984 and all these things with 5150 with the four singles and the, with a bigger album probably in terms of sales. But, um, you know, it was never, like, like you said, with the different singer and the different, you know, the different musical, approach 
I think that was something that Ted probably would have, if he was producing those records, tried to tone down a bit. But that was where Ed was going, and, and Ted realized that you can't stifle somebody. You can't, you know, kind of put your boot down over somebody. That's where they were going, and that's where Ed's head was at. Right. But there there is a bit of misunderstanding with the sales between Dave and Sam. Dave's sales way outweigh the Sam sales if you add them up. Well, no, I'm talking about, well, 5150. I mean, I think 5150 had four huge singles. How many millions of records did it sell? I mean, it was a huge, it was a huge record. It wasn't um, 1984 huge, though. A, okay, off the top of my head. No, well, you albums close. are, Dave. I mean, it went, it went platinum 10 times, right? Like diamond. No, right? it's it up to diamond. 12 million sales. 84? 84. Yeah, but I'm talking about a I'm talking about a 1986, right? I mean, it was yeah, huge, yeah. 1950 was a huge, huge album in '86. It was, it was, it was. Oh yeah, absolutely. It was, absolutely. but it, did, it didn't sell 1984 numbers. I mean, they didn't have the exposure. I mean, in 1984, Van Halen was the biggest rock band in the land, hands down. I don't think you could say that in 1986. I mean, the album was great. They did very well. It was incredibly successful. They pulled off switching the singers immensely. The fact that Al was on Simmons' drums and Eddie was on keyboards most of the time, it's a miracle that they got away with that. If, if you listen to Drop Dead Legs and you listen to Love Walks In, you can't believe that there's only two years between that band. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's a big change. It's a big change. change. So now one thing that was wild in the book was the whole mystery of Diver Down. I don't understand. They released Pretty Woman as a single, and they had no album to back it up, and they literally went in and rushed an album to back the single? Right. How could that be? Why would Warner Brothers allow them to do that? You know, I can only tell you the way Ted recounted the story. From the way he told the story, the whole thing started with wanting to do the video. So even before there was a song, they wanted to do a video. And then those guys kind of came around to the idea of doing Pretty Woman and putting it together as a video. They sort of talked about doing it as a, a quote-unquote little mini-movie where it was going to be like with the intruder, with the introduction. They, you know, they were going to have a little whatever. I shouldn't call it a mini-movie, but it was meant to be this sort of right. cinematic thing right, right where it's like... You know, they're, they're not actually lip syncing. It's been those all these different shots. It's this whole way right. they sort of did it. And, and that was the impetus for doing the quote unquote, the single is the way that Ted remembered it was that the video took precedence over the song. And that was one of the things that made Ted crazy was that he just wanted to focus on making records and making song, you know, recording music and wasn't interested in like the whole, you know, not that he wasn't interested in promotion, but he wasn't like a guy who was like, Let's make a, a Van Halen video or something. So that's part of the reason why, again, with the with the Dave movie, he never really was, even though, like you said, out of loyalty to the company, he was not going to leave Dave high and dry if Dave made a movie. Right. He was going to work on the, you know, do work with the with Divi and those guys on the on the, the songs. Right. He was never his passion, and so they did this video single, started climbing the charts, and you have a single that does well, that's great, but you can't tour behind a single. Right. You don't make any money. They cost a dollar forty nine or whatever they cost. Whatever, like one ninety nine. Right. When we were kids, whatever they cost. There's no real profit in them. Right. And so, whatever Van Halen management, Noel, whoever, and Warner Brothers people above Ted and Mo Austin, right. Lenny Warnker were like, we need a record. Right. And you know, Ted used the analogy of that's exactly what what happened to him when he was he was in Harper's Bazaar. Harper's Bazaar put out a single. They had they had no album, and it's like, oh, you have a hit. Great. Guess what? We need an album. And they rushed in the studio and made an album. And so right. this is what ended up happening with Diver Down. And Diver Down was done. You know, again, I don't think this is any sort of breaking news, but it was done in a very rushed way because 
they were trying to get the album to market as quickly as possible before the Pretty Woman single completely disappeared. Basically, you don't want the, the band to, to basically, you know, to drop off the charts completely and then put the record out. You right. want to basically try to ride that wave. Right. So that was the thing to do it. It's under extreme pressure. It was frustrating to try to do it that way to Don Landy for sure. And I'm, I'm sure the guys in the band as well. And again, that would be something you'd have to talk to Dave about or, or Ed or Al and ask those guys what they were thinking about that. Ted, Ted just knows that they, they suddenly were like, we're going to do this video on this song. And he was like, okay, you know, if you guys want to do it, it's fine. But as even Ted said, I never even wanted to do the song. Right. Like Ted was like, pretty woman. Like, why are we doing this song? He said, I didn't even like it when Roy Orbison did it. I don't know, but that's what they wanted to do. They said, we're going to do it. And he said, okay. I was writing notes as I was reading the book and there was different strikes that I thought that went down with Ed and Ted. Strike number one was the dancing in the street incident. And I uh -huh. think Eddie really got upset that he used his original riff that was attached to the single. So now, this also drives me crazy when you can bring it right up to current day because the Struts just did a cover of Dancing in the Street and they right. did a, a cover of Van Halen's version of Dancing <laughs> exactly. in the Street. Exactly. Do you exactly. want to know why? Do, like no for no. do you do you want to know why they did that, Greg? I know, I'd love to. I never. I don't I'll know tell. Why. I'll tell you why. Because the car commercial that they used it for didn't want to pay for the Van Halen version, and they wanted the Van Halen version, so they paid for the Struts to redo the Van Halen version. <laughs> oh my okay, gosh, I'm not no kidding idea. you. So now Ed's got a point here because if you listen to that song, of course it has the dancing in the street motif in it with the chorus and stuff. But most sure. of that song is an Eddie song. I mean, the, the, most of the music in there is original. It's got the hook of Dancing in the Street, but it's way different than the yeah. original Dancing in the Street. There's a lot of sure. original music in there. Sure. It's definitely a different arrangement. To well, totally. But there's original music that's added to Dancing in the Street as opposed to just a cover. You know what I mean? Right. It's not like a, it's not like a yeah, like a cardboard cutout. Right. It's not just that. Like for example, if you look at the Jagger and Bowie version, that's more of a traditional cover of Dancing in right. the Street sure. than you know the Van Halen version. Now, the whole beginning doesn't even sound like Dancing in the Street until Dave starts singing. So that I thought was strike number one. Strike number two obviously was Ted's reaction to Jump. Eddie was so jazzed about this riff to jump, and I, mm -hmm. it, you, you categorize it in the book. It was very well laid out how Ed and Al worked on it through the night, and they called Ted, and they brought him down to listen to it, and they were so excited about it. And Ted said it was too pop for his ears, to use a quote from the book. And then he even said, I'm still not crazy about it, which is amazing right. because the song was literally the band's biggest song. It was the number one hit. It's literally an anthem for the 80s. It's played at every stadium in America and every sporting event. Everybody, including my mother, who's 80 years old, knows that song. You know, it's funny that he still has like a bad taste in his mouth from Jump. So that was interesting. And strike number three, obviously, being the, I thought, the crazy from the heat situation. I think that, you know, the band obviously had bad feelings about that. If you remember the beginning of the, the Van Halen section, he talks about Ed like he said, it was like falling in love with a girl, like in the sense that like he was knocked out. Ed is a genius. He labels him right. a genius from when he's a kid. He's a genius. So right. what's amazing is, is that I'm surprised that he wouldn't kind of follow the path 
of the musician in the sense that, like, you know, obviously he has incredible sense in terms of his music. I'm surprised that he, you know, was, was so against something new. I mean, this was the 80s, for Christ's sake. 1984, when Jump came out, you know what I mean? Like, it kind of fit into the uh, musical scene because mm-hmm. everything was so freaking pop. Everything in the 80s was pop. It was still rock, but it was also very poppy. So I'm I'm surprised that, that he didn't pick up on it. And also, from an, a record executive standpoint, I mean, you hear Jump, you, it, it's a hit. I mean, it's a hit right off the bat. I mean, you hear it. Like, well... Yeah, I mean, I agree with what you're saying, and I think it's—I think you're on, you guys are on target with how you're laying that out. I mean, I think the thing that we should all forget is that Ted didn't say they're not going to do the song, right? Ted didn't right, say right. I'm absolutely not putting the record. Like he was like, let's go and let's see where it goes. Right. I think in terms of trying to really, you know, kind of dial in on what Ted was getting at is that he had reservations about it because he didn't think it. He thought it was too much a feel from what he felt was sort of the core of what Van Halen was. Right. But he never said. We're not doing the song. No right, way. Because right. you could see how much Ed and Al invested in it and Don too that they wanted to do it. And he said, let's see where it goes. He really made clear to me, he's like, when, when it really started to get going and they really put it together, this is incredible. But he was concerned that people maybe wouldn't accept it as Van Halen. They'd be like, ah, oh, what the hell happened to Van Halen? They changed some, you know, it was, it was certainly in terms of a, you know, kind of the song that was going to kick off the record and all the other things. It was going to be a big detour from what Van Halen had done previously. And I would say too that it's not that I, I don't think that Ted would say he doesn't like the song as a song. He thinks it's a brilliant song. I think for him, when he hears it, it brings back a lot, oh, know, a lot of the memories right, of how right, difficult okay. right. it was to make the record. I mean, I think Ted right. went to great pains to talk about how Ed had it right. Ed, yeah. Ed had it. He yeah. knew. And it was an anthem. And Ed created that. He's like, this was Ed and Don's baby. They are the guys right. who did this. And they deserve all the credit in the world for this. Yeah. I had apprehensions. Those guys were like, it's going to work. I'm like, right. I'm not so sure. He talks about even like the solo. I think we talk about it in the book about yeah. how the chord changes, the solo were so crazy, and Ed did this amazing guitar solo. You know, he thinks it's an incredible song. He right. just, I think, looks back on it and goes, that fucking album was so hard to make. And ultimately, in a lot of ways, broke up the band. I think that's part of the thing, too, you got to understand. is like he thinks like the making of the record didn't go the way he had hoped it would go. The other albums that made where it was generally a good vibe. Right. They had fun. It was quick. Right. You know, again, people may have been like, oh, I don't like this song or this, you know, wasn't to their, you know, maybe we didn't mix it the way I like with this, blah, 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 the grumbling. But for the right. most part, they were always having a good time. And it was a it was a great working relationship with all those six guys, meaning Don, Ted and the four Van Halen guys. And just for a habit to become so difficult, right. I think that's what you're, you're yeah. anyone who reads the book to understand, too. It's just sort of like you like kind of look, look back and go, yeah, it was a big hit. But, you know, God, it was like, you know, it just it ended up wrecking this magic thing. Right. And again, not so much like head it wasn't so much that like i can't produce those guys anymore it's it's all wrecked now it's more like those guys split like ted said to me many times like you know those guys want to go on and do their own shit that's fine i mean don and you know he ted has enormous respect for don as a a studio guy and said you know don could have done it let don and ed want to do it great but just for the that the fact that dave and ed and al and mike couldn't work together anymore that's what killed ted right what also was weird though his poppy criticisms of jump were interesting because pretty woman and dancing in the street were both poppy singles again i think that's that's something that maybe ted would have to sort of you know drill down and kind of maybe explain it in his own way but i think he would just say that the dancing in the street i mean it was that was like you know like a 
a second or third single on the record. This was going to be the sort of the, he knew this was going to be the defining track on the record. Right. And it was like, it was, you know, look, jump, the keyboards are, are way more keyboardy for like eighties keyboardy yeah. than anything dancing in the street was or, or anything. I mean, again, as a kid, I don't think I would have been like, Oh, that's a keyboard to dance in the street. I maybe would have known, but it never would have been like, right. Well, that's like the patch mode. I think that's what, you know, I don't want to put Ted words in Ted's mouth. But oh, I think yeah, that I was the thing. It was going to be so much away from what Van Halen, the ain't talking about love unchained. Everybody wants some, right. That type of stuff that really was what Van Halen was recognized for. I think he was worried that it wasn't going to be accepted. I mean, I think that's what he was worried about. And, you know, Ed and those guys and Ed had the guts to say, I don't care. This is what I like to do. And, and this is what I want. All the credit to, to Ed, which, which Ted really tries to give in the book to say Ed was the guy he saw. It. He knew it was something that was the right next step for Van Halen. That's really interesting that Ted had that perspective because Diver Down, I mean, it was certainly lighter than the album before, fair warning. I mean, it was, it was poppier in a lot of respects. I mean, this was the band that had done Big Bad Billis, Sweet William Now. And if that's not a left turn for any band, never mind Van Halen, I don't know what is. It yeah. wasn't the leadoff single of the album. Right. But I think and I Van think... Halen had started planting those seeds. So I was just kind of surprised that Ted was yeah, I think, surprised. I think, sorry, I mean to talk over you. I think the thing that, that probably too is that, is that, that the way Diver Down was done, it was done in such a, um, compressed fashion a lot of the stuff was like ted said was kind of thrown together it doesn't mean he doesn't like some of the stuff but it just like it was just like you know it was like holy shit we gotta that that's how dancing in the street came to pass anyway was that they needed another song don landy told me himself when i spoke to him you know he said it was like it was miserable to make from my perspective for his perspective to make it because there was everything was so rushed it was like okay hurry up we got to record then we got to mix in like just an insanely fast amount of time and so but Ted said we were out of time, and that's why the Dance Into the Street song idea where Ted said, let's take this keyboard riff that Ed's written, and we can meld it on top of Dancing Into the Street. He said that was to finish it because Dave couldn't, you know, again, in this compressed time period of trying to finish this record, Dave couldn't come up with a melody or lyrics. He couldn't come up with his piece of the song in mm-hmm. the amount of time they had. They kind of ran out of ideas. And, you know, like anything else, you put it to the side, you come back to it two months later, and maybe you, have, you would have written a brilliant thing for it. He didn't, and they were out of time, and that's when you know, dancing in the street sort of became this thing. Oh, we can do this. You know, and Ted actually really likes the song. Actually, he's like, you know, he actually thinks it's, it's cool. I mean, he understands, he kind of understands the, you know, the sort of the 20,000 foot view of what Ed's upset about. He gets, he understands that, but he, you know, he doesn't quite understand why, you know, because he thinks it's, he thinks that considering how stuck they were and how they were out of time and needed something for it to work in Ted's, in Ted's perspective to work that well. And to come off, you know, people don't like the song, whatever, but to kind of come together and be like something they could put on the record, I think he's like, yeah, actually, it was pretty, pretty damn good considering we were like out of time and we right. were like trying to get, get something that would be a single. And again, understand that was meant, that was going to be a single. They right. needed another single from that record. Pretty Woman had already hit the charts and so they couldn't release that again. And what else were you going to put out? Um, Secrets, you know, but that was never going to be like quarter of like an upbeat summer Van Halen song. So now, oh, I disagree, but I love that song. He does. Yeah, I love it, too. Yeah. I love it, too, but I, it wasn't going to be... Uh, anyway. Speaking sorry, of Don Landy, what was the deal with him holding the tapes hostage for the 1984 sessions? Because that really seemed to be the straw that broke the camel's back with Ted's relationship with him. I mean, I think it's, it's just one of these situations that um, Don and Ed became 
you know, sort of standoffish against Dave and Ted, and it became this situation where it was kind of a power struggle over the over the record. You know, I think Don and Ted are are friendly now, and they sort of water under the bridge. Those guys don't sit there and like talk about that stuff. It's sort of you know irrelevant. But in the best, in sort of working with Ted on the book and kind of thinking about it, I mean, I think those guys just kind of wanted to run out the clock, and they were on the record schedule because they didn't want Ted and Dave maybe to remix it. There was this period of time when the album was being finished and Ted sort of thought, well, we're done. Like, come on. Okay. You guys, whatever you do for the next few days, but turn the record in because we're done. We've mixed it. Well, you know, Ted has never kind of gone back and like interrogated Ed and Don about this, but presumably, and I think that's pretty accurate. Probably what happened is they just kept mixing. They just sort of said, well, you know, we'll just, you know, we'll make it sound more like we want to make it sound than maybe more than, than Ted and Dave want it to sound. Right. You know, instead of it being sort of a group, again, I don't know this for 100% certainty because you know, Ted doesn't know this 100% certainty, but my supposition, and based on talking to Ted about it, it seems like those guys probably decided that we're going to make it more sound like we want to make it sound, make the drums sound the way we want it to sound, make the guitar, whatever they did. And they sort of, they worked on it and they continued to tweak it. And that's where the problem came in, was that Ted was the executive and going, shit, this is late. We need this. We want this to come out before just January 1st. We want the album to come out before 1983 ends. And it, and it was a big, from Ted's perspective, a big problem because there's a whole production process around making a record with a album cover and you have to basically, you know, you can't not turn in the master tapes and then expect everyone else is going to do their job. Then you show up at the last minute with the record and go, Oh yeah, let's put it out tomorrow. You have right. to master it and then stuff. You know, and I think that just you know, Don himself would tell you he just hadn't slept and just kind of lost it. He just lost his, you know, the space of the pressure of the whole year kind of came to that culmination of the moment Ted, you know he was trying to basically sneak in to master the record and Ted sort of confronted them and go you know like you know you're not mastering the record where where you been like you know I haven't seen you in three weeks and whatever you know they're trying to reach you and there was just sort of this this moment where, where I, you know sort of just out of you know just sort of a momentary moment of insanity I'm going to throw them in the ocean or whatever he said I mean I, you know it wasn't like Don was going to actually go throw them in the ocean I think he was just like you know he just come to the end of his rope where he was just been you know dealing with this you can imagine the fun of dealing with Ted, Don, and Ed in that tiny little studio up there for, uh, excuse me, Ted, Ed, and Al, and, you know, in that tiny little pressure cooker of a studio up there for months. I'm sure he just was just, he was just exhausted and just sort of lost it. But, you know, Ted gives, as in the book, as you guys know, gives enormous credit to Don Landy for the way the records sound, you know, and says flat out, if it hadn't been for Don, the first record never would have been a smash. Never. He just, you know, basically Don made that record sound like, you know, something unearthly. And that was really Don's magic behind the, behind the console and, you know, gives him massive props throughout the book. It's just a genius comparison to Jeff Emmerich from the Beatles with George Martin. And just, and that's what I mean about the whole album making situation. It just became so stressful. And I think, I don't want to use the word toxic maybe, but just so fraught with, you know, emotion for all those guys and just so stressful and just so, and pleasant at the end, I think that's really what, and again, like you asked me about, like, why he doesn't like jump, he doesn't even like the songs, just like he said, like, oh shit, remember that scene that happened and this right. happened and stuff, it just wasn't, it just wasn't fun, right, you know, it just wasn't a fun record to make. Ted was so worried that, I mean, the album was late as it was, that he made his own mix from like a backup copy of the album because he thought he wasn't going to get anything from Don and Ed, right? I mean, the question I'm really Correct. getting at is, does he still have a copy of his own mix? No, he does not. I think part of the reason why is, again, I don't know this for, for sure. I mean, I think part of it was just to sort of basically, if 
you know, God forbid those guys decided to move to, to go to Mexico with the tapes. Like, I'm just making that up. Whatever. Like, you had to deliver a Van Halen record. He was supposed to, you know, it's supposed to come out. Everything, the whole marketing plan was in place. The whole record company was, obviously, they're one of the biggest acts. So I think it was just a matter of we should just need to have a fallback plan in case something completely un- unpredictable happens. But Ted would tell you, is like, you know, they were just seat-of-the-pants mixes. They were just like, we need to work to have a mix there. So if worst-case scenario comes and it's like, oh, shit, we don't have the Ed and Don mix, we got 72 hours, let's finish this off. It wasn't, you know, it was never as if, like, as Ted would explain it, it was, like, never as if, like, we have a perfect album here. that You know, we don't need your, your mix anymore. It was more like, what if those guys just flake? But that kind of, again, kind of captures what was going on, where is this sort of, you know, this lack of communication and this, what Ed has talked about in some interviews where, where Ted would drive up the driveway and, you know, knock on the door and say, we're going to need the album. And they'd be like, oh, Don's not here. And the Don would be like down the hill and like would then drive back up when Ted left. So it was just, it just had gotten a place that was probably not the healthiest for those guys. It's also very shocking considering Don and Ted were like the dynamic duo of producing and engineering at that time. Right. I mean, those guys right. weren't just, you know, two colleagues. They were like a, a team. I mean, they, they, they were yeah. so lock and step. And the way Ted describes it in the book is even though they were situated, it's almost like they were moving as one person. Like they just yeah. sort of like had such jive. Like where was the breakdown? I didn't understand. I mean, again, I, that would be stuff that, you know, Ted and Don would have to speak for themselves. I mean, just from what I was able to gather from Ted, it's, you know, there became a level of, I don't want to say necessarily distrust, but just sort of, yeah, maybe like misunderstood motivations. Like, you know, you know, whether it be Ed thinking that Ted hates jump where, you know, Ted's like, I never hated jump. I just didn't think it was right for Van Halen. You know, that type of thing, whether it just became, you know, a negative vibe and whether, you know, Don was obviously up there all the time with Ed. I mean, he was there all night. Right. And the next day and just kind of spending these long hours with Ed. And I think it just sort of became this sort of, they divided into two camps, but I don't think it was by, you know, by any sort of design by anybody. I don't think anyone was like, you know, was like that. And in fact, you know, as Ted indicates in the book, and Ted helped sequence 5150. Yeah, that um, was also guys, shocking. Why would they even ask him to sequence 5150? Like, anybody could have done that in their camp. Why would they go to Ted after he turned them down for producing and then, hey, can you please sequence the record? That was kind of shocking. Well, because he had sequenced all the other Van Halen records. And I think it was a matter of, you know, Ted's an executive at the company. And, you know, it's it's it makes sense for him since he'd worked with those guys before. And, again, that's the thing. It's like things got, quote, unquote, weird, obviously, with Ed and Ted, for example, you know. But Ed calls Ted to work on the Private Life record, and they work on the Private Life record. Right. And Ed calls Ted, and they work on the, the, uh, the fuck record with, with Landy John. So it's like, you know. You just need time apart. I mean, like, you know, Don was, would tell you, I mean, there was, I mean, he actually was disappointed in the end of the day when Ted didn't do 5150. He wanted Ted to produce 5150 and it just didn't happen. And so it was never, I don't think it was ever as if they were like, you know, we don't like each other. It was just more of like, we just need some time apart and whatever. I mean, it was, Don told me himself, he's like, it was a tremendous disappointment to me that, that it just wasn't on you know, it wasn't going to happen, that we'd always done the records together and we'd always made it work and it had always been something special. I think Don recognized that, too, that the Ed, Ted, Dave, you know, the whole, you know, whatever, the, or at least definitely Ed, Ted Templeman, Don Landy together had always made great music together and, and Ted was personally disappointed. But, you know, he felt the loyalty to Ed, obviously, and Ed wanted to do the records with, with Don and that they went about their business and, and Dave went and did theirs. Does he have any relationship with Ed at all? 
Who's that? Ted. I mean, they, you know, they they exchange like you know greetings from now and then, like happy birthday greetings and stuff like that. I, I don't, you know, I don't think they're like hanging out on weekends and stuff like that. But you know, it's it's from what far I understand, they just you know occasionally will converse. Yeah, I mean, that would be my my understanding. What of about what, I what know about from, Dave? From talking to Dave and with Ted. Dave? Dave and Ted, or is that did it? As end? far as I, I mean, as far as I know, Dave and Ted and I haven't talked in a long time. I can't, you know, I can't speak with 100 percent certainty with that. You now Ted has talked to Mike on occasion. Again, it's just sort of like, you know, like you like like old friends. Like, hey, you know, like oh, I got an email from Mike. Like, right. he'll tell me like you know a year ago, and it's like I know they exchanged emails. Ted wrote to Mike when Mike lost his grandson, for example. Right, I know that was one of the times they're talking. On Ed's birthday, Ted sends Ed, you know, birthday emails and a text message or something like that saying happy birthday and they, you know, they, they talk for a minute or something like that. But I don't know for sure when the last time Ted Templeman and Dave talked. There's also an interesting part of the book where Ed calls up Ted in the midst of making for unlawful carnal knowledge and says, Ted, can you come down here and crack the whip? Which is right. shocking to me because he doesn't seem to like authority, Ed. He sort of likes to do his own thing in, in his own little cave, which is 5150. Why would he go to Ted after all that time and all that, you know, goings on and right. out of the blue call him to come and, of all things, crack the whip? Well, because he knew Ted could get the record finished. I mean, that's the problem is that Ed, who was never super focused on deadlines, let's, you know, let's say for yeah. lack of a better term, He's like a lot artist. of musicians. He's like an that. artist. Yeah. He's not a producer. Right. He's a lot of, right. Yeah. right. Like a lot of musicians. We're not going to yeah. be focused on, of course. On, de- on deadlines. Andy Johns, God rest his soul, wasn't particularly able to do that either from what I've been able to put together from, that's right. why they called and said, can you come in? We've got too much material and we're not going to finish. And that album took a long time to make. I, right. I don't remember the exact timeline, but it was months and months. Yeah. And so, and I, again, Ted didn't recollect whether again, I'm just I'm just purely speculation. I Ted didn't never told me this. I don't know if like you know the president of Warner Brothers was calling up to to Ed and saying what the hell's going on up there? We need the record. Like you know basically like you guys are are screwing us over by not delivering the record. I don't know that. Yeah. But Ted said he got a call and said you know he said yeah I'll go up there and whatever. I mean you know he said when Ed called I I helped him you know and so in yeah, the, he, in he, that uh, vein in that vein. Do you think if it was Ed coming to him before 5150 instead of Sam and begged him to do the record, do you think he would have done it? I suspect what he would have said it was, you know, you should get back with Dave. I mean, I think, I think obviously by the time Sam approached Ted, based on the behest of the band, obviously, it was already a done deal with Sammy. Like, Sammy was, quote, unquote, in the band, right. basically, you know, right. at that point. You know, so I don't know. I mean, I, I, I can't speak to what would have, what would have happened. I certainly think that. It was it was an awkward thing for Ted with Sammy because he liked Sammy and one you know he had just done Sammy's VOA record. It was nothing personal against Sammy. I think Sammy, understandably, probably you know was pissed off. You know they were they were they were pissed off. He and uh, Leffler were pissed off about it because they were like, what the fuck? But you know, like Ted said, it was that's what it was hard for me to articulate to those guys. It was nothing personal against Sammy. You know, I love Sammy, but it just didn't feel right to me. And so, you know, that was, I don't know if it would have been different if Ed had asked. I'm sure he would have sure said, you need to get Dave back. Do you think part yeah, of the reason that Ted came back for Unlawful Cardinal Knowledge is because Van Halen had returned back to guitar rock? No, I don't think so. I, no, I don't. I don't think, I think he said yes where he even heard the material. So I think it was more, he and Ed had been, I'm remembering the sequence of time, he and Ed had already done the, 
the private life record. So they had already sort of, you know, hung out and done the private life record. And I, I think even if that hadn't happened, I think if those guys called, he felt a loyalty to Ed and didn't do it out of loyalty. But I think he always felt as if that, you know, regardless of whatever happened in the past, he had enormous amount of respect and affection you know, I think almost like a like a fatherly way for for Ed, and I don't want to overstate that, but I think he really felt, you know, like really had great great love for Ed Van Halen, and like if Ed called and said, "Ted, can you help me? Can you do this?" and Ted would say, "Yeah," and I think that was part of the reason why it was a, a, such an emotional thing for Ted too about not doing the Van Halen record with Sammy because he, you know, he loved all those guys. You know, he loved Mike, he loved Al. Like, you know, he, he was uh, those guys were there from him for the with the beginning, and so I think that was where it was really like a an angst filled things for for Ted. That why he maybe he came back and again that's just my speculation. He said, okay, I'll do it if you change the name. Kind of like going, shit, I you know I just I owe it to these guys. I'll do it. Just change the name and you know understandably they weren't game for that. Now the other thing was I thought there was an interesting part of the book. It gets a little murky. So he produces VOA for Sam. He produces 1984. He he does the crazy from the heat EP. And then you're at a point. Where he says, well, Sammy said that I told him about Dave leaving Van Halen, but I don't remember. And then he said, there was a quote in here that said, what Sammy did isn't much different than the guy who puts a move on a wife who has recently separated from her husband. Which was an interesting comparison. He said, if Ed hadn't connected with Sammy through Claudio, Dave would have returned to the fold and Van Halen would have eventually repaired itself. But with Sammy right. in the picture, both sides dug in their heels in. Now, it's interesting because it seems like Sam kind of took advantage of the situation a little bit. i, I got to be honest with you. I'm starting to not really believe the whole Claudio scenario with the, with the Ferrari thing anymore. It seems like a little bit of a parable from the Bible at this point. No, I, don't know. I mean, that's what Ted thinks. I know. I, mean, I, think, I know I it is, but I'm just saying that I'm not criticizing Ted. I'm telling... <laughs> It's like the great flood. I don't believe it. I'm telling you right now, I don't believe it. It's a conspiracy, Dave. It's a conspiracy. Exactly. Put on your tinfoil hat. No, but it's just really interesting because he had just produced Sammy's album. He just produced Dave's solo album. He wanted Sam in the band earlier. Then he sort of tells Sam Dave might be leaving Van Halen. And Sammy takes the movie. I mean, it's just a little too convenient. You know what I mean? Well, I I don't know. I mean, I think, look, I mean, I think... Actually, it talked about this, and Ted initially did, had no recollection of telling Sam. And I said, well, he said in this interview, he goes, well, I'm, he goes, he said to me, well, I, if I said it, I just said it in passing. It was like, you know, what's going on? You know, oh, not much. You know, we're, you know when are we going to start your next solo record? Okay, next month, you need Sam. And they're like, what's going on with you, Ted? Oh, you know, got a big mess here. Dave's leaving Van Halen or something like that. But it wasn't like Ted. Ted's point, it was that he didn't pick up the phone. To give Sam a heads up. No, but I, but that's it. all he you need to tell. Like, that's all you need to tell Sam. Forget it. He smells I, blood in the I water. Don't think, I don't think in Ted's wildest dreams he ever, ever would have imagined that Sam would have become the singer of Van Halen. I know, but Sam's an opportunist, and you know he's you know <laughs> he, 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 fucking a. Okay, I, well that's not Ted's. You know that's not Ted's problem. No, I'm not, blaming, I mean, I'm not blaming. I'm not blaming Ted. I'm not blaming Ted. I'm just saying that you know Sam is a very sharp cookie. And we have proved that time and time again. Most of these guys are musician types. You know, they're into the music. Sammy is as sharp as a razor's edge. And there's, well, a, there's a reason and, why. Right, let me go back. Wait a second. Wild Dave, you just cannot accept the fact that these two guys just happen to have the same car mechanic. 
and that's exactly. how the bank. Oh, I don't believe that. Exactly. I don't believe exactly. it at all. I think I'll it, tell you it, why. Let like, me tell you like why. People who Let's, can't believe that Kennedy got shot by a lot of No, Kennedy, you listen to me. Listen to me. Right. I I have been a journalist for long enough time to smell a press release story. And I'm just telling you that that sounds like it was cooked up in the PR department. Oh, they both share a Claudio. Hey, Claudio. I bet you Claudio hardly speaks English. I mean, you don't even know <laughs> if Claudio could, uh, Claudio's going to turn. Hey, Sammy. Hey, but Ed and Sammy already knew each other. It's not like no one knew it. Sammy existed and Ed didn't know. I mean, for Christ's sake, they played on the same bill together. Claudio's in the 50, 55 video. Yeah. Claudio's in that video. Uh, congratulations for Claudio. And you know what? I'm willing to find Claudio and interview this guy because I don't think he'd hold up and done questioning. <laughs> well, right. according right. to you, I right. hope you right. speak Italian because you're not going to get much of an interview from him. I let know. Me, yeah, let me go back to what you guys said yeah, though, about, the, yeah. about what, uh, the part of the book that I worked on was said about the, you know, I think, I think Ted's, point was he believed at the time that those guys just needed to spend some time apart and that because right. Sammy showed up, he's a great singer, Sammy can write, Sammy became the, the easy replacement for Dave. And right. that's not a knock on Sammy because Sammy's a talented guy in his own way. Right. And I think what Ted is saying is like, you know, if those guys had just spent three, four, five months apart from each other, they, someone would have been like, all right, I'm picking up the phone and would have called and said, hey, like, I'm sorry. And that's, that's what Ted believes. You know, that may not be true. Um, maybe okay. Ed doesn't believe that. Maybe Dave doesn't believe that. Maybe Mike Anthony doesn't believe that. Whatever happened, they all hated each other, whatever. Right. But that's what Ted said at the time. He was pissed off because he said, fuck. You know, it's like Sammy went in there and, you know, look, he's, you know, he was he was the right guy to step in those shoes to make it work with a new singer. And that's not a knock on Sammy. That's actually a compliment for Sammy. No, of course. Ted wanted Dave to go back. Right, you know, and that's why he was like, shit, if, if, they, if they had just spent four months apart stewing, it would have fixed itself. That's what Ted believed. Right. Well, you know, what's also interesting, though, I, I thought it was very well written, Greg. You did a great job. And there were so many things in here that I didn't know. And it was very interesting. Here's another left hook where he starts telling Sammy that he should do an R&B album. Which, right. which was shocking. And, and Sammy was apparently, quote unquote, heartbroken over it. I mean, what? the hell was that all about if you listen to what sammy's original roots are if you ever read interviews with him talk about it i mean he was a james brown guy from right. the beginning that's what and so ted was ted ted thought okay look you know you can you know you can keep doing the sort of i can't drive 55 sort of like blue collar rock or you're a better artist than that basically you could do stuff like van morrison used to do where you, you would sure. have a wider catalog and basically really show off your full talents. I mean, that was what Ted was trying to say to Sammy was like, you know, you can do so much more than you're doing. It's not a knock. He's like, I liked, he thought it was funny. He loved doing the VOA record. It's fun. But he's like, you know what? You're, you're better than this in terms of your, you could raise your game and do a better type of, I don't say better, but a, a more sophisticated type of music. And that's for Sammy, you know, Sammy's a kind of a lunch pail guy and right. Sammy got insulted, ins I don't know, insulted, but sort of like, you know, felt like, oh, Ted doesn't like my music. When Ted's like, I like the music just fine. You know, it's like, I like it just fine. You know, I don't always love everything you write lyrically or whatever, but you know, he's like, you know, I, I did the records because I like you, but I like your abilities. You're a fucking great singer and a great guy to work with. I guess Ted's perspective was, I don't understand why Sammy felt hurt by that when I'm actually paying him a compliment going, you're so much better skilled than you're showing off to the world. I want to make sure everyone knows 
You know, you could sing blues, you could sing R&B, you could sing soul. Like, like Sammy could sing all that stuff. Sure so, can, you know, yeah. I think that's what Ted was saying is like, this guy is such an amazing vocalist. Let's not just do another replication of VOA. Right. Well, that's interesting. I tell you, though, I wonder if Sam's going to get hurt by hearing that he's a lunch pail guy. I, I, he's probably feels like he could buy and sell everybody. <laughs> he's, he's well, worth... I mean, I think he meant like, hopefully, I mean, that was, that. you know, that may have been a word that I, that I kind of, you know, you know to, to sort of sweeten up what Ted was saying. I mean, I think right. what he means, like, he's like, he was like a blue collar rocker. No, of he course like he was. Like really no, himself, without like, question, he know, is. Without question, he is. But I'm, I'm not. Guy, right? No, I'm, just, I'm joking around. It's just, it's just uh-huh. funny to me that Sammy is worth more than everybody in Van Halen in total. <laughs> it's just amazing. Oh no me. doubt. I oh mean, yeah. No doubt. He's 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 oh, no he's and there's a reason, and it's because he's a sharp cookie. So yeah, well, so maybe, now let's let's let, let me ask you this though. Switching over to Dave. Now when he had the whole Edom and Smile band together, Ted had to recognize the incredible magic chemistry in that band. Oh yeah. I know he says. Oh yeah. I know when he says in the book, and I love this line in the book. When he talks about how Ladies Night in Buffalo was one of the best things he's ever done in his career. And I thought that was incredible to point that out because that's not a big hit. It's an album track, but I think it's a perfect sounding song and it's really well done. He, you go into detail in the book about the incredible sound of Eat Him and Smile. And let me tell you, it holds up today because you put it next to 5150, and 5150 sounds 30 years old. It does. It really does. 34 years old it is, for Christ's sake. But it's just, it really, really does. It has that freshness. Ted production always has that fresh quality, like we always talked about. Van Halen 1, Van Halen 2. Right. You know, you play it today, it sounds like it could have been made today. It's that crisp. It's that fresh. I think Nuno Betancourt from Extreme recently said, we always used to gauge our sound based on Van Halen 1 or Van Halen 2 in terms of perfection, as yeah. a goal of perfection. So, you know, I mean, there is something to be said about that. I thought that band wasn't well cherished enough, in my opinion. I thought they were absolutely tremendous. I mean, and, and why they weren't coveted as this brand new rock act because he was the only one taking up the Van Halen flag. You know, Van Halen in 1986 might have been called Van Halen, but it wasn't even close to Van Halen. Uh, the David Lee Roth band was way closer to Van Halen. And when I went to go see them both in concert, when I saw Roth and I saw him maybe three months later at Madison Square Garden, and I had seen Van Halen when they did their stint in Jersey in the Meadowlands, I saw them and went home uh, disappointed that I only saw two old Van Halen songs and then when I went to see Roth, and just... <laughs> I'm laughing because that's what some guy, I remember some guy I talked to for Van Halen Rising said to me, he wrote me, I asked him about it, he goes, yeah, and then I saw him, the last question I asked him, I said, did you ever see him later? He goes, yeah, I saw them once in like 1986, he's like, man, they only did two Van Halen songs. Yeah, it was <laughs> incredible. Like, Again, goes back to my point about Sammy being sharp, okay? Who goes into Van Halen and convinces the band named Van Halen to not play Van Halen songs, but we're going to play... Sammy Hagar songs. I mean, they played two yeah. Van Halen songs, and he actually weaseled in I Can't Drive 55, uh, One Way to Rock, and he even threw a Montrose song in there, for Christ's sake. I don't know how he got away with that, especially when they were the biggest band on the face of the earth. 
Well, it's interesting, like, like Dio didn't, like, there wasn't, you know, it wasn't like Ronnie Jukes Dio was like, we're going to do an Elf song, we'll do a Rainbow song. Right, you know, it wasn't, yeah. right. Yeah. But here's the, the other, but the other, songs. the other thing is, is Sammy took the job as the lead singer of Van Halen. The last time I checked, part of the criteria of being the lead singer of Van Halen is to sing Van Halen songs. But Sammy <laughs> didn't want to do it, and he also got away with it because Ed Lefter, God rest his soul, he was the manager for Sammy, and yeah. he became the manager for Van Halen. So therefore, yeah. he skewed it. He skewed it that way. And he said, I'll tell you what, boys. Why don't we do a couple of Van Halen songs? We'll do a couple of Sammy songs. You do a couple of covers. You do basically the whole album with the exception of Inside. Everybody takes a solo and we're out the door in two hours. I mean, it just seemed like that was the deal. You know, it's just interesting. You can just see sort of the patterns. You know, things were being skewed a little bit. But getting back to the Dave situation, was the album plan altered from when it was a soundtrack to a solo album? Did he ever talk about that? Right, yeah. So what they did was they actually they cut part of the record at Fantasy Studios in the fall of 1985, right? And then when the deal fell through and then became sort of this this thing where there was a lawsuit, then eventually it became clear by, again, I don't know exactly, maybe like February of 86, that there was no movie. They weren't going to make the movie right away or the movie was never going to get made. That that's when they went to the power station and did the rest of the record. To finish it. Basically, they went from the going, you know, again, I don't remember the songs. It's in the book, I think, you know, there was, you know, like Shy Boy, maybe, you know, Tobacco Road, I mean, right. whatever else they did, they did those at Fantasy, because those are the ones who were going to be in the movie. And then right. it was like, oh shit, we need to get, we need to put a record out. Right. The Halen record's going to come out, and the movie's not coming out. So then they went to New York and they finished the rest of the, you know, they did, I think, you know, Ladies Night in Buffalo and some other stuff, I think, was done at Power Station, if I recall correctly, to finish the record off. Right. One of the most powerful parts of the book was when Dave fires Ted, which was crushing to read. It really was. I mean, this guy basically made his career in in many ways. Ted, you know, really sculpted Dave in the way that, you know, he talked about when you were talking about the original Van Halen recording of Van Halen 1, where he was, you know, kind of making the song piecemeal with the, with the takes Dave had and cutting and pasting different parts of the song in order to make sure that Dave sounded good. He hung in there with Dave. He, he coaxed him. He spent extra time with Don Landy, who apparently didn't like Dave, to, you know, make things work. And here Dave kind of lets him go with, like, no thanks and very coldly. And he did make mention that he was really kind of mad because he lost the Aerosmith job over it. Right. And he and he makes a point to say it's not about a money issue because he has money, but it's about the creativity. Like he probably would have loved to have worked with Tyler and Perry on the next step had he had that opportunity. But he kind of saved that slot for Dave, and then Dave bailed him out, and it was too late for Aerosmith, and he kind of cornered him in a very unceremonious way and and very rudely apparently I mean especially to a guy who basically had his back for years and yeah. did that it's, did it's, that take an incredible emotional toll on him you know Ted felt more upset about the fact that he specifically asked Dave ahead of time saying you're sure we're on because I'm going to give up Aerosmith Aerosmith you know again the there's been some back and forth with John Kalogner 
not with Ted necessarily, but basically like, you know, some, some different interviews where people have talked about, well, Ted was never really going to do the follow up for that. But, you know, if you read the contemporaneous articles that I did in between Done with Mirrors and Permanent Vacation, if Tyler and Perry both say, well, you know, we're going to do it again with Ted Templeman. And so right. he was, yeah, he was, he was going to be the guy to do it. And that, that for Ted to sort of take a pass on that, he basically told Tyler and Perry and uh, Aerosmith's management, hey, I'm not going to do it because I'm just Dave Record. And I think that's where he felt most frustrated because he felt in particular that he hadn't done a good enough job on Done With Mirrors, that basically those guys and him had not all been, you know, maybe firing all cylinders the best way they could, and the album didn't come out as well as it should have. And he was just so eager to do it again because he goes on and on about how talented those guys are. Again, that's what kind of, you know, back to the original motivation for doing the book, how much Ted's enlivened by the talent. You know, I mean, he's not, you know, he's not immune to the, the reality that, like, Tyler and Perry are two of the best rock musicians of the 20th century, you know, like Ed and Dave. I mean, he goes through all the people he worked with. So he's like, you know, to miss a chance to work with those guys and to, to support those guys in their creative process. And that was a big disappointment, especially because he felt like if we had gotten another opportunity, we would have made a killer record. You know, and he loves, you know, he loved what uh, Bruce Fairbairn did. He, you know, he gives props to Bruce saying Bruce, Bruce really delivered, I mean, a big monster record for those guys, and God bless them. But it was just that to have to pass on the Aerosmith record, this would have been the second Aerosmith record, and then and then have Dave leave him high and dry was a big, yeah, it was a big, you know, it kind of uh, fucked Ted over for it. Was, you know, you can imagine, if 1987, you have either Aerosmith or David Lee Roth as your, what you're peddling into doing, and then neither happened. It's you know, it a pretty big calendar gap there in sort of what you would expect to be doing. So, yeah. Uh, well, I tell you, it's incredible with the way Michael McDonald mentioned in the book how he wasn't properly credited or compensated in 1984. That is shocking to me. I don't understand. He's friends with Michael McDonald. He's an executive at Warner Brothers. He's producer of the album. How was it not made sure that this guy was taken care of after he did a favor? Well, you know, it was up to the songwriters document their own material, and they're the ones who file the copyrights for the song. So it wasn't as if Ted was in the loop for that. I mean, Ted was sort of like they wrote the song, and then Ted gets this call, you know, and just was like, well, what do you mean? From uh, Mike McDonald saying, I wasn't credited on the record. Ted's like, what are you talking about? Of course you were credited on the record. It was something that was not in Ted's purview in terms of what was going on with his job. So, yeah, the, the songwriters themselves submit the splits. You know, they basically go, okay, you know, I wrote a song with Dave. Dave, Dave, Dave and Greg wrote the song. Dave's going to get 30%. The other Dave's going to get 50%, and I'll get 20%. You know, however, the songwriting splits come out in terms of the revenues and then who gets credited on this, you know, who gets the songwriting publishing for whatever reason, you know, Ted still isn't privy to what exactly went on, but it didn't, somebody in the Van Halen camp or some group of people forgot to credit Michael McDonald for writing the chorus melody and the lyrics for all weight. And for, from Ted's perspective, you know, he wasn't like super you know, worried about like, oh, Mike McDonald's going to go broke if he doesn't get his check for all weight. It was more that there was this reality that Ted was the guy who brought Mike in to work. You know, basically, Mike McDonald did it as a favor to Ted. It was an unpleasant situation. It left Ted in an awkward position, you know, with Mike presumably not being 100% sure that Ted wasn't aware of it ahead of the time. But, you know, again, it's the songwriters themselves who, who have to document their own work. But there was like a whole legal agreement between Michael McDonald and the band. I mean, that was in some of the manager's paperwork when he had auctioned it off. Not to continually feed conspiracy theories on this podcast, but it almost feels like somebody in the band was almost like, oh, we can't have anybody know there was an outside songwriter on this album, so we're not 
going to give Mike credit. Sorry. I mean, it almost. Yeah, if you look at the original pressings, I mean, it's interesting. If you, I have an original, like you guys do, like everyone does, an original pressing of, or like, you know, 1984, 85, circa version of 1984, and Mike's name's not on it. <laughs> you know, but if you get the CD later, you know, the album later, it says Michael McDonald now. And it's you know? incredible. So. Now, speaking of Michaels, Michael Anthony, Ted goes out of his way to explain that Michael was not only a trooper, but an incredible background vocalist, an incredible bassist, and couldn't possibly be a better fit to play next to Eddie Van Halen, which I totally appreciated. Did he do that to clarify of Mike's validity in the band because of Ed's recent disparaging comments? Well, I mean, he didn't, I, I can't speak to that because it was never couched in that way to me. I mean, he was just, I'd asked him about, no, obviously when you're talking about Van Halen, you're going to spend 75% of the time talking about Dave and Ed, you know, and then eventually you're like, hey, you know, we, you know, tell me about Mike. And he was just, you know, talked about, you know, one of the things was his regret that he didn't spend more time maybe working with Mike, but he was like, he was good. He was like, he, he was good. I mean, I didn't have to like do anything with him. He, like, he, he laid down the baseline, did a great job. He sang great. You know, Ted really was, very interested in trying to make sure people understood too that the part of that sound, that background vocal sound that gave them that youthful quality, this is like Ted said, almost like the Beach Boys type of background vocal sound. That was part of what he really liked about the band when he started to really work with them in the, in 77. That sound, you know, Mike, that was a lot to do with Mike. And so I think it was just more than just his honest appreciation. He was, you know, I asked him about Mike and say, Oh, Mike's great. Mike's great. You know, God, you know, just, you just, stand him in the corner and, you know, does his parts and it's like, doesn't give you any problem. And he's, and he's just a great guy. And, you know, like everybody said, he's a great guy and he's a great musician and a great singer. And so it's like, you know, what's there to, you know, what's there to complain about, right? Then there's no drama. I mean, the guy's like a no drama guy. He just shows up, does his job and is amicable and nice guy. And, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the thing there. I, yeah. But it was never, you know, there was never any like, you know, we need, you know, Ted saying, I want to make sure people know what, no, it was never, it was never like that. It was just more like I just asked him about Mike, and that's what he said. And, well, and what about Alex? It's interesting. He doesn't talk a lot about Alex in the book. He does two things. He talks about his incredible drumming on Everybody Wants Some and the amazing job that he did there, and he talks about how Alex was really a conduit to communicate to Ed. But he right. doesn't talk a lot about Alex. Is he not crazy about Alex? No, I don't think it's that. I mean, I think it's it's more that Ed was the guy. I mean, I think Ed and Dave were the guys. I don't think it was a matter of he doesn't appreciate Alex. I mean, I think, you know, one thing, for example, that I would point to is that he talked a lot about how all of the sort of syncopated little parts that we all love on Van Halen, one little drum and guitar things where they play together. He's like, that's the brothers. We're just totally locked in on that stuff and doing all that stuff. You know, I think it, I think it was much more of the fact that, again, that Alex was a great drummer, but he wasn't the guy who was writing the songs. and He wasn't the guy who was sort of the, the creative driving force like Dave and Ed were. So it wasn't, I don't think it was, no, he doesn't have a problem with, with Alex. And I think he's, you know, he's been appreciative of all those guys for like, Shit, you know, that's like you go from find a, find this band in a bar in, in Hollywood to selling 10 million copies of their, their debut. You're grateful to every guy from top to bottom. Did he mention anything to you about the crazy Van Halen period where they're going back and forth with Gary and Mitch Malloy and Dave and Sam? You know, if you asked him about that, I yeah. mean, he would be like, what? 
Oh, come on. He, he, I'm dead serious. I'm dead serious. I mean, yeah, I mean, like, he would just be like, if you said Mitch Malloy to Ted Templeman, no offense to Mitch Malloy, but he was like, you know, Ted's not going to blabbermouth every day and checking in on what's going on. And like, you know, it's just, it's just one of these things that, like, I would show him things and he'd be like, what? You know, like, he, you know, he just is not, you know, he's kind of gone on with his life where he does other things. He's interested in, he, you know, is really into real estate and other, th- you know, other things where he's, He's got other interests, and he's just, you know, he's not a rock fan like we are. So right. he, certainly he knows that, like, you know, they've been back together with Sammy, and they've split, and that he knows that, obviously, that Wolfie has been in Van Halen. Obviously, he knows that stuff, but he's, you know, he's not, like, combing VH links for, like, story. I mean, it's just, you know, so, like, I'm sure at the time, obviously, he was on his radar. If you asked about the Gary Sharon thing, he would probably go, oh, yeah, but, you know, it never was something that, you know, came up in conversation. You'd be like, then they did Van Halen 3. That was never part of the of the equation of our conversations. He was, you know, obviously focused on his work with those guys and, you know, whatever else that would be kind of related to that with, you know, whatever Sammy solo records or Dave's solo records or whatever that type of stuff. What about Wolfie being in the band? Is he aware of that? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. I mean, like, that type of stuff. Yeah, I mean, just sort of like the minutia, like, you know, like we were looking at his fans, like, oh, Mitch Malloy went up to 5150. <laughs> I mean, he wouldn't know that. Right. Yeah, I mean, no, he thinks that Wolfie's an incredible talent, and he likes the last studio record that Van Halen did. And he actually, it's funny, I, you know, I didn't get into this in the book because it wasn't relevant to the to, to Ted's life story. But you know, he's like, I really like Tattoo. You know, I'm not a, me personally, I'm not a huge fan of Tattoo. But when Ted Templeman says, I really like that song, I thought that was a good song for those guys. I thought, you know, he was like, you know, he was like, kind of like that was a good single, that was good. And I was, you know, I'm sort of like, okay, you know, what am I supposed to say? To, like, I don't like that. Yeah. You know, so it's interesting. He certainly, I think would obviously like all four of those guys to get on stage again together to do their thing but he certainly understands you know the sort of the dynamic of of it wolfie as ed's son and the whole things but you know you know it's not like again like ted was sitting there i'm interviewing about the book and he's like mulling mulling over the the the, the state of van halen in 20 2018 like what's you know he just it wasn't it wasn't part of the equation of our discussion really was he ever trying to be a producer on a different kind of truth no i mean as far as i know you know it wasn't anything that he was looped in onto at all I I don't know for sure. I don't think that he was in communication with Ed and Al at that time anyway. And certainly, you know, he hadn't been in terms of music for years. He left the industry in, in 1998 from Warner Brothers and then did some work with Doobie Brothers and some other small projects. But he wasn't out there as a working, quote unquote, producer. You know, I'm, I'm sure that that would have been an interesting an interesting situation for those guys to get back on the same group together. I certainly would have liked to have heard it. But I think, you know, I think it was never something that Ted, I don't think Ted knew about it until it was, it was out. You know, I don't think it was like he was looped in at all. It just seems like such a slam dunk move that Dave's back in the band. So who would you get to produce? You know, like Dave doesn't come up on a short list. I don't know. Who knows? I mean, you you tell me. I think we all would like to know what the inner workings of of the Van Halen camp is in terms of what they have to think about things. But I can tell you with almost 100% certainty that Ted was not contacted and, and Ted didn't know about the record until it came out or was about to come out that, oh, they're doing another, you know, they're doing a record with Dave. Obviously, he knew they had reunited and may have, like, you know, may have had, like, read somewhere that they're doing a record, but he certainly wasn't, like, involved in any sort of contact with the Van Halen camp, whether that Dave or Ed and Allen by the time, to the best of my knowledge. He never mentioned it to me. It's incredible. Now, also, did he ever go see them back together in, like, 2007 or anything? I don't think so. No. As far as I know, no, he didn't mention it to me. What Did he ever mention recording in the midnight hour for 1984? He didn't remember doing it, but I think you guys are the ones who have been kind of have talked about how Alex said it was done. Mm-hmm. And I have no reason to believe it wasn't done. I mean, I think it was just one of those things that I, I suspect it was one of those things that got scrapped pretty quickly, that they did it, 
and you know, again, maybe going back to the again, this is just my supposition because Ted didn't remember. I asked about it because I don't remember that. Maybe it was just because it was a cover song and it was like, no, we're not going to, you know, sort of the, you know, the powers that be in the band, meaning maybe Ed and Al said, no, we're not doing cover songs after Diver Downing. Or maybe they didn't like the version of it. I mean, I think you guys are the ones who told me that Alex said he has a copy of it. Yeah, I spoke to Alex directly and he said to me, I have a copy of it right here and I could play it for you. So I said, play it. And he said, nope. (laughs) But he told me, Alex told me, and this is in 1998, because I knew about it then, that it was lopped off the record. They wanted to have an album with no covers after Diver Down, but they did record it and it's fully done. But it's yeah, I mean that makes sense, right? It just was because that was what the thing too, obviously that that Ted talked about in the book extensively was just that there was just way too much material. I mean, there was just sort of this, you know, with working in a home studio, there's no meter running, you can work forever, and just sort of like it's, it was hard to sort of be like we're done. Let's start. Let's just start mixing. Or it was just let's do one more song. Let's do this and that. You know, I can imagine that was one of the early things that was done. <laughs> it was a lot of months. I mean, it took a lot of months to do that record. Well, it's interesting because. I know that it drove Ed nuts that Ted used to call, I'll wait, Arjuns, hold your head up. It used to drive Ed nuts because Ed used to play, I'll wait, without the lyrics, and he would sing, hold your head up, by Argent to him playing, I'll wait, and it used to make Eddie nutty. And I don't know, I read that in many interviews, and that it used to bother him when he did that. I also found it interesting in the book that, Ed built 5150, and Ted was surprised that he wanted to record 1984 there because, you know, obviously, you know, Ed was, you know, building it because he wanted to expand and become his own home studio and his own production company there. Right. It's shocking to me that that's so surprising to Ted because it was clear that Eddie really wanted to take control. And it's also interesting that it was physically made. So that Ted would be uncomfortable. I mean, he described it in the book as being in a bathtub. Well, I don't think it was physically made to make him uncomfortable. I mean, I just think it's a small building, right? I mean, it just was, yeah, I don't think that's the way it's characterized in the book. It was just a small building, a small space. And the other thing I will tell you is that I asked Don Landy this directly in the last year or so. Don said to me, I didn't think we were going to do the record there either. When Ed and Al said that, or Ed said it to me, I was actually pretty surprised too. I was like, really? You know, it wasn't finished. Right? Yeah. It wasn't finished. No, yeah, it, it was, was, like, the, it was like in construction phase. Right. So it wasn't finished. And so, you know, maybe that had been a long-term goal. The idea they were going to do 1984 there seemed to surprise Don as well. And in addition, I think Ted really goes to great pains to talk about how amazing Don's technical ability is to be able to build this studio from the ground up. And he rewired the board. and did, he, You know, he built that studio and how it had an incredibly unique sound. But there were things that were made it uncomfortable for the way Ted liked to work. But it wasn't as if it was made that way, you know, to make Ted uncomfortable. It was just that it was small. You couldn't track live drums there. And there was, you know, no real space in the control room. It's tiny. It was a home studio. And that was the whole the thing that Ted, I think, went to pains in the book to try to make clear is that he was happy that Ed was building the studio. He wanted him to build the studio because he thought this guy is an incredible writer and, and deserves to have a place where he can really, really work on his music and kind of work on his, his demos and make these sophisticated demos. But, you know, like Ted said, it's like going from Sunset Sound, which is a world-class studio, and then right. you want to make it in a, in a backyard studio. It's no offense against the backyard studio. It's a great home studio, but it's not a professional top of the line studio that led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones, I mean, goes every one of the Beach Boys all recorded at Sunset Sound. Like, why would we record at 5150 when we could record at Sunset Sound? Of course, we understand, right, the, the whole, the power play and uh, the dynamic of the, you know, sort of 
it's it's Ed's studio and you know Ed Ed saw it as his home and you know but in, in the beginning as, as Ted tried to make clear too everyone was trying to make it work like everyone was like okay we'll do it let's do it let's make it work and it just became a challenging environment yeah and I was kind of surprised at that because I mean with Ted being an executive couldn't Warner Brothers have said no there's no way we're recording the next album in your backyard studio we're going to a professional studio and that's how we're doing it. And I think he could have. Again, I, this is sort of my supposition is that, you know, then again, it's like slapping Ed and Don in the face though, right? And like, that's the thing I think that Ted really struggled with is that he was like, holy shit, this is really cool. It just isn't the place I think we should make a record. And Ed was so proud of it. Don was proud of it. And, and Ted, like he said, he was up there during the course of the, you know, being like, oh, this is interesting. You guys are doing this. this is cool. This is going to be great for Ed. I think part of the thing was that Ed felt really impassioned about wanting to do it up there and that Don had built the studio, right? So to be like, oh, it's not good enough. It wasn't that it wasn't good enough. It just was, Ted didn't feel it was well suited for making a Van Halen studio record. He didn't think it wasn't, you know, you weren't capable of getting a good sound up there or, you know, a, a cool sound. It wasn't necessarily a sound that Ted loved, but let's all face it. I mean, 1984 is an incredible sounding record. So I made it 5150. Absolutely. You know, it's incredible that you hear all the strife behind it and it really came out beautiful. You know, it really came out amazing. What's also amazing to me is he actually thought that after 5150 and Eat Him and Smile and the success of both of those, that Dave was still going to come back to Van Halen? He told me that, yeah, he thought that, I mean, again, I don't think he necessarily thought like it's a slam dunk, but I think what he was hoping was that there would be a stepping back by everybody going, okay, we did this, let's get back together. I mean, think about what happened with the Stones in the 80s, right? There was the Rolling Stones never quote-unquote break up, but Jagger did his solo records, and you have Keith Richards and Jagger sniping each other. This would have been like 85, 86, like yep. you know, really saying like nasty things about each yep. other. But then they, make, they get back together, they do Steel Wheels. I think that's what Ted was getting at, that he was sure that like, you know, both records did well, nobody's coming to the other person like begging back, right? right? No one has to be like, oh, I'm going to, we can, you know, you, I'm, you only want to come back because your last album sucked. You know, no one had to say that. We need you back. It wasn't that situation. He thought, okay, eat him and smile. It was a kick-ass record. It did incredibly well. 5150, those guys did what they wanted. And he was hoping that Sammy would, you know, would just step out of the picture and not to blame Sammy for it, but it was just basically that's what he thought. But he was like, you know what? Everybody kind of dug in their heels and he, he was legitimately shocked, I think, that it just went on. Like, it's just amazing that it went on decade after decade that those guys couldn't kind of find a way to make it work. You know what I mean? One thing you don't mention in the book is his reaction to Skyscraper. Did he ever talk to you about that? He kind of washed his hands a bit. I mean, I think he was just, you know, he was just pretty unhappy that he had been cut out of the picture there. I mean, look, he talked to me at great length about what a genius he thinks Steve I is. And, of course, obviously he's a fan of Dave's, but he never really, you know, he would just sort of like, be like, never really listen to it. And, you know, for whatever reason, that's what he said to me. And, you know, maybe I'm sure I'm sure back in 1988 he listened to it, but he was I, I don't think he revisited it, probably because it reminded him of the fact that, you know, it was a an unpleasant business exchange and that whole thing that didn't work out to his advantage or, you know, artistic, you know, that he really wanted to work on the next record with Dave. That was the plan. Well, that's for sure. I don't think it would have turned out the way it did. Now, do you feel like he felt a sense of competition with Van Halen when working on Eat Him and Smile? Ted, I mean. You know, I, you know Ted didn't ever couch it to me that way. I mean, I think he felt like, I mean, he knew. I mean, he actually had told me one time he went over to, it's kind of a funny story, he went over to the Roth Mansion, and this would have been after Van Halen split for a few months, and it was, you know, obviously Sam was in the band and everything, and he went over there, and he said, like, they had, like, they were all wearing fatigues, or, like, Pete and Dave were wearing fatigues, and they had, like, a table laid out, and, like, it was, like, you know, they were, like, in a war room or something, like, like maps on the wall, and, like, it was, like, Dave, like, like, he was, like, 100% serious, and he told me this story, he's, like, yeah, he's, like, it was, like, 
you know, so Dave certainly saw it as like, you know, he was like in this war mindset. He was like, you know, just Dave always did kind of off the wall things, obviously. So Ted didn't really like think it was that off the wall. Right. But he said, yeah, he like these like maps on the wall and like to basically have the dining room laid out like a war room in a movie, you know, like, oh, here's, we're going to, we're going to invade, you know, we're going to invade Cleveland and then we're going to, you know, whatever. Like he was <laughs> saying like with the tour and everything that we're going to do and making the movie or whatever, you know, we're going to do the movie and then we're going to do this kind of this whole strategy. I think the sense was for Ted that he wanted to make a really kick-ass sounding record only to make sure in terms of competition, I guess, I don't know if it's the right word for competition, to make sure that Ed and Al didn't think like, oh, Dave's just into that sort of like, you know, California girls and all this other soft, like basically that we don't want Dave back in the band because he's going to do like just gigolo, right? That he wanted to make sure it was a hard rock. There was stuff on it that was really, really over the top hard right. rock. Right. That would be like, there'd be no doubt that, no one would be confused whether David Lee Roth was still committed to hard rock for the sake of Van Halen going forward. I think that's really what Ted would tell you is that it was just, he wanted to be like, he wanted the guys in Van Halen to go, uh, yeah, you know, shy boy, that's pretty kick, you know, kick ass. Just, just to be able to be like, I guess Dave still does want to do like heavy metal or whatever, you know, that right. type of stuff along with the sort of the goofier stuff he did. So I think that was really what Ted's mindset was that he wanted to set up. I mean, he said it to me over and over. I just wanted to set those guys up to get back together. I wanted to make this kick ass rock record that would just really, you know, make sure that everybody in the world, including the guys in Van Halen, knowing that Dave had his shit together and was like, was still committed to the type of music that Van Halen always done. I mean, that's, and you guys said it at the beginning of the interview that Eat Him and Smile is like the seventh Van Halen record. I mean, I think that's, yeah. there's some truth to that, that it's much more in the spirit yeah. of Diver Down or, you know, Women and Children First in some sort of way than 5150, well, if that it, makes sense. And well, that was what it, Ted it, wanted to do with it. For example, you listen to Drop Dead Legs and then you listen to Love Walks In. But you listen to Drop Dead Legs and you listen to Bump and Grind and it does sound like it's the next record. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's got that kind of vibe. So now, in terms of the name change from Van Halen to Van Hagar, you know, thinking about that, it's very interesting that Ted was very pro- Van Hagar, because typically in a company, they don't like to change the name of a brand. And especially after seeing ACDC kind of continue with a new singer, right. you think that Warner Brothers would be pushing to keep the name Van Halen because of its worth. Yeah, except if you thought, again, I, this isn't just me thinking about it with you now, is that, you know, unless you thought the album was going to flop, right? I mean, that's the thing. It's like, thinking about did Black Sabbath damage its brand by some of the records those guys made in the 90s with, you know, when, when basically before the they got back with Ozzy yeah, I mean, The Headless Cross, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I like some of those records, but they're certainly not. I mean, look at those records, you're like, yeah, I mean, they're not really as good as, you know, I think that's a perfectly fair point, and I think that I'm sure if you sat Ted down and he said that to him, he'd probably be like, yeah, that's a fair point. For him, it was a pretty emotional thing, and he felt, you know, like you can't have the stones without Mick and Keith. I mean, that's the same type of thing where you just be like, oh, it's I'm going to get Roger Daltrey to sing. Well, no, it's not the Stones. It's it's Roger Daltrey singing with in the Rolling Stones band, you know. And so that was the same type of thing. So I think that's where Ted really was coming from, from a very emotional, artistic state, rather than going sort of monetarily going. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you want to put it out, I mean, obviously, since it ended up being a Van Halen record, I'm sure the guys at people in Warner Brothers ultimately were like, well, there's there's obviously a very good side to that, meaning the executives and throughout the company, because that's the brand. But, you know, if people had come out and not accepted Sammy, then you would have damaged the Van Halen brand in theory. And I think that's what Ted's probably think thought process was, especially if he's thinking like, okay, these guys, this is going to blow over. They're going to do the record and they're going to get, and then Dave will come back. 
So let's right. call out the, you know, Van Hagar or the whatever, the Sammy Halen project or something like that and, right. and just get those guys. You guys know this. That was never going to happen. Right. The brothers no. would have like, would have like had a hunger strike inside of 5150 before they would let that happen. Exactly. To their credit, they, to their credit, that's what their, their name is, their band. It, I totally understand where they're coming from. And so it was never going to happen. It was just, you know, Ted's response to the situation going, I'll do it if you do this. And, right. You know, well, unfortunately, Dave let that happen because he's the one who suggested the name Van Halen. Had the band been named Mammoth, this wouldn't have been the discussion because there wouldn't have been some personal attachment to the name Mammoth, and maybe Dave would have owned a piece of the name Mammoth. Maybe he could have gone <laughs> off and taken off with Mammoth. I mean, honest to God, it's really kind of unfair that the band is called Van Halen, and then it's like, well, it's my band because it's my name, and fuck you. Like, like Bon Jovi is interesting because John is the one who owned the record contract. John was signed, right. and no one else was signed. Everybody else was signed right. On as John's backup band. So you kind of give it there. But Van Halen does have the mixture of Dave and Ed. And for Christ's sake, back in the day, the joke used to be that people used to call Dave Van, for Christ's sake. I mean, that was all part of the, the whole uh, scene there. But anyway, Greg, we've exhausted you enough. We want to thank you so much for being so patient and answering all our questions in regards to the book. Uh, funny enough, folks, this is only 160 pages of the 460-page book. So, of course, this is a Van Halen podcast, and we're going to focus on the Van Halen side. But Greg does an incredible job. Job weaving in and out of the different artists that Mr. Templeman produced. And my God, you know, he really produced some great artists, like he mentions the Doobie Brothers and Nicolette Larson and Little Feet. He also even gets the touches on the Bullet Boys a little bit. Montrose, of course, Sammy Hagar. The list goes on and on. So, Greg, this was a fantastic job. We really appreciate you coming back on. You're always a welcome guest, and we wish you the best of luck with the book. Now, here's the good news, Greg. People are home during this pandemic. So what do they need to do? They need to read, Greg. They need to get back to basics and to read a good quality book. And what's better than picking up Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life and music, available on Amazon all this month, we are promoting this book, and we are very excited about it. We've been talking about it for quite some time. Mr. Renoff, I have one last question for you. I know uh, that you've just put out this book, and we want to ask you, are you working on something next yet? Have you put another <coughs> pot on the burner? Uh, I, I do have another pot on the burner. My, my current pot on the burner is homeschooling my children. Yes, Craig has two beautiful daughters, but in addition to your parental duties, is there any <laughs> other thing that you're writing? You know, I, I have another Van Halen book in me. I, oh. I will tell you guys that, yet yeah, all this sort of this craziness has gone and sort of reorganized re, uh, my uh, my calendar for uh, the coming coming weeks, including, unfortunately, the whole promotion schedule that was going to be involved with having Ted do stuff in, in Pasadena and stuff like that when the book came out. Right. Because we're all, obviously, everyone's all buttoned up. You know, I do have another Van Halen book in me. It would obviously, I think, focus on 
the period that would cover the some of the Sammy Hagar stuff too. That's that's I think really ripe, especially after I did this book, I'm really ripe to kind of get into that stuff. That muddled middle period that we've been talking about, like what happened here, what happened there. You know, so if I was going to do another book, it would probably be focused on that period of time. But that's all, as I said, it's all kind of been shelled for the time being because it's you know any hope for doing a book proposal and stuff like that. That sort of has to kind of God willing, this will all be over before too much longer. But it's looking like it's going to be a couple of months at least before life turns back to normal. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've got another Van Halen book in me. Don't worry. Okay, so you think, uh, what, another three, four, five years, uh, we'll see that? I go faster than that. I'll try to do them okay. faster than that. Will, 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 Don, will Don Landy be part of that? Or Mr. Templeman be part of that? Or will you be no. doing... Any interviews no, it for be, that? I, it would be, you know, it would be just, it would just be my, my writing. It wouldn't be, there's no, uh, um, okay. I don't have any plans to work with anybody else on another, another book. I mean, if someone came knocking on my door, maybe, you know, call, uh, I don't know, <laughs> I'll do Mike Anthony's Bionics or something. I don't know. I love Mike. That'd be, that'd be amazing, right? But no, I mean, obviously yeah. you get a call like that or something. I'm just joking. Yeah. Someone, you know, obviously it was, you know, who we were like, oh, that's, oh, I'm so flattered. You know, mm. you name the person, I would, I would do it, but no, I don't have any plans to do it. And I do, person. I do have one last thing to ask you. There's been a, a, a rumor going around that you have been pushing Rhino to do a Van Halen release that they have sitting on their shelves. Is this true, Mr. Redoff? I mean, no more than anyone else can send an email to those guys over there and God bless them and say, hey, you guys ever think about doing this? But, you know, I will tell you, nobody answers my emails from mm. over there. So it's, you know, it's but I don't think I'm the only person who's, who's sort of prodding along those ways. I was really pleased that Eddie Trunk about a year ago kind of basically ran, ran the flag up the flagpole and said, hey, by the way, there's yeah. all this material. Why don't you guys do something with it? Well, you, um, you heard, I don't know if you heard about it on the podcast, but we reported what Eddie said and what Eddie said was, that the team of guys, and I don't know their name, who put together the recent Woodstock box set was hired by Warner Brothers or Rhino or whoever to put together a Van Halen box set. They did it. It's finished. It's mastered. And it's sitting on a shelf. And it's not released because it hasn't been signed off on. I think that's pretty on target. I mean, that's pretty much what I understand. Yeah, from what I heard from Eddie and right. what I know. Yeah. You you do the math. You guys do the math. You figure it out. It's just the same. You know, it's more of the same right. um, way that things are done. It's unfortunate that it's just the prerogative of the people who who are in the position to make those decisions. And so. Well, we will see. Thank you so much again, Greg. Great to talk to you as always. We wish you nothing but the best of luck with this book. Hopefully, this will buy you another Ferrari and or another mansion uh, in, in Oklahoma <laughs> there, and you'll be the you'll be the I king of the castle. Porsche, give a little. I'll give a little Easter egg joke to people who will get it. I, I'm getting a Porsche Carrera Turbo off this book. So. Oh wow! Whoa! How about that Variety Video Music fans? Live all day, all night. You know what you need. Only right here on KTV. Check us out on Facebook at Dave and Dave Unchained, a Van Halen podcast. On Twitter at DD Unchained. On Instagram at DD Unchained Podcast. And you can email us at DD Unchained Podcast at gmail.com. Hello, Greg. I'm here. Oh, uh, hey, man. Sorry about that. The, the dongle wasn't working out. I just had to get a new one. Sorry about that. No worries. Excellent. Uh, Dave, you there? You always have a trouble with your dongle. All right, enough with gonna, the comments, you fucking that. dick. I didn't want to go there. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, 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 I did. I did. I'm going to set the tone for the entire call, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> He's starting off right off the way. Right off the way. Talking about my T-shirts. How they used to fit me 
when I'm laughing with the boys. The spirits seem to lift me. We were talking about '68 and '69, all the things we did. It's not that now I'm old at all. Then we were just kids. My friends, our friends, never got together again, but I love my friends, my friends. Dunkin' Refreshers are the perfect way to get a little more out of your day. With more tropical flavors like new mango pineapple and more ways to get glowing, available with green tea, coconut milk, or lemonade, you've got what you need to make the most out of every moment, even the ones spent stuck in traffic. <sighs> what a beautiful day! Sip into all your favorite Dunkin' refreshers like new mango pineapple. America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Additional charges may apply. Texting privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting rules for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. My first grader was behind in reading, and this program has made a huge difference. She's now reading above grade level. I use it for my kids' nightly reading for school. We love it, and it's super easy and quick to do. My kid, who just turned four years old and has been using the program since January of this year, can now read. Thank you so much, Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word KID to 323232 right now. It's fast and easy. Text KID to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text the word KID to 323232. Text KID to 323232.